This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents The Light of Life, Book Four of the Cycle of Galand, written by Edward W. Robertson, performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds. One. Dante clasped hands with his foe, ears ringing with the beat of his heart. On the white, bone-like surface of the ground, Gladick gazed up at him, eyes shining with tears. Beside Dante, Naren looked thunderstruck, and Volo looked ill. But Blazer's shock was already being replaced by understanding. And condemnation. Gladick tilted his weathered face to the clouds, as if seeking the gods behind them. He held the stump of his right arm close to his chest. Dante tightened his arm and helped the old man to his feet. I want nothing more than to leave this life and step into the beyond. Gladick's voice was husky, as if he was announcing the death of a dear friend. Even so... I will help you fight what has been unleashed, but I believe our fight will be in vain. Dante tried to smile, but his mouth wouldn't do more than twitch. You'd be surprised how much you can accomplish when you don't know that you're supposed to be able to do it. This belief explains much about your behavior. I'm sorry. Naren's reddened face swiveled between them. I don't understand what is happening. That's because you're in possession of a working sense of right and wrong, Blaze said. What's happening is that Dante is proposing an alliance with Gladick. Not Gladick of Yorton, friendly baker, but this Gladick, the most unfriendly butcher. This left Naren too flummoxed to speak. Spears of guilt ran up Dante's spine. You don't know what you're talking about. Blaze snorted. You're doing that thing where you throw away every principle you've ever had because you think it'll provide you the slightest advantage in getting what you want. We've stumbled into something we don't understand. We can't afford to make rash decisions right now. And the decision to befriend a mass-murdering lunatic is reasoned and logical? You saw what we fought back there. He was trying to destroy it, and we stopped him. He being the same person who has also repeatedly tried to destroy our allies from existing. Based on Gladick's history of judgment, he was probably trying to stop that big fellow back there from declaring world peace. You are more correct than you know, Gladick said. But this world peace would be the peace of eternal slavery. Blaze turned on him with the full fury of his scorn. He's going to enslave us all, is he? Then why have you spent the last year trying to colonize the plagued islands and exterminate the Colin Basin, driven mad by the impending end of the world, no doubt? It was thought that the Aedan Rane remained in his prison. Unbeknownst to my former ally, the Drakebane, who ruled these lands, the rebels of Tanaratain have been working to release him, so that he might destroy the Drakebane for them. 
This is exactly why we need his help. Dante glanced in the direction where they'd fled from the being Gladic called the Aiden Rane, the White Lich. But the ghoulish landscape was currently empty. He knows a whole hell of a lot that we don't. Fire destroys, but it can also illuminate. We need to see what it can show us. Right. Blaze swung back toward Gladig. Where did you come by all this knowledge? Reading books? Speaking to people? The cadaverous man nodded. In large part. Excellent. Then we will also go read these books and speak to these people, freeing us up to kill you now. As you wish. We came here expecting to kill him, Dante said. So to you, any action that doesn't involve killing him is the most foolish act since the last time you forgot to eat breakfast. But new information has come to light. Information that changes everything. Our plans have to change with it. Let me give it some thought. Blaze wrapped his hand around the hilt of his sword. On closer consideration, I'm pretty sure it's still a great idea. If we slay him now, we have no idea how long it'll take to learn about the Aiden Rane, because whatever it is, the Drakebane's last act here was to try to destroy it, and when that failed, he was so terrified of it that he's abandoning his homeland altogether. Blazer's sword arm relaxed, the tension moving from it to his face. As he made a rare struggle for words, Naren surged forward, shoving Gladick to the ground. The priest attempted to catch himself with his right arm. The impact of his stump against the stony surface made him gasp. Naren drew his saber and jabbed it into the hollow of Gladick's throat. You murdered my captain, my oldest friend, my savior. In return, I send you to the tilted cabin that rests at the bottom of the sea. Make it quick. Gladick's gaze had shifted past Naren to the south. After, you will want to run. Dante wrenched his eyes away from the unfolding execution and to the southern horizon, beyond which they'd last seen the white lich. There, a pair of dark shapes loped swiftly through the upthrust field of bony growths. The creatures had the length and height of wolves, but they were as slender as ferrets and as graceful as Galadie's fishing cats. Dante's mouth dried out. What are those? His scouts, Gladick said, although such a term understates their danger. They are more than a match for your armed men, and their skin is hardened against the blades of the Odosain. Thanks for the warning, Blay said. Got a boat we can use while you stay here and bravely hold them off? Yes, it is beyond the labyrinth. Perfect. Don't worry, we'll definitely send help. The labyrinth? Dante grabbed the priest's intact arm. I don't know why you're willing to help us after everything that's happened, but if you want us to get out of here, then show us the way. Again, Gladick looked up at the clouds. A look of deep yearning creased the corners of his eyes. 
coming from any other priest, Dante would have assumed he was beseeching the gods for aid. But he felt abruptly certain that Gladick was wishing to die. Gladick's shoulders sank. As you wish. He loped forward, moving easily despite the grievous wound that had claimed his right arm. Naren bared his teeth and followed. Blaze spewed profanity. Volo, normally as free with her opinions as a crow, ran along as if in a trance, still stunned by the understanding of what her rebel movement had done in releasing the Aiden Rane. Dante held the rear, keeping one eye on the creatures as they pursued the five of them across the field of white spikes and red pools. He had utterly exhausted himself in the battle against the white lich. The others were battered themselves, and Gladick had just said the animal scouts were hardened against the nether-fueled Odosain blades they carried. There would be no more arguments between them, not until they were out of this place and into safety, or whatever passed for it these days. Gladick weaved through a field of rocky protrusions, streaked with iron rust. Beyond the next ridge, the ground leveled out in a plateau, standing a hundred feet above the swamps below. Gusts of wind snapped at their clothes. A blank wall of rock rose from the end of the plateau, broken by a single opening just large enough for a single person to squeeze through. If Dante had any power remaining, he might have etched a staircase twenty feet up to the top of the short cliff, but as it was... There was no way forward but through the door. Outside it, Gladick opened his palm and whispered to himself. Pure white light blossomed from his grasp. He entered, and the others followed. Inside, their breathing echoed from the tight tunnel walls. It smelled damp, shot through with the scent of aquatic life and lingering decay. The tunnel forked. Gladick glanced down each branch before continuing to the left. He'd hardly gotten ten feet before the labyrinth forked again. This time, the priest continued to the right, hardly breaking stride. You have this memorized, Dante said. Gladick shook his white-haired head. At the next branch, he came to a stop. Look into the nether. Where you find it, go the opposite. Why? Because you think it's a sign of evil? Because down that path, things have died. The priest moved onward into the gloom, sandals scattering a pile of small bones. The Drake Bane betrayed me. He and his people will have departed, taking their boats with them. Yet we hid another canoe for just such a situation as ours. If it remains, you may employ it. Blaze grunted. How gracious of you to bravely use us to save your own skin. Just as you always have, you mistake me. This is not about my own life. So, after devoting your golden years to murdering heretics, your enemies, and especially us, you suddenly want to save our skins? Correct. For I believe you are the only ones who might slow the White Lich's progress. Slow him? Don't you mean stop him? 
Gladick made a creaking noise that might have been a laugh. You scatter words like bait on the surface of a lake, but I use each one as I mean it. To slow him is the best that you can hope. Blaze was quiet for a moment. If you don't think we can kill him, then what's the point? To allow the world a few more months of innocence before it is consumed. At the next intersection, Gladick took the right path, only to stop a few feet into it, murmur something under his breath, and backtrack. Down a side tunnel, Dante thought he heard breathing in the darkness. He told himself it was merely an echo. Light shined ahead. After the black halls of the labyrinth, it burned like white-hot metal. Yet it was nothing more than the overcast sunlight of the day. They stopped outside the exit to let their eyes adjust. The land before them ramped down to the rust-colored waters of the deepest swamp. At the boundary, a large canoe waited beside the white bank. That is my vessel, Gladick said. Blaze strode forward. I don't care if it's the boat waiting to ferry Lyle's blessed ghost up to double heaven. We're taking it. As elsewhere, in the wound, the ground was scattered with spindly, tree-like white structures, ranging from two to eight feet tall. Before, Dante had taken them for a bizarre form of stalagmite. After hearing Gladick's claim about the overflow of nether in the wound, however, it looked as though the earth was sprouting bones. These provided decent cover, yet the way ahead looked quiet and clear. Dante jogged after Blaze. Halfway toward the boat, two shadows darted along the shore, far too agile for their size. Long claws sent grit scattering across the ground. The creatures came to a stop directly in front of the canoe. Both had the height of a full-grown wolf, perhaps closer to that of a mule. But now that they were closer, Dante saw why they had appeared so slender. Rather than animals of living flesh, the two creatures were made of naked bone the same as when he reanimated a rat to scout for him. Rather than being white or yellowed, these bones were black. He reached toward them with his mind. They've been reinforced somehow, like the swamp dragons. They'll be toughened against our swords. Blaze drew his odosaine blades. Purple-black nether shot along their lengths, swirling like lightning. Bad move on their part. That only means it'll hurt more. The Aedan Dane has forged these animals into weapons, Gladick said. Don't let arrogance blind you to their danger. Blaze rolled his eyes and advanced, angling to the right of the two undead beasts that were cutting them off from the canoe. Dante drew his sword, jerking at the twitch from deep inside his spine. Nether flowed along the steel. He moved to Blazer's left flank. Wordlessly, Naran unsheathed the sword he'd looted out of one of the fallen knights and closed ranks. Look out! Volo pointed uphill. There, two more of the creatures had appeared on the ridge. They held position, as still as statues, 
before springing downhill with frightening speed. Quickly now, Blaze bent his knees, before they catch us in the back. He charged the nearer of the first pair of animals. It skipped to its right. Dante pressed forward, driving it back toward Blaze. Naren cried out, throwing himself toward Dante. Dante had only turned his back to the other beast for the briefest moment, but it had closed the distance between them with a single bound. Naren smacked into his side, driving him to the ground the instant before the animal soared over him. It reached for him with its scything claws, inches away. At the shore, Blaze swiped at the first of the creatures with both swords. It dodged most of his attacks like it was made of smoke. The few strikes that connected made a dull thwacking noise. Volo stuck close to Gladick, brandishing her short, heavy-handled dagger. From her posture, she seemed to understand it would do little good against the bony monsters. Stiff from their battle with the white lich, Dante shoved himself to his feet. The beast that had flung itself at him had already come about and was lashing at Naren with its claws, skipping from side to side with the twitchiness of a wasp. Naren shuffled forward and took a backhand swipe at its neck. The creature tucked its front paws beneath it, the sword chipping into its shoulder blade as it rolled toward him. As soon as it got its feet beneath it, it exploded toward Naren. The captain fell back, hacking at the animal's face and landing a glancing blow on its bony cheek, sending up a puff of bone powder. The creature sailed forward, plowing into Naren's shoulder. He collapsed under its unholy strength. Dante was already charging forward, slamming his nether-wrapped blade into the beast's springy, naked spine. The blow landed with a dry crack, jolting up Dante's arm. A black chip spun away. The undead creature lashed out at Dante, claws gouging his forearm, and bounded backward. Naren hauled himself to his feet. He was bleeding from three parallel slashes across his left shoulder. Are we so much as hurting them? Try for their joints, Dante said. They don't bleed, but we can whittle them down. Dazzling light spewed to his left. Gladig faced down both of the animals that were charging from uphill, blasting them with streams of ether like symmetrical storms of lightning. Shadows steamed and sizzled away from the creature's bones, but still they ran on, leaping from rock to rock. Gladig stood firm, sheltering Volo behind him, showing no intention of trying to run. He didn't look scared, just a little bit sad, as if hearing of the death of an old lover he hadn't spoken to since he was young. The ether flared so brightly, Dante had to shield his eyes. The lead creature tossed its head and peeled to the side. The second dropped into a crouch and sprung, claws reaching for the old man. Shadows swept to Gladick's hands. He planted his feet and sent a flood of nether coursing toward the oncoming monster. It disappeared into a cloud of darkness, crying out with a metallic, trumpet-like squall. Gladick dropped to the side, kneeling in his plain grey robe. The creature tumbled past him, emerging from the shadows, clawing out to all sides to try to arrest its skid. Sections of its black bone had been scoured white. An object bounced downhill toward Dante. It landed a few feet away. A severed, bony paw, claws gnarled tight. The ankle 
however, was all wrong. Rather than being slender, it was wide. Knobby. If anything, it looked like a vertebra. Naren called out in defiance, blocking a swipe of a claw with his sword. Dante ran to join him. They stood shoulder to shoulder, fending off one attack after another, but the creature was so quick they rarely had the chance to counter. To Dante's right, Blaze was holding his own against the other scout that had cut them off from the boat. Inch by inch, he pushed his opponent toward the shore, but other than a few white chips cut out from its bones, the construct had suffered little appreciable damage. Dante frowned, examining the one he and Naren were doing their best to contain. As a whole, its skeleton looked like no other animal he'd seen. But that was because no such creature existed. Rather, it had been forged from the bones of several different animals, the paws and claws of bears, the spine of some great cat, the strong snout and fangs of a massive wolf. As far as he knew, such a thing should be impossible. When he reanimated a dead creature, he could only do so because the nether in the animal was already in sympathy with every other part of itself. Cobbling together multiple pieces from other animals, even of the same species, shouldn't result in anything more than an inert jumble of bones. The beast drove forward, pushing him and Naren back in a frantic scrabble. Light and darkness shimmered where Gladick did battle with the other pair, but the energies were already dimming. Gladick had spent most of his powers fighting the White Lich. Soon, they'd be left with no sorcery whatsoever. As Dante and Naren battled the monster back, Dante examined its long, sinuous spine. The vertebrae in its ankle couldn't be a mere artistic quirk. Not when the ethereal trace, the dark soul of the body, was contained somewhere within the spine, a fact Dante had only revealed during their trip to the battle at the Wound of the World. Physically, the creature's spine showed no signs of irregularity. Frowning, Dante delved into the nether. The shadows within its vertebrae seemed normal as well. After another exchange, the beast skipped back, favoring its front left paw. Naren pressed in on it, seeking to exploit their advantage. The beast tightened its fleshless jaws in something eerily like a smile, and reversed course toward Naren. He thrust forth his sword. It clipped through the animal's ribs, sending chips of bone to all sides as the whirling nether discharged itself. But the beast kept onward, clawing at Naren's arm. He cried out and dropped his blade. Before Dante could close on them, the animal raised its other paw high into the air and smashed its claws down through Naren's chest. Naren collapsed in a gout of blood. The creature opened its jaws to crush the captain's skull. Dante hammered his blade into the side of its head, sending small cracks webbing from its eye socket. The animal whirled away. As it dashed past him, Dante offered a clumsy swipe at its backside. The strike wouldn't do more than annoy the creature. Yet it jerked its hips away as if he were about to plunge his weapon into its heart. As it flashed past, he got his first good look at its tail. 
Rather than being the typical streamlined extension of the spine that you saw in rats and dogs and so forth, the tailbones of the amalgamated beast were a short jumble of delicate bones that appeared taken from the ankles, feet, and toes. The tails! Dante yelled. Hit them in the tails! He sprinted after the retreating beast. It broke into a headlong run, opening ground between itself and him. Along the shore, Blaze battered at his foe, pushing it toward the water until it was obliged to turn ninety degrees and break into a gallop in an attempt to peel away from the banks. As soon as it pivoted, Blaze flicked his sword at its backside. The ethereal blade bit into the monster's tail, sending small bones flying in all directions. The animal arched its back and tumbled into its component bones. Nether flowed away and vanished into nothing. As usual, Lay said, when all else fails, stab them in the ass. Up the slope, Gladick had already reduced one of the beasts into a mangled heap that was currently dragging itself away through the crooked white pillars. The priest sent a savage blast of nether toward the remaining creature's tail, followed right after by a strike of ether. The twin forces pummeled into the animal's hindquarters and blasted the beast apart. Dante jogged after his opponent, giving Blaze the chance to catch up. The construct stared at them with its eyeless pits, then turned around and scampered up the hillside as fast as it could. Dante sheathed his sword and ran back to Naran. The captain lay on his back, blood streaming from deep slashes that ran from his chest to his gut. His breathing was rapid and shallow, blood leaking from the corners of his mouth. He blinked continuously. Wary of depleting even another drop of his own trace, Dante reached for the ether. A pinprick of light appeared on his finger, then faded slowly to nothing, like a ship's lantern carried off into the night. He'd spent all of it earlier, too. Naren! Blaze flung himself down beside the captain, grabbing his shoulder. They're going to be all right. Do you hear me? Naren rolled his eyes to take in Blaze. A cold shudder ran down Dante's body. He grabbed at the nether around him, trying to force some last shreds to his command. But it slipped from his grasp like mist. Vola ran up beside them, teary-eyed. Gladick walked along in her wake. The priest gazed down on the dying man, as if deciding which slice of beef to toss into the pan. He braced his hand on his thigh and lowered himself to his knees. A halo of clear light coalesced around his hands. The glow stretched into beams, shaping a cage of light around Naren's body. The cage contracted around the captain's chest wound, filling the gashes with a substance like sunshine reflecting from calm water. The ether dimmed to a translucent, gelatinous state. The gashes grew opaque, vague hints of striation within them. Then coalesced into ghostly muscle and skin. The outer layers hardened until the organs and bones beneath them were little more than murky shapes. After another moment, 
His skin was unbroken beneath the long slashes cut through his jabat. Naren coughed, spewing blood. He inhaled with a long gasp, then bucked upright, slapping his palms on the stony ground. He will live, Gladick declared. We should go. Dante and Blaze pulled Naren to his feet. Gladick walked to the canoe and settled in its rear. Volo untied its lines and produced a pair of paddles. Bracing the shaky captain's arms over their shoulders, Dante and Blaze helped him totter to the canoe and climb inside. They followed him in and shoved off, Volo taking the lead, Blaze paddling behind her. How did you know to strike them in the tails? Gladick asked, his voice barely more than a monotone. They were composed of several different animals, Dante said. That shouldn't have been possible. Not unless some higher magic was holding them together. When I saw a vertebra where it shouldn't be, that made me think of traces. Traces? The deep nether left behind by death. It's housed in the spine. I figured the lich might have found some way to mix up multiple skeletons and fuse them together using their traces, but their spines looked to be from a single animal. But the tails weren't. They were all jumbled up. Cunningly wrought. In seeking to destroy them, one would seek the head, the neck, perhaps the ribcage. The tail, however, would be the last place one would think to strike. Fascinating, Blaze said. Now that you've cracked this mystery, how about you two geniuses put your big brains toward getting us away from this hideous place that keeps trying to kill us? Volo consulted with Gladick regarding their current location, and the closest alternative that might not be so full of the Aiden Rane's horrors. No matter how hard they paddled, the white bulge of the wound loomed behind them, ruling over the top of the pale, ghastly trees, as if it meant to follow them to the ends of the earth. There's nothing on me, is there? Blaze turned in a half circle, tugging at his tunic for a better look at his back. No spiders, or ticks, or spider ticks that can build webs inside you and suck your organs dry like flies. Dante eyed him. Why would you be worried about parasites? Everything in this place is dead. First of all, it's always a good time to be worried about parasites. Second, we just escaped from a guy who murdered several Andrak like they were mice in his pantry, while assailing us with hundreds of not-zombies. Then he capped off the day by harrying us with skeletal monsters whose existence you thought to be impossible until the moment they started clawing you to bits. Forgive me for being concerned the lich might have planted something smaller on us. There are no vermin on you. I'm more worried about there being vermin in me. You use nasty things to spy on people all the time. You think that bastard can't do the same? Suddenly alarmed, Dante tucked into the nether, running a quick check of the shadows within Blaze, to confirm he wasn't harboring anything alien. When nothing showed up in Blaze, Dante made a quick pass of the others and their surroundings on the small island, where they'd finally tucked in after hours of paddling through the swamp. 
I don't see anything. Dante raised an eyebrow at Gladick. Do you? The priest shook his head. Nothing. Then we're free of him, Blaze said. So that means I'm safe to shout as loudly as I can. Why are we still traveling with someone who tried to slaughter the entire Colin Basin? His words hung and died in the still, damp air. Stiff and sore from the day's exertions, Dante seated himself on a white rock. You just saw why. Because something strange and disturbing just came out of nowhere to muck up our plans. What else is new? We've never seen anything like this before. We can't throw away our resources just because we don't like how they smell. Resources? Is that your new word for bloodthirsty maniac? Have you forgotten the cave in Colin? The one we found after we drove him out of the city? I never will, Dante said softly. But we're the ones who stopped him and the Drakebane from destroying the White Lich. I'm afraid that if we don't learn what this thing is, and what it intends to do, what we saw in the cavern will be seen all across this land. Blaze stared at him, then spread his arms at Neron. Surely you don't think this is a good idea? Neron seated himself on the ground. His face, normally a glowingly sun-burnished brown, was still ashen from the encounter with the Lich's scouts. I hate him like I hate hell. But I wouldn't be poised to offer you an opinion if you hadn't healed me this very day. Right. So, one life saved, a few tens of thousands to go. Dante ran his hands through his tangled hair. The rulers of Tanara Tain were so terrified of this thing that the Drake Bane's family spent decades organizing a takeover of Malon in case they had to run from it. Volo, your friends in the Righteous Monsoon meant to use the White Lich to overthrow the Drake Bane. Did they understand exactly what they were unleashing? The girl darted a look at him, her dark Tanarian eyes haunted and burning then stared out into the swamp. They told us the Aedan Rani was the only thing that had ever beaten the Knights of Odosain, that he'd protect us with one hand and smash the Drake Bane with the other. But some of the others, those who came from the outer swamps, they said the Aedan Rani was a monster, that he'd devour us too. We laughed at them, but we were wrong. Blaze scoffed. How do you know that? Because he was trying to kill us? Did you forget the part where Gladick and his pals had been trying to murder the Lich with Star Eaters? Maybe he was pissed off and mistook us for his enemies. No, Gladick said. He will take this land. He will kill those who live here, or turn them into the blighted, the half-mad people who hide in the water. And once the swamps are his, he will devour one land after another, just as he attempted to do an age ago. That is what we were fighting to stop. And congratulations on the bang-up job. Even if you're telling the truth, 
and for once in your miserable life you're trying to do the right thing, do you really think that undoes everything else you've done? Do you believe I followed the Drake Bane into battle at the wound because I sought redemption? Gladick laughed raspily, full of bitter mirth. Why would I want redemption when I had only ever done that which was holy? Blazer's hand curled into a fist. Tell that to the colonists. The priest grimaced, his face going dark. I have failed to stop the Aiden, Rane. I have been betrayed by the Drakebane. I have seen my beloved city swallowed by his insurrection. Everything I have fought for has been a lie, and everything I held has been lost. But none of this is a more wretched torture than your self-righteous harangues. Choose what to do with me and be damned. He's right, Dante said. Time to choose. You can kill him now, or we can use his knowledge and abilities to see if we can stop what's been unleashed on the swamp. It's your call. Blaze scrunched his blonde eyebrows together. You're serious? This is my decision? Yours and Naren's. This is one of your ploys. A clever way to pressure me to give in so you can feel like we all agree to it, keeping your conscience clean. Okay, then I'll decide. Blaze swore and turned to Naren. Just say the word. I want nothing more than revenge. Face downcast, Naren closed his eyes. But then I think about the joy that lit up Captain Twill's face whenever we came to a new port. She loved seeing new places. The stranger the better. I think she would have liked Tanaratain very much. If what Gladick says is true, that this land is under siege, Twill would not have wanted to see it destroyed in her name. He placed his hand on the ground, as if needing to steady himself. Blaze worked his jaw, looking ready to spit. In a violent lunge, he picked up a rock bigger than his head. He screamed, the muscles of his arms bulging, and shot-putted the rock into the water with a titanic splash. He took three deep breaths, shoulders heaving, then turned around, face perfectly calm. Very well. We've reached a consensus. Gladick, if you'd be so kind as to brief us as to the Aiden Rane situation. The priest regarded Blaze quizzically, then made a thoughtful noise. He paced deliberately about the small and mostly bare island. There are many stories regarding the Aiden Rane. As with all such situations, most of these stories are rife with superstition and groaning with ignorance. Strip these falsehoods away, and we are left with certain stark truths. The White Lich was a great sorcerer. Drunk on his own arrogance, he crossed a line he wasn't meant to cross. And for all the vast power this granted him, 
Surely the gods cursed him. Or... Gladick stopped pacing. He stared into the bare white trees, as if he were listening for a distant whistle. He muttered to himself, then shook his head hard. Ignore what I, in my arrogance, have declared as fact, he said. I was not there to see these events myself. So how may I claim perfect wisdom over what was and what wasn't? He smiled sneeringly. This seemed to be aimed at himself, then made to fold his arms. Seeing the stump of his right elbow, he blinked in surprise. Still looking at the wound, which he'd smoothed over with ether, he went on. Three different stories are commonly told of the White Lich. The first is the story told in the court of the Drakebane. The court's priests and historians tell that the Aedan Rani began his existence as a sorcerer named Bade, in the ancient capital of Godo Hadain. Bade soon acquitted himself as perhaps the most powerful talent of his generation, yet Due to a renegade quality within his nature, he often found himself in opposition to the emperor's politics. As a consequence of his intransigence, some of which, the history claims, amounted to a hair's breadth from treason, when it came time for promotions and honors, Bade was regularly neglected, attaining a station equivalent to the head priest of a small chapel. In time, the emperor fell sick. The disease was unknown. None of his sorcerers could diagnose its cause nor cure its effects. Day by day, he wasted away from the vile corruption within his veins. In desperation, he summoned Bade to him and made a vow. If Bade could cure his sickness, the emperor would make him high priest of the land. Aid bent his powers to the task, yet was unable to reverse the disease. He ventured into the deep swamps to meditate. In the darkest night, a ball of light appeared from the trees. It whispered to him, with promises of its own. The light of life could save the emperor. It beckoned him onward, warning him that the swamps ahead were full of demons. Just as the light had foretold, the demons assailed Bade from all sides, but with each attack, he turned them back with the might of his sorcery. Mile on mile, they ventured into the wilds. At last, the light stopped before a cavern. Bade entered. Within, he found another light of such purity that his eyes overflowed with tears. So holy was its glow that he nearly turned back, believing he was too mean a creature to touch it. Yet he picked it up and departed the cave. The being that had guided him to the cavern praised him for his strength and bravery, then worried aloud that the light within would be wasted on a dying old man rather than a sorcerer of such grandeur. For whoever received the light would spend eternity with it.
Hearing these words, Fade remembered all of the times he had been overlooked, and he used the light upon himself. When he returned to Godo Hadain, he came to the emperor, making many false efforts to cure him. The emperor soon died. And that is when Bade revealed the power the light had imbued him with. He seized Godo Hadain, then the empire. For years he ruled with an iron fist. His power was untouchable. It was during this time that his enemies, working in secret, created the Odosain, the only force capable of neutralizing Bade's great power. When they were ready, they marched on Bade's redoubt. Yet even they could not destroy him. They could only seal him within the real ace, the iron prison. And there it was that, just as the glowing guide had promised him, Bade would spend eternity with his forbidden light. Gladig fell silent. Dante's eyebrows were lifted so high they felt in danger of disappearing up his scalp. Does that remind you of anything? Gladick smiled wryly. A garbled version of your northern heresy. You mean the heresy your entire faith is founded on? A heresy which our faith corrects while yours, unable to cope with the betrayal of your dark lord, continues to worship a devil as your first god. Will you two shut up and tell us what this means? Blaze said. Aron had a forbidden light of his own, Dante said. But instead of keeping it from the lowly humans, like the other gods wanted, he smuggled it to Carvajal, his half-brother, to bring down to earth and kindle the fire for humanity. But in his vanity, Carvajal locked Aron away in the starry vault, so he'd get all the credit for himself. So what are you saying? The Tenarians are filthy plagiarists? Exactly. If so, I don't think much of this story can be true. Most likely, it's propaganda ginned up by the Drakebane dynasty to cover their own crimes by dressing them up in the legitimacy of our faith. There is another option, Gladick said. Perhaps our faiths are stolen from them. Ha ha. You position yourself as such a liberal truth-seeker, yet you reject out of hand the possibility your chosen faith might not be the oldest. Dante drew himself up. How long ago did Bade rule? The history places the date eight hundred years in the past. Then we know our stories are older. In the lands of Wesley, their faith is also a branch of Narashtovik's, and they've been cut off from us for a thousand years. Gladick waved his intact hand. I would not place so much importance on the date in the Tarnarian story. It is almost surely false. Their lords have outlawed writing among the commoners, so that they might have control of their history, which they see as a tool to be altered whenever it will support their present needs. Blazer's mouth fell open. Well, that violates everything I believe in. 
It is very brave of you to denounce the ruler's policies, when none of its supporters are here to hear you. However, the Drakebane's lineage does not exert such measures for the sake of mere power. They do so in order to throw down the Aedan Rane whenever he manifests. He's just popping up all the time, is he? Then what's the big deal this time? The Drakebane dynasty has dedicated itself, and in many ways, all of Tanaretain, to keeping the White Lich contained. That is why the Emperor maintains the Odosain. That is why he places such demands and taxes on his subjects. That is why all of the country is trained to think of itself as a singular body, with each person belonging to a specific part, where it is their responsibility to execute specific duties. In normal times, Gladdy continued, the Drakebane's knights keep close watch on the tomb and the lands that surround it. Whenever the Aedan Rane stirs, he is met with a vast host and is neutralized before he can muster but a portion of his awful strength. This time, however, the rebels undermined us, assisting him so that he might emerge ahead of schedule. The desperation of our situation can be seen in the fact that rather than gathering his forces to try to reclaim the capital, the Drakebane struck here instead, meaning to spend the last of his strength attempting to return the Aiden Rane to his vault. Blaze pursed his lips. I don't know if you've noticed this, but our friend Dante here spends more time reading than he does breathing. If there's been a world-saving battle against the White Lich, and it's been going on for centuries, why hasn't he ever heard of it? For the same reason that so little else is known of Tanaretain. Such information is not allowed to pass beyond the borders. Gladick waited for more questions. When none came, he resumed pacing. If the first story I have told you is the province of the Drakebanes, you will feel no surprise to learn that those among the righteous monsoon tell a different story. Long ago, when time was fluid and the weights of justice bobbed like seeds on the tide, people lived in splintered tribes. Life was war, and war was life. Suffering was one's second skin. Silver, yes, even gold, flowed from the mines like glittering wine. But rather than passing to those who were good, who would use it to feed those who hungered and heal those who fell ill, it was hoarded by kings and tyrants who spent it on axes and pikes, raising more armies to prosecute more wars. And so, suffering became a god in itself. In their desperation, the people prayed to the gods, sacrificing what little they had, in vain hope of relief. The gods made sport of their strife. If ever they intervened, it was only to prevent the mortals from giving up all hope and lying down in despair. Yet. 
Unu, mother of islands, grew wrathful at her peers' contempt for their mortal toys. She came before Endek, the swamp wizard, and she breathed the mists of the morning into his lungs and poured the light of the righteous into his ears. Then Endek doubled in height. Then Endek's powers grew sixtyfold, and Unu sent Endek forth into the mortal lands. He slew the kings, butchered the tyrants, blasted with fire the mercenaries who robbed and raped the weak. None could so much as scratch his skin. Within a year and a day, the land had been purged and lay at peace. Those who hungered were given food. Those who wasted of illness were given medicine. All stood equal before the measures. They shed the skin of suffering. In time, their peace was so complete, they quit their tasks to lounge in freedom. Time itself mattered not. They quit their hourglasses and calendars. And then, at last, secure in their golden age, they quit their sacrifices, their offerings, their prayers. An outcry grew among the gods. Not only had they lost the sport of watching the people suffer, but they had lost all love and duty from their worshippers. Coming together, they assembled a great host and descended on Endek, champion of Unu. They battled him from the coast to the darkest marsh, from the northern hills to the southern rift. So great was Endek's sorcery that even the combined might of the gods couldn't destroy him, but they could imprison him. Hence they sheathed him in cold iron, inscribing the words of their curses upon the faces of his prison, such that his strength was made nothing. With Endek gone, some who had lived in his peace fell into corruption, pillaging their neighbors. Pillaging became conquering and then the clash of armies. Within a year minus a day, the land had fallen back into darkness and strife, and people again suffocated within their suffering. For all of the centuries, whenever Endek, the Aiden Rane, has attempted to escape his bonds, he has been beaten back. Yet among the righteous monsoon, it is told that if he can be released for good, he will restore them to their golden age. Gladick bowed his head to Volo. Do I represent your faith fairly? That's what they told us, Volo said. But they never said nothing about the way he looks at you, like you're just a crop for his harvest. So the Aden Rane were sent by the only good god to usher in a golden age of perfect peace, Dante said. That sounds even more like propaganda than the Drake Bane's version. Gladick gave a small shrug. At one time, I thought the same. But not anymore. After the treason I've witnessed on this day, 
I believe all might be lies. There's one place the stories are in accordance, Naren said. In both cases, the lich's power has come from a source of light. The natural assumption is that this refers to the ether. Gladic adjusted his grey robes, which had been soiled with blood and dirt during the fighting and escape. The final story of the Aidenrane's origin is not told in any courts. In fact, it in itself has many different versions, but each one repeats the same common themes. That long ago, a sorcerer and his wife lived with their children at the edge of the known swamp. One day, the sorcerer's wife fell ill. Over the following days, their children did as well. Though well-versed in the healing arts, the sorcerer could do nothing to reverse their worsening condition. In fear for their lives, he passed into the unknown swamp. There he sold his soul for the power to save his wife and children. Yet, when he returned to his house, all of his family had perished. Their deaths, in conjunction with the deal he struck, drove him mad. Over the next few years, children started to go missing from the villages in the hills. The village elders warned the bereaved parents to leave the matter be. In time, however, their grief proved too much. They assembled a war band and hastened into the swamps, following a trail left by the most recent of the vanished children, a trail that led them directly to the sorcerer's home. There, they found their children had been turned into pale, vicious demons. In their horror, the villagers slew the changed youths, then burned down the sorcerer's abode. This goaded the sorcerer and his demons into laying waste to the hills. The villagers had sorcerers of their own, however, and quickly a hellacious battle ensued. Yet the hill people could never destroy the sorcerer, for in the bargain he had struck in the swamp, he had been given a new body and left his old form with the demon with whom he'd done his deal. Unless the old body was destroyed, the white lich could never die. Hill by hill, the people were pushed back. At last, with no hope of defeating the white lich, they enacted the only plan that could stop him from poisoning the whole world. They destroyed their own lands, slagging them into a melted and poisonous miasma through which not even the Aiden Rane could cross. Later, the lich was imprisoned, yet the hills remained forever tainted. Dante scratched the side of his jaw. You're talking about the hell-painted hills. But that's not the story the Alabolgians tell. They say the hills were invaded by a plague of enormous pale locusts. Gladick favored him with a disdainful look. Where did you encounter such a version? The high courts of Kavana? 
Lady Vita of Aseda. She's educated and well-traveled. That is precisely your problem. On such matters, you cannot trust the tales of the nobility. What do they have to fear of what lurks in the wilds? They will warp the story to whatever suits their fancy. Rather, you must speak to the peasants. It is they who are exposed to the monsters of the outlands. They are the ones who must face the terrors of the wilds. That's why they must remember the truth. Blaze flicked a pebble into the water. I'm glad we've had this talk. I feel much safer knowing that we're basing our battle plan on state propaganda and peasants' fairy tales. Someday you will learn that scorn is no replacement for wisdom. Before or after the day when you learn that you're going straight to hell? On that front, you might not have long to wait. The old man's face twisted into something that could have been a grimace or a smile. I give the third story special credence for reasons we have already discussed. It has never been co-opted by would-be despots and warped into a shape that bolsters their cause. I believe it may contain basic truths about the Aiden Rane, including how he might be defeated. You must not think it's all true, Dante said. It claims the White Lich can't be destroyed. But you and the Drakebane were trying to do just that, weren't you? The Drakebane believed that the Lich's time in captivity will have significantly weakened him. It was thought that with the Orosain present to dispel the enemy's sorcery, they and the Andrak might be able to cut him down and bring him to his final death. But we underestimated the aid the monsoon had provided him. You are aware of the Blighted? If I knew anything about these matters, you'd be too busy, tending to the blaze-shaped sword wound in your throat, to answer our questions. Gladick stared at him a moment, then puffed his cheeks with wry laughter. When the Aedan Rane emerges from his prison, he is relatively weak. To restore his power, he draws humans to him and drinks some vital essence within them. This corrupting process also enslaves them to his will. The resulting product is known as the Blighted, the pale people who hide beneath the water. The rebels had already smuggled many souls to him before today. Hadn't they, girl? Volo's jaw trembled. They were captives taken from the Drakebane soldiers. They said they were being taken to a prison in the deep swamps, where the Drakebane couldn't turn them free. Some were soldiers, yes, but they needed more bodies than that. Many were innocent villagers whose deaths your leaders then blamed on us. It is amusing the crimes a good man will commit when he is convinced that he is the saviour and that his enemies are devils. I expect you could write several books on that one, Blaze said. So the White Lich is more powerful than you anticipated he'd be at this stage. Dante rattled off, 
doing his best to wrestle the conversation back to a productive arena. How then do we stand against him? Gladick gave one of his shrugs. We do not. To fight him directly would be to shed our blood on his altar. To fight him directly? There's an alternative. The key lies in the third story of his creation. The villagers of the hills were unable to destroy the Aiden Rane because they were fighting his avatar rather than his true form. The body he abandoned to become the lich. You might dismiss this story as a fairy tale, yet for all the Drakebane dynasty's strength and preparation, they have never been able to finally destroy the Aiden Rane. Blaze squinted. The Drakebane dynasty does a lot of sister marrying, do they? Gladick gave him a disgusted look. Why would you reach such foul assumptions? Say you're right, and the only way to kill this fellow is to kill his original body. If the Drakebanes have spent hundreds of years trying to kill his new body, they must be completely God's damned inbred. I am not the first to suggest a search for his original body. Previous attempts have never been able to so much as prove its existence. The Drakebane believed that I was wrong, and that, even if I was right, we would not have time to track his first body down. Dante stood from the rock he'd been seated on. That's your proposal. Find and destroy his first body. Gladick nodded once. We have no allies to draw on, no armies to summon. We lack the strength to battle the White Lich himself. The same might not be true of his frail, mortal heart. What happens if we can't stop him? Then he will convert more and more Tarnarians into the Blighted, expanding both his army and his personal power with each step. Once this nation is fully under his sway, he will take the next, and each after it in turn. That has always been his goal. To the west, the sun was nearly extinguished behind the clouds and leafless white trees. The others looked tired, anxious. Dante had no doubts that he looked as bad. That might have been the only thing that they all had in common. He was a former Malisher, but had spent the last half of his life as a priest in Narashtavik. Blaze had also come from Malin, but had the look of a coloner, and now split his days between Narashtavik and Pocket Cove. Naran was a merchant and sometimes pirate, descended from those in the far south. Volo was a young woman from these forbidden swamps, just yesterday, an eager rebel, she seemed to have wholly turned on her former cause. And Gladick, an old man from the highest echelons of the Brazilian priesthood, who Dante would joyfully have murdered just a few hours earlier, and who now claimed to be fighting against an evil far greater than anything Gladick himself had ever dreamed of. It was a very odd group but it had the potential to be a very effective one. 
We could walk away and hope you're wrong about his goals, Dante said. But you could also be wrong about the extent of the Lich's power. Which means we might have the strength to stop him. And if he is right, Naran said bitterly, then no one else will have a second chance. Volo nodded. Blaze tilted back his head, then did the same. For a moment, Dante wished they'd insisted on leaving. Okay, then. How do we find the Lich's mortal body? Gladick gave a small, sinewy smile. It was my hope that you might provide answers to that. Until ten minutes ago, I didn't know he had a mortal body. If you're depending on me for answers, then we could save ourselves a lot of trouble by stabbing ourselves right now and sparing the lich the hassle. Perhaps you already possess knowledge, yet are unaware. Tell me the details of your encounter with the lich. Dante launched into as comprehensive an account of their battle as he could provide. The others pitched in with observations of their own. Gladick showed no emotion until the end, when Dante described how he had yanked up the solid iron ground and trapped the white lich inside it. Now that was a clever solution. Gladick frowned at him. How have you learned to command the earth like that? Wouldn't you like to know, Dante said. It didn't imprison him for long, though. He'd gotten free by the time we'd escaped. The walls of the rear lace are treated with great magic. Mundane iron would only hold him for a short time. Why iron? I do not know. But its need here is why none is to be found elsewhere in Tanaratane. Gladick swayed, then seemed to swoon, seating himself heavily on the bare ground. Dante took a step toward him, fearing his injury had finally overwhelmed him. But the old man pressed his gnarled hand to his face, shaking his head slowly. Nothing you have told me is of any use. Even if the first body is real, we will have no more chance of finding it than any of the others who have tried. Blaze gawked at Dante, then at the old man. You suggested it. Why couldn't you have given up this fast when you were putting thousands of people to death on the Colin Basin? You think this is sudden? I have spent months thinking on this matter. I have dissected and discarded every way in which I might find the Aiden Rane's first form. In my delusion, I thought your encounter with him would provide the solution. You son of a bitch! Were all your promises of help just a trick to get us to ferry you away from danger? Why does the mind betray us so? Why does it ever lift our hopes only to torture us anew? Gladick's eyes went wide with shock. We assume the gods gave us consciousness as a gift. But what if it was punishment? Blaze moved his hand to the hilt of his sword. Then I'll be happy to rescind your sentence. I was wrong to let my delusions infect you as well. Flee from here. Flee and hide and live out however few days are left to be lived. Dante gritted his teeth 
Will you stop your stupid whining? You might have run out of options, but you're looking at the kings of bad ideas. We haven't even started to get dumb yet. Correct. Blaze dropped his hand from his weapon, smiling a little as he walked about the island. Shall we start being stupid? Do you suppose the White Lich ever goes back to visit his first body? Why would he do that? To say hello? To gossip about his latest plans to swallow up the world? Returning would only leave him vulnerable to being followed. He's got to keep it locked up somewhere, right? If your heart was a separate entity from your body, you wouldn't let it just wander around unsupervised. But if it's still in some sense mortal, it would need food and water. Someone must be caring for it. Or some thing. Blaze pursed his lips. If all the body needs is an occasional sip and nibble, it would only require a servant or two. Are the blighted competent enough to handle something like that? After a moment, Gladick realized he was being asked a question. The blighted retain enough intelligence to perform such a task, and their loyalty to the Aedan Rane is perfect. They would never betray him, nor fail to do their duty. So this whole thing could be operating out of a single shanty in the middle of nowhere. Meaning it could take us years to find, Dante said. And considering the Drake Bane's people have been looking for centuries, I wouldn't count on us finding it through traditional means. Blaze sniffed, wiping his nose with the back of his hand. He paused then, staring at whatever he'd smeared onto his hand, as if it held great secrets. The lich bleeds. I don't remember that. And I got an awfully close look at him as he was pounding us all into the ground. All right, he doesn't bleed blood, but when you cut him, his wounds exude a substance us non-liches might equate with blood. That's quite liquid. Dante drew back his head. You think we can track it? Assuming it's got any connection to his first body, and just as a reminder, assuming that this first body even exists, it'd be slightly easier than searching every square inch of swamp. Easy enough to find out. Suppose we've got any of his blood left on our swords. Gladick had been sitting cross-legged, head bowed and shoulders slumped. Now he lifted his chin, eyes gleaming faintly. What do you mean? Are you hounds that his blood might lead you to his other body? Dante laughed. You don't know about blood tracking. What kind of sorcerer are you? It's very easy to be as learned as you when you belong to an institution of heathenous warlocks. When one must learn on one's own. Every step is a struggle. You're the reason people in Melon can't learn the nether in the first place. I'm but a drop amongst the ocean. Even if I favoured permitting the study of the shadows, if I were to express such beliefs, my reward would be my execution. Do you favour letting your people learn the nether? Gladick's eyes tracked across the landscape. 
I no longer know what I believe, and it no longer matters. Bressel has fallen to the Drake Bane's conspiracy, and is under his law now. Blaze tipped back his head. Can we discuss Bressel's theological policy after we heroically save Tanaratane? All of the blood in your body shares an ethereal connection to itself, Dante said, spreading his hands as if to trace a net. If you have one drop of someone's blood, you can follow the nether in it to the rest of it. We're talking about doing the same to the white lich. Everyone, check your weapons. They drew their swords. The Odosain blades circled with sinuous patterns of nether. Seeing no stains on his weapon, Dante delved into the nether, searching for specks of it glommed onto the steel, but found nothing out of place. He inspected the other's swords to similar results. But we cut him, Naren said. All of us saw it. Dante pressed his knuckles to his forehead. It isn't the same blood that you and I have. It could have boiled away, melted into the ether, or maybe our swords drank it up. Doesn't matter, really. It surely does, Gladick said. If the blood is unstable, then even if we were to acquire a fresh sample, it would vanish before we were able to use it to locate the prime body. Dante swore, sensing the whole idea was about to go up in smoke. But there was an obvious test. He set his blade against the pad of his left pinky finger. Gently, even a touch of the Odosine weapon was enough to open a deep cut spilling blood onto the steel. He withdrew his wounded hand. The blood rested on the steel. Dante continued to watch. At last, the droplets started to shrink. Within a minute, they had vanished completely, absorbed by the whirling nether of the sword. That's a relief, Blaze said. If we can be reasonably sure the Lich's blood doesn't just spontaneously disappear, then our only problems are everything else that's wrong with this plan. Volo tossed a small rock to herself. Like how to get blood out of the Aedan Rane without getting added to the Blighted. I propose one of you fights him. A good knock on the nose should have him bleeding like any other man. All right. Dante said, then you can hold the jar under him. Gladick made a murmuring sound. We will have to find another way. To fight him directly would mean death. They tossed forth one idea after another, only for each one to be battered down. The sun died away, leaving them in the perfect stillness of the lifeless night. The only motion the twinkle of the stars overhead. In the middle of their discussion, Dante realized Volo was snoring. That looks like the best idea anyone's had all day. Blaze stretched his arms over his head. What say we figure out how to stop the unspeakable darkness once we're not so damn tired? They drew up a watch schedule. Before bedding down, 
Blaze took Dante with him to make a quick check of the island's perimeter. Blaze weaved through the pale trees, dropping his voice about as far as it would go. Are we really going to do this? Stop the mad sorcerer from turning everyone in Tanaritain into living zombies? Do you know what I mean? Dante was quiet for a moment. We'll work with him until the threat is under control. Then we'll see he gets the justice he deserves. You swear to me. You've got my word. Blaze nodded, looking satisfied. Also, it's your responsibility to make sure he doesn't murder us in our sleep. They finished their circuit of the island, then rejoined the others in the center, where the spindly trees were just dense enough to conceal them. Dante took first watch, but even when his turn was done, he slept lightly, keeping hold of the nether like it was a dagger under his pillow, jerking awake at every flicker of shadows, real or imagined. Once, he woke to the sound of Gladick muttering to himself, but the old man was dead asleep. Dante awoke with a start. He felt as though he'd been asleep for some time. To the east, the first hints of light shaded the sky in dark gray. Volo was gone. She had last watch, but so was Gladick. Dante stood, gazing into the darkness, a cold sweat clamming his skin. He walked quickly to the water's edge. The swamp of the Gokaza was as silent as ever. Dante drew his antler-handled knife, ready to lay open the back of his arm, and moved through the trees. Ahead, Gladick crouched by the water's edge, washing what remained of his right arm. He'd healed the stump until it was as smooth as sanded wood. Seeing Dante, he rushed to tuck his stump against his chest and cover it with his robes. He stopped himself, mouth crooked in contempt. Absurdly, Dante felt a twinge of guilt. Did you try to regrow it? It would likely have been too late but that wasn't worth finding out. Better to leave it as it is, so that I will always be reminded of the price of self-deceit. Alternately, you could write yourself a note on the matter. Dante motioned to the water. All clear. I would not make that assumption at this time. Yet sleep has aided my clarity of mind. I know a way to get the Aedan Rane's blood. I will send the Andrak to assault him. They'll be able to last long enough to escape. If they strike with surprise and flee as soon as their claws are blooded, perhaps. Dante rubbed grit from the corner of his eye. Why don't we create a whole army of demons? Rip them apart with sheer numbers. We? I figured out how to make them for myself. That's how we were able to learn how to destroy them. I wondered. Gladick sounded as if they were discussing an inn he used to favor on his travels, but which had closed up shop twenty years ago. Each time you raise an Andrak, it takes something from within you. Something that is 
slow to recover. Even a sorcerer of vast power may control no more than a handful at a time. After my expenditure yesterday, I won't be able to summon more than one or two for some time. Could I create enough to destroy him? The priest looked him up and down. Perhaps if we had been working in concert the moment of his release, now he will already be too strong especially as we lack the Odosain's ability to neuter his sorcery. What if we could do it? But you fear him too much to try. If you believe that, then I can guarantee that you do not fear him enough. They ate dried fish for breakfast, which Dante was getting extremely sick of, and loaded into the canoe. Volo struck northeast, back in the direction of the wound. It was warmer than the day before, more humid, and sweat soon slipped down the back of her neck. Blaze took up the other paddle, speeding them along through the lifeless and phantasmagoric reaches of the swamp. Taking in the bony white trees and blood-red water, Dante glanced back at Gladick. How did you ever get involved here in the first place? Pursuing the Andrak? Correct. How'd you hear about them? We had to dig through the archives of both Narashtovic and Colin. Even then, they barely had more than a few scraps of information. Gashan's blood, Gladick muttered. I knew the Colin Basin maintained hidden archives. Where do they keep them? In Malish temples, Blay said. Better go burn them down. I ask only from curiosity. The Colin Basin means nothing to me now. It was under the Drake Bane's advice that I sought to purify it. Dante grunted. To clear it out, you mean? Suppose he wanted to secure a safe place for his people to move to, in case the White Lich broke free. It would have been much less costly and messy. Yet, when that plan fell through... He executed his plan in Bressel instead. As for the Andrak, I located the information I required within the lore of the Shrouded Hand. The Shrouded Hand? The institution that even now has spies in Narashtovic. Don't tell me you are unaware. That's a matter for my chief of espionage. Anyway, we were a little more concerned with rooting out spies from the Gascon Empire to care about Malin. And what of the decades since your war with Gask? Gladick rolled back his eyes. How can someone as oblivious as you have defeated me? Blaze shrugged. The gods must think you're a jerk and seek to help us. I expect they do believe that of me. But if you believe they care anything for you, I can only pray they will wait to punish you for your hubris until after we're done working together. Gladick moved on, while Blaze was still mid-snort. The Shrouded Hand keeps watch on all of the heretics that surround Malin, Gask, Narashtovic, the Colin Basin, and lands far beyond these. Additionally, they keep records of your atrocities and the dark magics through which you discharge them. Dante perked up his ears. You 
catalogue our abilities. I thought studying the nether was the sort of thing that earned your body a burial in Wetton and your head a grave in Brussels. Its study is banished from all common use, yes. Only those who prove themselves beyond corruption are allowed access to the forbidden materials of the hand. Gladick laughed raucously, the sound hanging in the damp air. An incorruptible person! What a contradiction of terms. Since such people do not exist, the hand's rules guarantee that it is staffed by those who are happy to lie about being beyond corruption. Hence their insistence on purity only makes them more impure. Pretty ironic, all right. Why do they study us? So you can hone your ability to fight our sorcerers? That is a part of it. Another part is so that we will be aware of what your corruption looks like before it can taint us. Regardless, we wander from the original question. Within the hand's records were accounts of invincible demons from the swamps of Tanaratain. Through deft negotiations, I acquired an audience with one of the Drakebane's secretaries, and then with the Drakebane himself. We struck a bargain. He was allowed access to certain resources in Bressel, things that seemed harmless at the time, but were vital to his coup. And I was allowed access to his priests. They had forgotten how to give life to the Andrak themselves. Even their stories of the demon's origin were confused. Some said they were created to wage war on the Aiden Rane while others claimed they were soldiers of the Aiden Rani. Yet from their disparate lore and tales, I was able to scrape the grime from the window of truth and reveal the lost secrets of how the Andrak were made. You should be very proud of yourself, Lay said. It isn't often you get to take a piece of scholarship and turn it into a war crime. Condemn me as you will. Yet it is through these efforts that I came to know the Drakebane, and to assist him against the White Lich. If not for my quest, you would already be dead by the Lich's cold hands. They glided onward. The clouds held position overhead, muting the sun. Dante kept his eyes on the water. While they were still at least three miles away from the wound, a pale face broke the surface, staring angrily. Dante cried out and struck it down with a lash of nether. He leaned over the gunwale, hunting for more. The white lich makes the blighted. Can he see through their eyes? Behind him, he felt Gladig extend his perception into the nether in the water. It is possible. Don't you think that might have been a good thing to mention before we blundered into this enormous spy network? It is possible. Blaze thrust out his arm toward another blighted, snarling at them from the water. He looks unpleasant, but you suppose he'd warm up if we invited him over for tea? He was only halfway through his words by the time Dante and Gladick had each flung a sorcerous bolt, one nether and one ether. They crashed into the blighted, sending blood hissing into the water. The body keeled over backwards, 
and landed with a foamy crash. Blaze and Volo paddled hard, bringing them up against the flank of an island. Dante swiveled his head, watching for any disruption of the water's surface. There's only going to be more of them the closer we get to the wound. If just one of them signals the white lich, he'll be waiting for us. Gladick rubbed his hand up and down his jaw. I should have expected him to move this quickly. Yet, if we don't press on now, he will only have more time to strengthen himself. You said this will only work if we have the element of surprise. What's the point of pressing on if we're doomed to fail? Because there remains a chance that we won't. Gladick pounded his fist on his thigh. But rather than punctuating his defiance, the gesture seemed to deflate it. Why are we ever compelled to lie to ourselves? If we attempt to sneak forward, he will surely be caught. If we slaughter every blighted we see, we will only declare ourselves more loudly. There is no winning. We might as well wage war on the sky. They were all silent for a moment. Softly, Volo said, Maybe we should leave. So what if he takes Tanaritain? The monsoon already owns the country. And the Aedan Rani owns the monsoon. There is no land to where we might flee that- He won't come to gut us like perch. Yeah, I get that. What I don't get is, if it's all so inevitable, why not go enjoy whatever time we've got left? We could sail the seas, Naren mused. They are much larger than the earthly world. Let him try to catch us when we travel with the winds. Blaze shot them all a look of contempt. Haven't any of you ever burgled a manor before? Or been forbidden from seeing a nobleman's daughter? You don't come to the front door dressed as yourself. Gladick, these blighted things, just how smart are they? They can obey simple commands, but they are barely capable of wielding weapons. So most of them are as dumb as a wet shoe. If your shoe possessed a primal desire to separate you from your limbs. Right. Then all Dante has to do is disguise us. With illusions, Dante said. With your world-renowned dressmaking skills. Although, yes, it might be a bit faster to snap your fingers and make us look like a log. We'd have to travel at a most unlog-like speed. I won't be able to sustain the illusion for too long. Gladick moved his finger across the air as if underlining invisible words. Then I will forge the Andrak now. It has no need for air and may travel along beneath us. How will you find the traces out here? Why, I suppose that I shall look for them. The priest instructed them to move on. Volo and Blaze steered them through the small rocky islands and the grasping white branches of half-submerged trees. Dante's heart beat steadily as he searched the surroundings for any glimpse of ripples or pale faces. There! Gladick pointed to an island to port. Let us make landfall. They pulled up beside the island. Debarking from a canoe onto higher ground wasn't the easiest task in the world, but Gladick stepped out as lightly as a sailor a third of his age. Whispering to himself under his breath, 
He bent over, passing his hand a few inches above the ground. He made an irregular circuit, then came to a stop. He bowed his head. Light shined from his left hand, then winked off. The air around him darkened as if the sun was falling into an eclipse. Nether dashed about like angry black wasps. These slowed, dancing gracefully, then converged on a single point and disappeared. While Dante was still trying to figure out what in the world Gladick was doing, a tube of shadows coalesced eight feet above the ground, extended horizontally, and unfurled into an andrak. The Star Eater opened its mouth and hissed like water poured on embers. Within its throat, light shined like the purest ether. How did you know where the traces were? Dante said. And for that matter, how did you illuminate them? Gladick cranked his head around. How do you do it? With a hell of a lot more difficulty than that. The old man smiled smugly. Perhaps I shall tell you that when you tell me the secrets of how you have learned to fight them. So you can figure out how to make it so I can't kill them. Such knowledge might also aid our plight against the Aedan Rani. We'll see about that, if we can find the prime body. Across from them, the towering demon flexed its claws. It looked potent enough, but compared to the staggering power of the lich, it no longer felt so fearsome. How loyal are they? Will it really challenge the Aedan Rane by itself? Gladick regarded the demon with a strange mixture of sadness, pride, and some deeper emotion that might have been regret. They exist to challenge, to fight, to shed blood and kill what they can. For isn't that the essence of the nether that shapes it? Not in the slightest. But isn't- Whatever it is, you're both wrong, Blay said. Now can we get on our way? Volo edged back a step. It isn't getting in the boat with us, right? Gladick motioned to the demon. It cocked its head. Still gesturing, Gladick said, Follow beneath the boat. Do not be seen. Soon you will face a great foe. The Andrak grinned, flashing its long fangs, and waded into the water, which it barely seemed to disturb. It vanished beneath the surface without so much as a bubble. Dante stared after it for a long moment, struck by the strangeness of working alongside one of the very monsters he and Blaze had shed so much blood and sweat learning to combat. He shook his head and looked up from the water. Nether lay everywhere in great heaps. He had the sudden conviction that, if the swamp were to dry up, it would reveal a bed of solid bones. He called the shadows to him, wrapping his arms in darkness. He drew them wide and lay them over the canoe, blackening out their sight. As he stretched the nether further, shaping it into the appearance of a toppled white tree trunk, it thinned out, giving them a shaded but clear view of their surroundings. 
They could see out, but the blighted wouldn't be able to see in. We are now officially a tree, Dante declared. Let's hope the blighted don't have the brains to wonder why a tree is cruising about like a hungry fish. They struck away from the island, continuing toward the wound. Dante could feel the condensed nether of the Andrak shadowing them from below. More than once, he imagined the demon launching itself from the depths and grabbing hold of their canoe, crushing it to splinters and drowning them in the waters. We will conceal ourselves a short way from the wound, Gladic said. The Andrak will go forth and make it strike. Should it survive the encounter, I believe it will be able to retreat swiftly enough to escape. With this vessel, we will be able to outpace any but the White Lich himself, and, as he is still building his strength, I doubt he would pursue us alone. Let's hope so, Lay said. Either way, I'll be paddling away like I've stolen something. That'll be a hard one for me to imagine, but I'm willing to make the effort. Two white faces appeared ahead. The blighted stared at the passing log with mild annoyance, which seemed to be the least hostile expression they could muster, then swam onward, keeping no more than their eyes above the surface. Volo headed down what turned out to be a sort of box canyon of rock and scattered bones. As she backed up, Dante kept both eyes open for a trap. They were soon speeding along again. A white hill appeared above the ghostly trees, looming like the lost shell of an enormous sea creature. The first time they'd come to it, Dante hadn't any idea what was lurking inside it. Seeing it now, he felt a cold sweat rise from his skin. A quarter mile from the rise of the wound, Gladic motioned them into the lee of an island. The Andrak surfaced beside them, head lifted in an arrogant tilt. Gladic leaned over the side of the canoe and whispered instructions. The demon bowed its head, turned away, and swam toward the high white hill, leaving barely a ripple behind it. Dante nicked the back of his arm, keeping the nether at hand. Blaze loosened his swords in their sheaths. Gladic had gone perfectly still, preparing himself to receive the ether. They waited in silence for twenty minutes. Without apparent provocation, the priest frowned, the creases around his eyes and mouth deepening by the minute. What's wrong? Dante craned his neck toward the wound. Can you see through its eyes? Gladick held up a hand for silence. He moved his mouth as if speaking, then swayed back, wincing. The wound is empty. The white lich has gone. Three. He's gone, Blaze said. Like, gone, gone. The priest nodded. The Andrak and I share a bond. The connection is dim, but the message is clear. The lich is no longer present in this place. Typical. He heard we were coming and dashed off like a coward. Dante tugged the end of his nose. 
The demon hasn't been gone more than half an hour. That wouldn't be nearly long enough to search the whole place. Our bond is not subtle enough for the Andrak to explain, Gladick said. But I assure you, its confidence is complete. Either that or it's been bewitched by the Aedan Rani and is luring us into a trap. Dante hadn't meant this as more than grumbling, but to his consternation, Gladick gave the idea serious thought. If such a thing had happened, I believe I would have felt a change in our connection. Well, tell the Andrek to keep looking. The priest nodded. They didn't talk much over the next fifteen minutes. Then Gladick raised a salt and pepper eyebrow at Dante. The Andrak is insistent that our quarry is gone. You may hang back here if you wish, but I am going in to investigate for myself. Anger flared in Dante's chest. Is that your attempt to manipulate me? Are you so ruled by your ego that you think this is about you? Young girl, I require passage to the wound, if you please. Volo glanced between them. Well, in or out? Dante clenched his teeth. Take us to the wound. Volo and Blaze paddled them onward. Though it was beginning to sap his strength, Dante maintained the illusion of the log around them. The white shell of the wound climbed higher and higher. Near its base, bodies floated lazily in the red water. But rather than being blighted, they were Tonarians in their tunic-like jabots. Some were dressed in the colors of the monsoon, but others wore the green and white of the Drakebane's men. Volo scowled at the ones that bobbed too close to the canoe, shoving them away with her paddle. She guided them to a low shelf of white stone and dropped the twine-wrapped rock that served as the vessel's anchor. Dante dispelled the illusion of the log. With the haze of nether stripped away, the overcast light felt incredibly bright. Blaze peered into a rocky canyon. Unless any of you has a thing for being murdered alone, I suggest we go in together. Gladick stepped onto the white stone with a look of visceral disgust. This place is unholy, a mockery of life. Welcome home, the priest snorted. Dante climbed out of the canoe, reaching into the nether. It waited thickly, but didn't feel particularly disturbed. Gladick strode forward, his dirty robes flowing about him. Naren glanced back at the canoe as if in longing. They entered the canyon. A naked blighted lay on the ground, his bare back gashed open. Blaze gave him a peremptory stab in the back of the neck. The body didn't so much as twitch. Their group continued to the end of the little canyon, which opened into a stretch of the reddish pools and shrub-like mineral projections that made up most of the heart of the wound. A towering dark shape flowed out in front of them. Dante startled and grabbed for the nether, but it was only the Star Eater, baring its teeth at Gladick in frustration. The demon gestured with the fluidity of the shadows of clouds, then turned and loped onward. Gladick followed it at a jog that seemed too sprightly for his advanced years. 
Then again, a deep connection to the nether or ether seemed to stretch out a person's life. Callie had made it well beyond a hundred years, and might well have lived for decades more. The Keeper had known Callie in their youth, and she was still going strong. Dante might be able to expect another century of life for himself. Assuming he wasn't devoured by an evil Tenarian demigod first. The landscape was speckled with a few bodies of both blighted and humans, but without any living people in it, it looked almost unbearably stark, even more so, in its way, than the upper heights of the Wodons, which at least looked like it belonged to the world around it. The five of them came to a ridge overlooking the bowl-shaped valley where they'd fought the White Lich. They hunkered behind cover, surveying the slopes and the central mound that held the wreckage of the iron prison of the rear lace. The bodies were more plentiful than ever, but not one of them stirred. Volo swept back her dark hair, retying it behind her head. If he's not here, then where'd he go? Gladick's eyes were hooded. It is difficult to say. You're some kind of monster person, aren't you? If you don't even know how to get to the Aiden Rane, why should we keep you around? The old priest glanced at her sharply, lips pressed into a thin line. He laughed once through his nose. Tenarian bluntness is as bracing as the strike of a cane. Under less trying circumstances, I might have come to like it. He considered the valley. A low wind picked up, hissing monotonously through the coral-like structures jutting from the ground. With any luck, the lich has taken the monsoon to crush the nearest settlement of Drakebane loyalists. That's your hope, Blay said. That is off slaughtering civilians. Are you even trying to not be hated? The alternative is that he endeavors to release one of his lieutenants. Er, uh, he has lieutenants now. Over the centuries. Numerous sorcerers have been sent to destroy the Aiden Rane. All who fought him were thought to be slain. But the Drakebane believes that not all of them are dead. Rather, that the Lich bound some of them to him as his servants. We're fighting an entire order of Liches now. Quick question. Will anyone fault me if I decide it's surrendering time? If the Drake Bane's theory is true, however, I don't think the Lich will seek to free his underlings just yet. He will wait until he has strengthened himself, and his servant sorcerers will have no chance of overthrowing him. Dante got up from behind cover and walked slowly downhill. Can you track his footprints with the ether? Gladick rubbed his jaw, which had started to sprout white stubble. Let us find out. They headed toward the central mound, wary for ambushes, even though the Star Eater had already checked the area. As they neared the heart of the wound, Gladick slowed, bending closer to the ground. They climbed the slope, passing the corpses of several mangled Odosain. Dead for not quite a day, most were stiff, 
limbs twisted tight as they bucked against their death. But a few had already begun to relax into the final surrender to their fate. At the top, the ruins of the giant iron hexagon that had enclosed the lich lay in rusting silence. Gladick circled the grounds, then stopped and rested his left hand across his navel. I see nothing. The traces of passage only last so long. Dante blinked against a gust of wind. Maybe they regrouped elsewhere in the wound before striking out. The tracks would be fresher there. Perhaps, but the longer we spend searching, the more any tracks will fade. Lacking any better ideas, they advanced toward the southern reaches of the wound, where the monsoon had made their landing. By the time they got to the low-lying shore, Gladick still hadn't found a single ethereal track. Gladick screwed up his face and spat on the gritty white rock. Damn this grimstone. It is too solid for feet to leave their marks upon. Even bare dirt would have betrayed their passage. That's what this stuff is. Dante ran his hand over the ground, which felt like something between sandstone and bone. Grimstone? As I told you, where Nether concentrates beyond what is natural, the earth grows as if it were a living thing. Could this have been the first source of life? I suppose so. As long as you are willing to denounce every story told in your precious cycle. Not necessarily. The gods could have employed this process to create us. Yet all mention of it was dropped from the tale of creation. Your beliefs ride you like a knight rides his horse, spurring you on to gather the justifications they eat as fodder. Naren stared out at the wind-rippled swamp. People might not leave tracks on bare rock, but they can leave them on water. When the Sword of the South has been on the hunt for other vessels, we found some of them by the refuse they dumped in the water, and the birds and fish that came to eat it. There aren't exactly many animals around here to be drawn to their spore, Dante said. And again, there isn't much in the way of currents, either. You suppose they were stupid enough to cast their trash behind them as they went? If they are sailing out to fight, the members of the monsoon might have dumped unnecessary weight. Besides, for the humans among them, everyone eats. And shits, Blay said. Don't forget shits. Gladick sent the Andrak off to the nearby waters. Volo fidgeted, glanced at the others, then ran west along the thin shelf of rock protruding from the base of the wound. Hey, Dante yelled. Where the hell do you think you're going? She stopped and turned, fists balled at her sides. This is right near where we left my canoe. So what? We've got a perfectly good one right here. But it's my way boat. I'm supposed to go with it until one of us dies. The look on her face was so anguished that Dante was almost ready to let her go look for it. Instead, he shook his head. It's too dangerous. The lich is gone, but we don't know the blighted around. 
Blaze rattled his sheathed swords. I'll go with her. Won't be long. I know how impatient you get. He jogged after her, brooking no argument. Volo beamed at him. The two of them disappeared around a bend to the north. Dante cursed under his breath. The Andrak was back in minutes, silently insistent it had found something. Dante gritted his teeth and gazed west. Just as he was about ready to go after the others, a canoe swept around the bend of Grimstone. Volo sat in the front, grinning like the sun, eyes wet with tears. She pulled up beside them. Thank you for waiting. If I'd lost it for good, I don't know what I'd have done with myself. Dante didn't suggest that she might have simply christened the newer vessel as her replacement wayboat. They transferred their things to her canoe, then paddled around the southern face of the mounded white hills. The demon showed them to a large portion of yellow rinds bobbing against the side of a rock. Great, Lay said. As long as they're intent on feasting their way across the entire swamp, we'll be on them in no time. Without explaining what he was doing in case he was wrong, Dante scooped up some of the rinds, squeezing out what little liquid was to be had from one of them. He plunged into the nether in the pulp, holding it in his mind. The resulting signal was slow to come. When, at last, it did arrive in his head, the pressure it created was so slight that it sometimes disappeared altogether. He pointed to the south. I think they went that way. Blaze cocked his head. The fruit told you that, did it? I'm tracing the nether in this part of it to the nether in the rest of it. Now let's get a move on before the rest of it ceases to be fruit and enacts its new life as sewage. Gladick made a noise of dissent. How will we avoid being spotted by the blighted? Will you disguise us as a log all the while we pursue the Aiden Rani? Do you have a better idea? Do you think one cannot object to a fault unless one also has a solution? Lyle's balls, you idiots! Blaze paddled them about, heading back toward land. This place is loaded with dead people. And what are dead people? An often overlooked source of meat, Dante said. Close. Dead people are humanity's fruit. Once they drop to the ground, you can take whatever you like from them. The monsoon are the lich's bodies, right? Pop us into their uniforms, and the blighted will just think we're allies trying to catch up with the others. They scrambled ashore and made their way to the closest battlefield, where there were more than enough dead monsoon for their purposes. They shucked off their nondescriptor bats and replaced them with the colors of the rebellion. Gladick's legs extended from the base of the tunic like white staves of gnarled wood. He held his heavy gray priest's robe out before him. When I donned my robes, I always thought I would die in them. He cast the garment to the ground. Perhaps I did. They returned to shore and clambered into the canoe. Volo and Blaze paddled hard to the south. A few minutes later, 
Naren pointed out a scrap of white fabric idling on the surface. It had the look of a bandage. Not long after that, they found another one. A little beyond that, and they nearly plowed into a bandaged corpse floating face down in the water. The link to the fruit rind dimmed, fluttering like a tatter-winged butterfly. Within a few hours of travel, it died altogether. By that point, however, they had the enemy's general course, assuming the aide and Rane was traveling with them, which Dante wasn't sure of, but Gladick insisted was almost certainly the case, and had passed by several other bits of debris cast aside by the living humans traveling with the army. All they had to do was catch up before the enemy changed course. Yet as soon as the fruit rind's connection gave out, so did the trail of garbage. As time wore on, Dante scanned the waters to all sides, sourness growing in his stomach. We've lost the trail, he said. They must have changed direction. We should backtrack to the last refuse we saw. We can paddle in concentric circles until we locate another sign. Blaze furrowed his brow. You think the best way to catch up to our foes is to sail around in circles? We'll lose some ground at first, but we don't have a choice. It's better than losing them altogether. Gladick was as still as a stump. We will keep going forward. We've made a mistake. Typically, you don't solve a mistake by continuing to make it twice as hard. Although that would explain a lot about him, Blay said. I have become an expert in losing faith. Gladick gestured to the south. And I tell you that now is not the time to give up. Spite gathered in the back of Dante's skull. I'd have thought that a complete lack of evidence is a great reason to lose faith. But your complete lack of evidence has convinced me otherwise. On we go. Volo shrugged and paddled onward. Around them, the growth stopped being rocks that looked like trees and started being actual trees again, albeit ghostly white ones. The water remained empty of any spoor. Gladick sat with his eyes forward and glazed, looking like a boy who had been dragged to the temple sermon when the year's first good snow was busy falling outside. You see that? Volo pointed ahead. Because if you don't, you're all even older than you look. A hundred feet ahead, light shimmered on the water. At first, Dante thought it was a patch of oil, or an illusion, but it only strengthened, defining itself into a ribbon that weaved through the many small islands that humped from the water like the bleached shells of turtles. Gladick allowed himself a smile. The path is revealed in ether. Let me guess, Dante said, just as Tame told you it would be. Tame doesn't speak to me. Does Aron speak to you? Only to tell Dante what a disappointment he is, Blaze said. How did you know it'd be here? I don't believe the Aiden Rane expected pursuit. Gladick ducked under a branch, 
After so long in the prison of the Rio Lace, his hunger for his old power will be immense. He will head straight to his feeding. Back on the hunt, Volo and Blaze paddled with renewed purpose. When their arms wore out, they switched with Naren and Dante. They entered the ruins they'd passed through on the way to the wound, crumbling walls and foundations lying among the rubble of themselves. Dante now understood why they'd been abandoned. If it was abandonment that had destroyed them, and not the wrath of the Aiden Rane. The trees changed, too. Slim orange things that braided together at the trunk, like the ropes of warships, the leaves slender and black. Grotesque as they were, after the otherworldly and unstirring forests around the wound, they were an oddly welcome sight. After the deadness of the wound, every swoop of a dragonfly or ripple of a breaching fish made Dante jerk his head around to make sure they weren't about to be attacked. Mortals didn't have the focus to watch everything around them, did they? There was so much happening at any given time that you could only pay attention to a tiny sliver of it. Dante was abruptly discombobulated by the idea that this was true of all facets of life, that for all his wisdom, all his acuity, he was actually seeing no more than a single fly as it bumbled about, while being blind to the wondrous forest that the fly lived within. For miles, the brightness of the trail held steady. As the afternoon wore on, the partial sunlight seemed to diminish it. And when dusk neared and daylight waned, the trail was fainter than ever. Dante peered down at the ribbon of ether as it passed beneath their bow. Is the path fading? They outpace us, Gladick said. They're traveling with a small army. They should be as slow as the fattest oarsmen. Their oarsmen are blighted. While they aren't physically quick, they are tireless. If we wish to catch them, we must be the same. Blaze swore. Easy for you to say, one arm. You don't have to paddle. We might not have the endurance of the half-undead, Dante said, but we do have the cheating powers of humans. Paddle hard enough to wear yourself out within ten or fifteen minutes. Let me know when you're starting to flag. The sign will be that I'm calling you a God's damn slave driver. The bugs were starting to get to them, and before they carried on, Bolo passed around the red paste the Tonarians used to ward off the worst of the bites. This done, Blaze and Volo dug into the water, arms flexing as they pulled themselves forward. The canoe sliced along fast enough to ruffle Dante's hair. Blaze and Volo were soon breathing hard, the collars and underarms of the jabats darkening with sweat. They continued on until they were red-faced. Then Dante and Naren spelled them. The ribbon of ether seemed to steady out. They swapped rowing duties again, then a third time. Night fell, the air awash with the chirp of bugs and frogs. The trail shined like melted stars, alighting the underside of the forest canopy.
Before Blaze and Volo took their next shift, Dante sent the nether into their muscles, washing away most of their tiredness, and tended to the blisters forming on their hands. When it was their turn, he did the same for himself and Naren. They covered mile after mile, the trail getting a little stronger by the hour. When the nether grew less effective at taking away their exhaustion, they slowed at last, three of them snoring in the boat while one paddled onward at a slow but sustainable pace. Whenever Dante woke, Gladic was seated in the same position in the stern, his eyes sunken pits within the crags of his face, which, in the glow of the ether, looked as white as something left in water for too long. He gazed into the ethereal pathway like it was a scroll unfurling before him, one filled with secrets that had been lost for ages. By morning, they were ready to restart their frantic pace. The landscape flew past them, easing from the warped orange trees surrounding the greater wound of the world, and back into the typical swamp of Tanara Tain, which meant that it was also once more full of awful creatures, to say nothing of the schools of flesh-eating Ziki Oko swimming under the surface. It also made for an abundance of insects. With the trail growing brighter, Dante slew a trio of dragonflies and reanimated them. He directed one a half-mile ahead to make sure they weren't about to run into anything nasty, then sent the other two wearing high above the canopy, scouting for the enemy flotilla. A disgusting process, Gladick commented taking life and subverting it into parody of itself. Dante pulled back from the insect's sight. Do you give yourself fifty lashes and penance whenever you wear a buckskin, or eat a rasher of bacon? The insects are just a tool, nothing more. By early afternoon, the ethereal path was glowing so hard, Blaze muttered that you could cook by it. A group of animals screamed from the trees. Volo swore to herself and angled away from the yelping creatures. A few minutes later, she swung around a stand of mangroves growing in a semicircle. Inside the circle, wooden cages hung from the branches, suspended a few feet over the slack water. They were painted red and filled with human bones. In any other realm, it would have looked like a scene of gruesome torture, but in Tanara Tain, it was a cemetery. I know this place, Polo said. It's for the village of Ragadon. They breed comb fish here. Rip out the ribs and give them a good boil, and you've got the best comb you'll ever find. Dante reached for the gunwale of the canoe. Could this village be what the lich is coming for? Stands to reason, Blaze said. You don't get a mane of hair like his without a quality fish comb. Which way is it from here? Vola did some thinking, then pointed several degrees to the right of the path the ether was currently displaying. That way, not far. Dante shifted his vision to his dragonflies, diverting two of them in the direction Volo had indicated, one soaring high and the second skimming beneath the canopy. The upper dragonfly, 
veered toward a clearing. Like most Tenarian settlements, it was roughly circular, with a few outer islands raised for paddies and the thickly growing stands of banana trees. In the center, a long pier supported dozens of rafts bearing small shacks. People tended to the fish pens and worked beneath tarps that kept off the worst of the sun. Found the village, Dante said, but I'm not seeing any rampaging hordes. Naren pressed his finger to his upper lip. Is there any chance the lich is merely passing by? Even if he is, we have to warn them, Blaze said. Tell them to get somewhere safe. Precisely where might be safe. Gladig gestured to their surroundings. All of this will soon be his. Death is the safest place they can be. We should sweep in and kill them ourselves, then. Is that your solution to everything? We'll warn them first, Dante said. Then finish tracking down the white lich. They abandoned the trail and made way for Ragadon, paddling hard. Dante kept one dragonfly circling above the settlement, while the other two searched in the direction the ethereal path had been taking. While their canoe was still a mile out, the circling dragonfly spotted movement within the trees beyond the broad round clearing that held the village. Dante sent the insect in for a closer look. Seated in the canoe, his eyes flew open. The white lich, he's right outside the town, and so is his army. He took the dragonfly lower. The lich's forces were spread across scores of canoes, most of them filled with half-naked blighted who paddled forward with crude, heavy strokes. The canoes near the back of the armada were crewed with members of the righteous monsoon, who remained in possession of their humanity, at least for the moment. The Aiden Rane sat on a white chair atop a platform mounted across two canoes. His long, white halbert lay across his knees. Next to his immense bulk, ten feet tall, with the build of a blacksmith, the blighted crew looked as scrawny as toddlers. His skin and clothes were the blue-white of mountain snow that had never melted. While his clothing looked solid enough, his skin was semi-translucent and glowed from within like some variant of ether. His eyes cycled between every shade of blue. His face was beardless and looked to have been carved from ice. His features were foreign, the corners of his eyes and mouth stretching too far to the sides, his nose a thick wedge dividing his face. We're too far away to warn them, aren't we? Blaze said. Please tell me he's just there to challenge them to a friendly game of run. The canoes were already spreading out to circle the village, sticking to the cover of the trees. Dante punched his thigh. He's surrounding them. Total ambush. We have to move fast. Gladig pressed his lips into a tight line. You can't save them now. But we can set the Andrak on him before the fighting's over. The priest smiled grimly. You have no mind for sentimentality, do you? 
No wonder you make for a challenging foe. Uncertain if that was something to be proud of, Dante motioned them onward. The Star Eater slid through the water beneath them, a disturbance of Nether that felt wrong to be part of. As the Aiden Rane's forces circled Ragadon, Dante racked his mind for a way to warn the villagers, but they were too far away for him to do something like write a message in the sky. Anyway, thanks to the policies of their former emperor, the Tenarians were completely illiterate. Through the dragonflies' limited hearing, he heard a man cry out from the trees ringing the settlement. A figure appeared in a simple canoe, paddling hard toward the low-lying gate set into the underwater nets that surrounded the village in order to keep out the flesh-eating Ziki Oko. A pair of workers glanced at him from the outer paddies. As he continued to shout, two canoes of monsoon soldiers emerged from the trees and swung about. Archers stood and loosed arrows. These slashed down around the lone boatman, sending up gouts of water. The second volley struck him down, slumping him over his gunwale. His canoe drifted to a stop. The two paddy farmers jumped in their canoe and paddled like mad toward the town dock, hollering as they went. People spilled from their house rafts, staring at the incoming boat, then ducked back inside their homes. Some emerged with short, bone-tipped spears or compact bows, the arrowheads hewn from high-quality Tenarian glass. Others carried small children, running to the northern edge of the docks. There, as in most Tenarian settlements, Ragadon had a single tower for defense. Built from mud bricks, it was thirty feet tall, bearing many narrow windows and a single door of reinforced wood. As citizens piled into it, archers pulled canoes from the water and flipped them over on the docks around the tower, taking cover behind the hulls. Canoes full of blighted emerged from all sides of the forest. Seeing the pale, manic faces, some of the villagers wailed. The archers on the dock let fly with a few exploratory arrows, but the blighted didn't change course. They reached the outer nets and hacked through them. Arrows flew thickly. The blighted swung about and converged on the far end of the dock, leaping out without concern for their boats. Carrying spears, hatchets, and clubs, they raced from raft to raft, dragging dozens of people out from hiding. Clubs rose and fell, stilling the captives' kicking legs. The blighted bound them and tossed them in a heap on the dock. A contingent of blighted pulled away from the captives and ran pell-mell toward the tower, forcing the archers who'd been harassing them to lock themselves inside the fort. The blighted reached the door and pounded on it with hatchets, clubs, and bare fists, screaming thinly, their faces warped with hate and frustration, looking mad enough to chew their way through the door. Archers leaned from the upper windows and took what shots they could. The blighted fell one after another, hardly scratching the banded door. Heartened, the defenders yelled battle cries and redoubled their fire.
The Aiden Rane's boat approached the end of the dock. He stepped forth, glaive held in his left hand, the tails of his white cape flapping behind him. Both Ether and Nether churned around his right hand, the shadows flowing like turbid water, the ether like light split by a prism. An arrow arced toward him. It struck his chest and broke in three pieces. Those that followed fell away just as harmlessly. The lich stopped twenty feet from the tower and raised his right hand. Without so much as a twitch in his expression, he sent Nether streaming toward the door. The door jerked, then ripped itself apart, vomiting shattered boards and twisted iron across the dock. The blighted bared their teeth and charged inside. The fighting was over within three minutes. The blighted marched the surviving defenders outside, packing them into a tight mass. Many of the villagers were bloody and in pain, but few appeared to have serious wounds. I don't understand, Dante said. They're not killing the villagers. Gladick nodded. He would not waste good lives. Through the dragonfly's eyes, Dante watched as the Aiden Rane gazed impassively at the prisoners. You did not understand what you fought, or you would not have resisted. The lich's voice had a metallic ring, as though he were speaking through a giant stovepipe. Worry not. Now I bestow you with understanding. He swiveled his craggy head to the blighted. You may take your tenth. The blighted arched their backs in pleasure, eyes overflowing with hurt and gratitude. They swarmed forward, grabbing one out of every ten villagers and dragging them screaming from the pile of bound people. The blighted ripped and clawed at their prey, digging their bare fingers into bellies, gnashing at necks and hands. The victims erupted with screams, their pain turning their voices inhuman. Blood spattered across the dock. Bits of flesh rolled and bounced. The blighted didn't even seem to be eating, just rending and chewing, shredding and destroying, strips of skin dribbling from their mouths and falling down their chests. What's happening out there? Blay said. You look like you're watching hell. I might be. Shakily, Dante turned to Gladick. Send the Andrak to the edge of the forest. The old priest lowered his gaze to the water. Dante could feel the density of the demon's nether slipping forward, lost in the murk. It soon passed from range of his senses. In the village, the dock was slick with blood and scattered with chunks, but Dante made himself keep watching. Anything he could learn from the savagery could be vital. The blighted slowed, calming from their mad and frenzied scrabbling. 
The wrath and pain on their faces seemed momentarily eased. The white lich gestured for them to move back. They wandered away with the sluggishness of those who feasted too much the night before. Some of them dragged severed arms or disembodied rib cages behind them. The white lich approached the remaining villagers. Some bucked and wriggled at their bonds, trying to roll away, even if it meant falling into the swamp and drowning. The lich made a flicking gesture. Ethereal bonds locked them all in place. Right now, you fear. He leaned closer. You should relish it. In another minute, you won't be able to experience that feeling ever again. He lifted his finger, a dot of purest ether circling its tip, then seemed to think better, taking a heavy step forward. Do you understand the cruelty of the state the gods have condemned you to? In crafting you, they have made you more than the animals, but so much less than the divine. In result, you lack both the conviction of the beasts and the invulnerability of the immortals. Your existence is one of fear and frailty with just enough of the divine spark to understand that you have been cheated, but lacking both the wisdom and the courage to know what to do about it. You would have gone to your graves in ignorance, only to serve your creators again in their heavens and hells, never to understand why you owe them for the misery they have filled you with, like water in a glass, nor how to escape it. The lich parted his lips in a snarl, his teeth glinting. But I have seen the shape of their plans. I have mapped a chart of its evil. And the path to tear it all down. Fear me if you think fear will help you. But I am your salvation. And together, we will destroy those who have cheated you. He lifted the index finger of his right hand. The other fingers curled. Ether gleamed on his fingertip, as bright as a candle. Then a bonfire. Then the sun. Dante tried to shield his eyes with his hand but the sight was inside his mind. He made himself watch, eyes streaming from the glare. A strange, 
tendrilled fog formed around the piles of frightened people. It lifted and snaked toward the lich. The people gasped, arching themselves like strung bows. As they sputtered, more fog spilled from their mouths, cohering into tight lines and probing toward the lich, who thrust back his shoulders. The tendrils flashed with pinpricks of light, intensifying like the rising of a white sun. The people began to scream. They bucked and thrashed, their skin grayed, marbling with red lines. The tendrils unspooled faster and faster, rushing at the lich and meeting his skin with erratic pulses of light. He closed his eyes, shuddering as the power entered his body. Dante swallowed. Send in the Andrak. You are certain, Gladick said. We have but one. He's turning them. He thinks he's safe. Gladick turned away, a vague scowl overtaking his face as he bent to directing the Andrak. It will be done. What do you mean, he's turning them? Volo said. Dante swore under his breath. Into something else. Something that isn't alive. Where you're from, you say turning instead of killing. So you would say, please turn that snake for me before it bites me. Some people might say that. Like who? Blay said. You, when you're lying to a young woman about what's happening, presumably because it's so gruesome that we're about to find out if an andrak can soil itself. Volo thrust out her jaw. I carry dead people around every corner of the swamp. I'm alone the whole time. I don't need you to protect me from the truth. He's sucking the soul from them, Dante said, or a vital essence of some kind. It's about as pleasant looking as it sounds. Blaze nodded. Well, can we make him not do that? Dante watched as the people thrashed so hard they split the skin on their knees and elbows. They bucked a final time, then stilled. Their skin paled from the marbled gray to a sickly white. So far, the Aiden Rane had only targeted a quarter of the prisoners, and the others stared at the bodies with bulging eyes. A dead man's eyes fluttered open. He tipped back his head and gasped, his face twisting with rage. Around him, the others shuddered and awakened, becoming the blighted. I'm not kidding, Blay said. If he's massacring them, can we stop him? Gladick shifted, adjusting his unfamiliar jabat. We would only add our corpses to theirs. This village must be sacrificed in order for others like it to be saved. It must be sacrificed. Neat way to wash your hands of it. You speak wisely. To reject the responsibility of what we do is to deceive ourselves into thinking we bear no 
guilt for it. So I will rephrase. We must sacrifice this village and be stained for our decision. On the dock, the lich swayed, lowering himself to one knee. The last of the tendrils of light curled around him like tame snakes, settling into his body with a final white pulse. Head bowed. He took a deep breath through his nostrils. The newly formed blighted turned as one to stare at him. He gestured vaguely, motioning them to join the others. How close is the demon? Dante said. It is within the clearing. Your orders? Gladick raised a white eyebrow. Dante couldn't tell if there was anything ironic in it. Send it in. Dante guided the watching dragonfly higher, giving him a better vantage of the field. The Aiden Rane remained kneeling. Blue veins twinkled under the surface of his skin. The blighted, old and new, watched him with curiosity. Still locked in place, some of the survivors moaned or cried. But most were silent, making no attempt to move. Dante had seen people's passive reaction to coming death a hundred times before, but he still didn't understand why they didn't struggle against their fate. Was it the instinct of a lizard patted about by a cat, hoping that by playing dead its tormentor would lose interest? Or was the surrender of hopelessness even more powerful than the will to live? A black figure surged from the edge of the dock, barely disturbing the water as it vaulted onto the boards. The Andrak flexed its claws and leapt at the white lich, grinning with a wickedness Dante had once thought was born from an evil love of the slaughter, but now understood was the thrill of combat and the testing of metal. The Aiden Rane's ever-changing eyes seemed foggy, as if he was watching a scene within another realm. He had set down his halberd while blighting the captives. He cast forth an arm in warding. The Star Eater raked its claw across the lich's forearm. Nearly silver in color, glowing liquid stuck to its claws and oozed from the three gashes. It has the blood! Dante tried to jump to his feet in celebration. The canoe rocked violently beneath him, and he promptly reseated himself. Tell her to get out! Gladick closed his eyes, brow crinkling. On the dock, the Andrax struck again, pushing the lich back a step. It ignores me. It believes it can win. The Star Eater brought its bloody claws to its mouth, licking them clean with a pointed black tongue. Dante's heart beat hard, sweat squeezing from his skin. The white lich drove a fist at the demon, which took the blow square in the chest but barely rocked back. Wisps of nether peeled away from the Andrax body, but it was already reaching forward, inserting its claws through the lich's guard and jabbing them into his stomach. The strike would have gutted a mortal man, possibly cut him right in half. The demon's claws sank no more than half an inch into the white lich's belly 
before coming to a sudden stop. The Blighted widened their eyes in hate and swarmed forward, grabbing up the weapons they'd dropped so they could murder their share of the villagers with their bare hands. As the Lich and the Demon traded blows, spilling a bit of nether and a few small spatters of iridescent white blood, the Lich began to react faster, blinking repeatedly as clarity returned to his eyes. A point of ether glared from his finger. Get it out of there! Dante grabbed Gladick's shoulder. The Lich is about to tear it apart! Gladick grimaced and nodded shortly. Sweat stood up across his brow. On the dock, the first of the Blighted reached the Andrak, hacking at it with hatchets and spears that didn't so much as scratch its shadowy body. It ignored them, launching a second flurry of attacks at the Lich, who blocked whatever he couldn't dodge, leaving a few shallow scratches across his arms. The Aedan Rane narrowed his eyes, battering down another attack, then pushed his right palm forward. A beam of eye-watering ether lashed between him and the Andrak's chest. Nether boiled away in dark clouds. A fist-sized hole opened through the demon's body. The Andrak's mouth widened, showing the star burning within its throat. It toppled backward from the edge of the dock and sliced into the murky waters. Dante punched the side of the canoe, skinning his knuckles. He's killed it! No. Gladick's voice was calm. My link to it remains alive, but the Andrak is wounded. It may need our help escaping. Blaze squinted. The thing we sent in to prevent us from getting our asses kicked by the big evil bastard now needs us to go fight the big bastard ourselves. We will not engage the Lich unless we are very desperate or very stupid. We have to go in, Dante said. This could be our only chance to get what we need. Blaze swore and picked up a paddle. The canoe sped through the trees, already within a half mile of the settlement. Dante pulled two dragonflies toward them to make sure the way ahead was clear of blighted or monsoon pickets. The third dragonfly kept watch over the dock. A transparent cube of light appeared around the white lich, condensing into his hands. He blasted at the water with lances of ether, following the Andrak's path away from him. Steam spread over the water with the suddenness of a marine fog rolling in from the sea. A beam of ether ripped into the side of a raft house, planks and splinters cartwheeling through the air. The lich clenched his fist and ceased his assault. The demon had put too much space and cover between them. The blue-white figure conjured a ball of ether, sending it winging over the low rooftops. It steadied six feet above the water, streaming toward the trees. Tracking the Andrak's position. The Blighted threw themselves into their canoes and paddled crazily after the ball of light. Monsoon soldiers joined the chase, keeping a bubble of space between themselves and the Blighted. Rowers brought the Lich's personal vessel before him. He stepped into it with no obvious haste. His soldiers pushed off, paddling hard to catch up with the others. The bad news, 
Dante said, is that there are whole damn armies after the Andrek, including the Aedan Rani. Naren ducked his head, angling for a better view through the trees. What is the good news? Who said there's any good news? He directed Vola to the right, veering them away from a monsoon canoe keeping watch on the woods. The trees thinned before them. Rain began to pelt the foliage as they reached the open water of the settlement. The ball of light, and presumably the andrak, had already cleared the fishnets and was streaking toward them. The enemy canoes were strung out behind the light, the closest lagging it by a hundred yards. The white lich hadn't yet reached the fishnets, but he'd caught up to the back ranks of the blighted. Volo and Blaze swung the canoe about, keeping them just inside the tree line. The ball of ether lined toward them. Suddenly concerned the lich might notice them, and convert the harmless light into something most harmful, Dante called to the nether, feeding it the blood from his skinned knuckles. He sent a bolt of it hurtling toward the glowing ball. The two forces impacted with a burst of black and white motes. When these cleared, the ball was still trailing forward. Frowning, Dante hit it harder, knocking it apart. The Andrak emerged from the water, an arm's reach from the boat, making everyone but Gladick and Blaze jump. Its claws shook as it reached for the boat. Its body, normally pitch black, appeared hazy in spots, especially around the wound in its chest, which hadn't seemed to have healed at all. It needs inside, Gladick said. It is too weakened to travel on its own. Before Dante could object, the demon was hauling itself up the side of the boat. Though it was massive enough to capsize the canoe, they barely swayed. It crouched in the stern, folding its limbs to take up far less space than seemed possible. Blaze drove his paddle into the water, pulling them away from the oncoming horde. For all the amazing junk you people can do, has it never occurred to a single sorcerer that it might be useful to be able to grow wings? I've done some work on it, Dante said, but the ducks keep dying before I can get them all the way sewed on. Blaze and Volo paddled with everything they had, drawing them into the darkness of the forest. Much of the forest enclosing the settlement was too dense to pass through, but the citizens had carved pathways through it, including the one the five of them were now using to escape. Dante extended his mind into the trees and the nether within them, harvesting great tangles of branches to close off the passage. The lead canoes crashed into the unexpected growth, the blighted hissing in fury and whacking at the branches with ineffectual paddles. Blaze glanced over his shoulder. Can't be that easy, can't? Light seared through the fresh growth, incinerating it along with at least one unlucky blighted who'd flung herself into the branches to rip at them with her hands. As she burned, she tipped back her head and smiled at the sky. Her smoking husk plopped into the water with a sizzle. Stop your craft and bend your knee. The white lich's voice rang through the woods. Mercy can be yours. 
but it requires the humility to accept it. The Blighted's canoes shot through the opening in the foliage, cinders clinging to their clothes and hair. Volo and Blaze were paddling with everything they were worth, but the furious strength of the undead would slowly overtake them. Gladick twisted in his seat, ether circling his fingers and wrists in shining bands. What you call mercy is the abnegation of the self. You would snuff out every sense of choice. And once our thoughts can be of nothing but you, you would tell us that is freedom at last. I know you. An edge of amusement entered the lich's voice. You are the one who hastened my liberation. Ah, the anguish on your face when your ambush failed. I have seen such looks many times before. Did you think that destroying me would make them forget the evils of your soul? Gladick made a choking sound. Broad straight bands of ether rushed to his hands. He sent the light blazing behind them, shredding into the closest three canoes. The blighted shuddered with the impact. Severed limbs spun into the water. As soon as they splashed down, the surface roiled with Ziki Oko, feasting on the gifts of flesh. The second line of enemy canoes swept past the decrewed vessels. Gladick drew another stream of glittering lines and slung them at the blighted. As the light closed on its targets, a tide of shadows poured from behind the undead, enfolding the ether and smothering it into nothing. You consider what you have to be great power, don't you? The lich's words seared through the patter of the rain. You have worked a lifetime for it. Now, for your stubbornness, your refusal to accept the truth before you, you have tossed it aside like a pot of waste. The canoes pursuing them broke to either side, leaving a clear avenue through the water. The air there darkened to twilight. Gladick thrust out his hand, his forearm as sinewy as if it had been skinned. Galand! Stiff cataracts of light poured from Gladick's hands. And then Dante felt it. The monstrous wave of Nether thundering toward them. He called a great flock of it to himself, sending the energy careening in the wake of Gladick's ether. The light hit the torrent of enemy shadows first, the two forces exploding into a mass of madly spinning sparks. The lich's nether carried onward, forcing past Gladick's efforts like a man wading through deep snow. Dante hit it with everything he could. Limbs of nether tussled against each other like battling dogs. The air blackened until the trees within it were bare silhouettes. Still the lich's attack ground forward, pushing Dante's defenses back foot by foot. It was the strongest attack he'd ever encountered. Trying to hold it back felt like trying to pull up a mountain by its roots. 
Sweat popped out from his brow. He wanted to yell out, but he was bearing down too hard to speak. The slightest slip of concentration, and the nether would rush forward, annihilating them. His hands shook. The lich's shadows pushed a foot closer, then lurched forward by ten. Dante felt himself about to give way. Gladic extended his fingers, spraying beams of light into the pressing wall of darkness. These carved away at the shadows, biting deep, whole portions falling away and dissipating. The nether slowed. Dante pushed back with some final reserve, causing the shadows to buckle along the seams Gladic had sliced into them. Everything came to a halt. Both sides strained against each other, neither advancing nor retreating. Gladic adjusted a single beam by a matter of inches. It cut into the underside of the shadows. Without warning, the Lich's entire attack collapsed, fluttering away like black ash. Dante fell back, chest heaving. His jabat was drenched with sweat. Blaze glanced back, still paddling for all he was worth. Was that as close as it felt? Not sure, Dante said. Did it feel like we were about to get ripped into a pile of bloody guts? That wouldn't be entirely bad. At least I'd finally get to shake hands with my liver for all its fine service. Dante groped clumsily at the nether, gathering more to defend against the next assault. Behind them, the blighted paddled harder yet through the last specks of decaying shadows. Gladick gripped the gunwale, sweat tracking through the wrinkles of his forehead. He fears overextending himself while he remains weak. Either the blighted will overwhelm us, or we will deplete ourselves slaughtering them. Nice plan, Dante said. Would be a shame if someone decided to thwart it. He felt down for the soil beneath them. For the most part, the swamp's waters varied between ten and twenty feet in depth, but some portions of the bed were no more than two or three feet beneath the surface. He located one such spot just ahead of them. As they passed over it, he pulled the dirt upward, mounding it until it was inches from breaking into the open. The blighted plowed onward, gaining steadily. When the enemy canoes were ten feet from the shallows, Dante yanked the ground upward into a series of jagged rills and spikes, hardening it into stone. The canoes crashed into it with the hollow splinter of broken hulls. Pale bodies flew out with the impact, still gripping their paddles. The second wave of ships crunched into the first, snarling themselves against the barrier of rocks. Naren made an obscene gesture at the pileup. Blaze and Volo opened up space, heading for a small tunnel through the trees. Behind them, ether glimmered across the raised stones, which sank beneath the water, returning to their original state of silt. A handful of boats stopped to pick up the blighted from the wrecked canoes. The others didn't break speed but Dante's maneuver had put them several hundred feet ahead of their foes. They sped through the gap in the trees, entering a maze-like profusion of trees and minor islands.
As Volo steered them down one of the many pathways, guided by some Tenarian trail marker Dante couldn't make out, or perhaps guided only by her completely reasonable terror of all the things chasing them, Dante harvested the trees across the waterway behind them. You should save your strength, Gladick said. A few branches won't so much as slow him down. Unless it makes the blighted think there's no path there at all. He had lost one of his dragonfly spies at some point. Most likely, his focus had lapsed while they'd been fending off the white lich's onslaught. But he sent one of the two survivors to keep watch over the hidden pathway. The blighted entered the maze-like area and slowed, gnashing their teeth in confusion. The lich stopped, surveying the trees dispassionately. He tilted back his head, then waved his hand. Ether danced along the branches. When it reached the section Dante had altered, it lit up like a lantern. The lich's mouth twitched. He flicked his hand, returning the trees to their unaltered state. The blighted raced into the tunnel. I have successfully bought us several whole seconds, Dante announced. We might want to consider going faster. Then you might want to consider paddling, Blaze said. With what? My hands? And after the Ziki Oko eat them, should I use my elbows? Oh, your face. No one will miss that. Dante spared a dollop of nether to soothe their strained muscles. Even so, the blighted gained ground with a white lich right behind them to undo Dante's attempts to block or snarl the trail. We got a plan here. Volo's voice was as tight as a harp string. Or are we just hoping that dead people will get tired soon? I thought we'd discourage them by paddling until we're too lean to have any flavor, Blay said. Or we could give them Gladick. He's so sour, they'll probably let the rest of us go. Dante's mind chased its own tail. They couldn't outrun their foes, couldn't hide themselves or their trail. So what was left? Face the white lich and his armies, and hope Gladick had been wrong about everything. As the enemy canoes closed distance, division spread to the left and right, preparing to hem them in. Standing in his command vessel, the white lich lifted his hands, a storm of geometric lightning crackled toward the canoe. Gladick met it with a cloud of nether that boiled away in the face of the driving light. Dante kept one eye on the sorceress battle and the other on the way ahead, searching for some way out. Volo had angled to port to avoid a string of islands ahead. As they got closer, the many islands turned out to be a single long mass. Outside of the wound, it was one of the largest pieces of land Dante had seen in the swamp. I grow weak. Gladick sounded more disappointed in himself than angry or afraid. Another minute and he will have sapped me dry. The oversized island grew closer, forcing Volo to veer further to port and closer to the left flank of the enemy formation. The blighted bared their teeth hungrily. Dante grinned back at them. Turn back to starboard. Take us to the island. Volo shot him a glance. To make a stand? 
That's the best we can do. Sometimes, Naren said, that's all you can do. She and Blaze corrected course toward the island. Gladic beat down another multi-pronged thrust of lightning. Dante reached for the nether, gathering it from all the death the swamps had hosted throughout the ages. The walls are sheer, Volo said, squinting at the sides of the island, which were at least eight feet high and completely vertical. I'm not seeing anywhere to make landfall. Dante reached forward. Aim for the middle. She redirected course again, steering them closer toward the center of the island. A hatchet splashed into the water behind them, followed by a second. The next one struck the side of the hull with a dull clonk. As the blighted drew within range, some dropped their paddles and took up weapons. Saliva spilled from their mouths. Lightning flashed behind them. Gladick grunted, fighting it off with a shuddering hammer of nether. The island loomed ahead. Volo dragged her paddle in the water, backbeating to stop them from crashing into the rock. Don't slow down, Dante yelled. Straight ahead. Volo darted him a scared glance, then paddled on, shoulders straining. Dante reached into the stone, liquefying it and pulling it away to open a passage straight through the low cliff. Water spilled inside, and they followed it. The air smelled cool and like freshly broken rock. The light dimmed around them as Dante bored onward. Behind them, an enemy canoe raced toward the opening. Dante yanked the entrance shut, locking them in utter darkness. The other boat crunched against the stone seal. The splash of their paddles echoed through the narrow space. Gladick sent a ball of light to hover beyond the prow, illuminating the tunnel as it cleaved open just feet in front of them. At the same time, Dante closed the way behind them, pushing the water forward along with their canoe. How far is it to the other side? Blay said. Dante felt ahead. Don't know. Is there a chance you could run out of juice before we get to it? Anything's possible. Unfortunate, Blay said. Don't worry, though. If we get trapped in here, I'll bash you against the front wall until either it cracks open or you do. The canoe sped on through a space that, while it advanced steadily, never grew any larger. Instead, as they continued, Dante shrank the gap to more tightly fit them and conserve his own energy. Everyone fell silent as if speaking up would somehow acknowledge the impossibility of what they were doing and cause the universe to immediately correct itself. After a few hundred feet of travel, Dante felt his strength fading. Should he conserve energy and stop sealing the way behind them? But that would thin out the water until the canoe ground to a halt. It was light enough that they could carry it forward, but that would slow them down drastically. Maybe enough to allow the Lich's soldiers to circle around the island and ambush them as they... Light exploded in front of them. Dante threw his hands over his face. Someone cried out, 
possibly Volo, but it was hard to be sure. And they shot into a dreary, rainy day. After the blackness of the tunnel beneath the island, it seemed as bright as a coastal morning. They took two seconds to ensure they were alone, then struck out with all speed, vanishing into the depths of the swamp. Trees and miniature islands unrolled around them. Water, too. Lots of water. Volo insisted she knew where they were, but under questioning, she revealed that meant a part of the swamp that didn't really have anything in it and hence wasn't worth knowing much about. In other words, she might know where they were in relation to other bits of Tanara Tain, but she didn't actually know her way around that particular slice of it. Still, their goal at the moment wasn't to reach a specific location, so much as to get anywhere that they might finally not be in danger of being slaughtered. In good news, there hadn't been any sign of Blighted or the Lich since they'd carved their way through the island. Dante had sent a dragonfly to keep watch on the Lich, but he hadn't even spotted their foe yet when he'd felt a presence grasping through the shadows. It had taken hold of the insect and darted back along the line of Nether connecting it to Dante. He'd cut the ethereal cord as fast as he could. He hoped it had been fast enough. He and Naren spelled the others at the paddles. Dante started counting inside his head. Blaze fell asleep forty-two seconds later. After another hour of travel in a random direction, they put in at a crescent-shaped island that smelt faintly of sulfur. As the others dragged the canoe ashore to hide it in the weeds, Dante slew a handful of flying bugs to form a perimeter around the island. At the camp, the Andrak kneeled a few feet from Gladick, hanging its head. Dante didn't know if they could feel pain, but it seemed exhausted at the least, listless and half-broken. Dante moved to stand across from it. I need to see its claws. Gladick gestured to the demon. It lifted its head, staring at Dante as if it somehow knew about the others of its kind that he'd destroyed, and held out its long talons. Dante moved his mind along their curves. The nether that formed the demon was dense and unmistakable as anything but itself. It took him virtually no time at all to conclude his search for the lich's blood. It's gone. His voice was flat. The blood must have washed off when the Andrak was swimming away from the lich. Every drop. Gladick bent forward, lips moving soundlessly as he examined the claws for himself. His face soured. You are right. I see nothing. Uh-uh, Blaze said. That can't be possible. There is nothing to be found. Look for yourself if you fail to believe me. Oh, I believe you. But I won't let it be true. Because it means we're completely screwed. 
Dante stopped to sit on a fallen log. We could try again. Send dragonflies in with the Andrak. When the Andrak wounds the lich, the dragonflies can dip themselves in his blood and bring it back to me. Gladick pinched his mouth together in a frown. While the Andrak is left behind, that is a callous use of one's people. Yes, it would be, except that we'll cunningly replace people with soulless demons that no one would ever miss. Are you so certain of that? The Andrak are made from traces of humans. The traces come from very deep within us. Perhaps they are made from a dark part of our own souls, a part we deny possessing. Dante blinked. The demon drew back its jaws in a smile. Gladick cocked his head at it, then snorted and smacked his leg. He turned to Dante. Hold out your hand. My hand. The appendage you relieved me of. Hold it out to the demon. Making sure the nether was close, Dante started to extend his right hand, then thought better and put out his left instead. The Star Eater stared into it, like he was searching for fish within a shaded pool, then lowered his head and opened its fanged mouth. Its throat convulsed. It deposited a silvery puddle into Dante's palm. The blood Dante had seen it lick from its claws early in the fight. The blood lay in his hand with the weight of quicksilver. The demon did this on purpose. If they bear a portion of our soul, it is surprising to think they might also bear a portion of our intelligence. Perturbed, Dante moved into the blood. It was so shot through with ether that for a moment he could see no hint of nether at all. Yet there it was, threaded through the lights like the tiny veins within an eyeball. He reached for it. The pressure in his head boomed like thunder. He swooned and blacked out. He found himself lying halfway on his side. The others had just started to move toward him. He'd only been out for an instant. Well, he wiped a sudden sheen of sweat from his forehead. If we want to go say hello to the Aiden Rane, that won't be a problem. Gladick drew back his shoulders. Do you have a link to the prime body? Right now, what I have is a headache, and an old man nagging me to be perfect at something I've never even tried before. Dante returned to the log he'd been sitting on before. The lich's signal is overwhelming. This could take a while to sort through. He leaned his elbows on his knees and closed his eyes. If the Nether's connection to the Lich was like the crash of a waterfall, he had the impression the link to the original body would be the patter of a single raindrop. He cast about for a second thread. A minute later, having found nothing, 
Why couldn't it ever be easy? He shifted his attention to the main signal of the lich, hoping that, in understanding it, he might better search for its counterpart. What if this prime body is nothing more than a myth? Naren kept his voice low, but not so low that it didn't penetrate the back of Dante's mind. What if there's nothing else to be found? You worry worse than Dante. Blaze threw something small into a puddle of rainwater. Wail and gnash once we know it's time to wail and gnash. Until then, let's find a better use for our time. Like staring silently into the distance. When you travel from port to port, there are countless rumors of treasure and wealth to be found when you're bold enough to chase them. Poor captains leap at them, assuming they're all real. Good captains ignore them, assuming they're all false. Great captains venture after them knowing they're probably chasing a phantom, but make plans to feed and pay their crew, even if they fail. Our current situation is so desperate that our big plan is to run off and stab somebody in their second body, which is something that I've never heard of anyone ever having. If you have a backup plan for that, I'm dying to hear it. Naren muttered something Dante couldn't pick up. Dante continued to examine the contours of the main link. In form, it looked roughly the same as they always did, except massive and on the brink of painful to interact with. But that could only go so far to explain why the second link didn't seem to be there. Was that because it wasn't? Or was it hidden? Keeping his eyes closed, he stood and turned in a slow circle. The pressure rotated around inside of his head. He held his breath, attempting to shut out all outside stimulation, but still felt nothing but the main pulse. He opened his eyes and said several rude words. I can't feel it. Naren folded his arms, glaring at Gladick from the corners of his eyes. Then this was all a waste of time. It was a great use of our time, Blay said. Now that we tried our best to kill the lich, we're off the hook, aren't we? So it's everyone else's fault if he goes on and destroys the world. Gladdy considered the ground, drops of rain rolling from his close-cropped hair. How does this skill typically function? Like I told you, Dante said. The nether in a drop of blood is connected to the nether in the rest of the body. Get the blood, delve into the nether, and the link opens to you. Yet the second link isn't there. Or is it that the connection to the Aedan Rane is too powerful to see it? Dante shook his head. Could be either one. Trying to feel if there's another link is like trying to feel a feather's touch while you're being punched. Should I start punching you? Blay said. To help you practice, of course. Dante tilted back his head. The sky was overcast, just as it had been for days. 
It was starting to feel like the sun would never return to the land again. He turned once more to the pressure in his mind, seeking its edges. How did you pick out a single raindrop from the middle of a raging storm? Or pluck a leaf from within an all-consuming flood? He lowered his chin with a snap. In both cases, you couldn't find what you were looking for from outside the storm. He gazed into the maelstrom of the link to the lich, then dived into the nether. It closed over his mind with cruel weight. Shadows howled about him, buffeting his ears. Though the sensations were entirely in his mind, tears sprung from his eyes. He struggled to stay afloat, fighting to kick his way towards some sort of surface, then relented, letting his mind's body be carried along by the stream until the shadows and his consciousness were traveling at the same pace. Though the current raged, he floated within it. Peering ahead, the channel of shadows led to a great, hazy mass. He turned back to the stream itself. Every tendril of nether seemed to be flowing toward the well of the lich. On a hunch, Dante swam toward the center of the current. Amid a swirling mix of shadows, he came to a stop, once more matching the flow around him. There, a single strand of darkness flowed away from him, or rather, he was flowing away from it. He reached for it, closing on it with a final lunge. The stream was so thin and weak that his touch threatened to tear it apart. He held tight, binding it together, feeding it with nether. It blackened to opacity. Watching it for any sign of cracks, he drew it away from the river until he and the strand floated alone amid nothing. With a disorienting lurch, he returned to the physical world, holding one arm out for balance. He felt for the strand. As soon as he touched it, the faintest pressure toyed within his head. He turned in a circle until the sensation centered in his forehead. He was facing due north, almost directly away from the lich. I found the second signal, he said. The prime body is real. Four. Gladick's mouth fell open. His original body exists, and you can find it. This was your idea, Blay said. Are you that shocked to finally be right about something? Don't you understand? If it is real, then it can also be destroyed. Naren followed Dante's gaze into the trees. How far away is it? Dante tilted his head, trying to gauge the pressure's properties. Hard to say. It's extremely subtle. I don't think I'll be able to judge until we're underway and I can feel how much closer we're getting. Blaze swore. Why do 
All of your solutions involve work. Dante got up to help relaunch the canoe. Gladic moved to the Andrak, which had crouched among the shrubs at the perimeter of their camp. Its shoulders were hunched high, and it was still leaking shreds of shadow from the wound the lich had opened in its chest, which remained unhealed. Gladic communed with it. It unfolded stiffly to its feet and followed him into the trees. When Gladic returned, he was alone. They got into the canoe and shoved off, paddling along at a sustainable pace. For the first few miles, Dante didn't say a word, keeping all of his attention on making sure his link to their target didn't slip away. Once he was beyond certain the connection wasn't going to vanish, he sat back in the stern, blinking at the occluded afternoon sunlight. We're not getting much closer, he said. It's got to be at least forty miles away, maybe twice that, and almost straight north. Volo, do you know what's up there? Swamp, she said. Interesting. Any particular kind of swamp, or just the kind with a lot of water in it? It's Haradim, abandoned land. What happened to the people who abandoned it? They got smart. She jabbed absentmindedly at a large purple fish that had taken a close interest in their boat and was following alongside them. I've never been there. I guess we get to learn about it together. Whatever is to be found there, it will be employed in service of protecting the prime body, Gladick said. Our task will not be easy. Blaze paused mid-paddle. Are you suggesting the invulnerable centuries-old wizard might try to protect his own weakness? Truly, your insight is too valuable to go without. Naron uttered a murmur of dissent. Even if we have located the prime body, we can't be certain that killing it will also kill the lich. If it were so vulnerable, why would he leave his weakness where he can't protect it? Gladick raised a white eyebrow. The fact we are the first to ever find it should more than answer the question. He fought to keep its very existence a secret. You cannot kill what you do not know. Dante was tempted to push them to complete the journey in one long go, cycling between paddlers and salving their muscles with nether. Then decided it probably wasn't the most brilliant idea to arrive at the White Lich's secret lair, completely exhausted and low on nether. They continued for a few hours after dark, Gladick lighting the way with a ball of ether, then made camp on an island. There had been no sign of blighted along the way, nor of pursuit, but Dante kept his dragonflies on patrol throughout the night. They started out again at first light. The swamp had a heavy, unhurried air to it, and now that they were miles away from any settlement, animals glided in and above the water with little concern for the humans. Once hearing the chattering of a pack of branch-swinging, flesh-eating bokomai, they diverted for half a mile before correcting course to the north. The trees grew denser and taller, thick scarves of cobwebs hanging between them. As the delicate pressure mounted in his head, 
Ruins sprouted from the larger islands. Others lurked below the surface, suggestions of a lost past. Rather than heaped rubble, some looked largely intact, as if they'd been built beneath the water, or like they'd been built at a time when the water had been lower. By the next morning, the pressure in Dante's head was strong enough to be irritating. Three miles later, it was pulsing steadily in his brain, peaking to the point of pain. His heart thrummed even harder. He called them to a stop and motioned to a wide island just visible through the spider-webbed trees. We're right on top of it. Has to be over there somewhere. Ready to go put an end to an abomination? Blaze loosened his Odosain swords. Are you ever afraid our enemies are saying the same thing to themselves when they're creeping up on us? Dante sent two dragonflies winging ahead into the ruins scattered across the island. After a minute of searching, he frowned. I don't see anything. He'll have it hidden, possibly disguised. Be ready to kill anyone we meet. He brought the nether to him. Behind him, he felt Gladic call to the ether. Volo paddled forward toward the island. The pressure behind Dante's brow grew by the second until it hurt with each heartbeat. With the island still a hundred yards away, the pain peaked, knife-like, and then began to abate. But the relief was far from welcome. Stop! He grabbed the gunwale. Back up! Slowly. Volo gave him a confused look, then backbeat her paddle. The pain of the pressure ramped up again. Dante held up his hand for her to stop. He leaned over the side of the canoe, but the water was far too murky to see more than a few feet down. The prime body isn't on the island. It's beneath us. Blaze stared at him then gave the water a deeply skeptical look. I find that hard to believe. Unless the Eden Rane started life as a very gifted trout. Why not? Where better to hide something you don't want people to know exists than in a place where it can't be seen? He closed his eyes and sent his mind down through the water, descending through twenty feet before he reached the thick silt of the swamp bed. He regained his bearings and probed further. After a few more feet, he bonked into something solid. Something that didn't want to let his focus inside. Scowling vaguely, he moved along the dirt piled on top of it instead. There's a structure buried under the mud, he said, but it's made of something weird. I can't manipulate it. Then how do we get down to it? I don't know yet. I can't even find an entrance. No worries. We'll just learn to breathe water and grow hammer hands to bash our way in. Naren cleared his throat. This so-called prime body is alive, yes? And hence in need of the necessities of life? I will confess my experience with two-bodied people is pretty limited, Dante said but I'd assume you're correct. 
then there must be some entrance to convey these necessities to the body. It may even have caretakers of some kind. They would require an access point. This is not necessarily true, Gladick said. In my younger days in the priesthood, we were faced with a challenge. We needed to conduct certain scholarship on the matter of tame, potentially having bequeathed to us an incomplete calendar. And yet, if it were to be made public knowledge that we were questioning the gods' measures, the peasants would have called for our heads. Requiring vows of secrecy from the participating monks did not seem sufficient for such a grave matter. Yet the king himself insisted the research must be done. I was the one who came up with the solution. We sank a deep pit in the king's woods, lowered the monks into it, and sealed them inside. A small hatch allowed the provision of food and water, but it was not large enough for a person to pass through. Once the monk's work was complete, resulting in a small amendment to the calendar, we sent down their final supply, a bottle of poisoned wine. Blaze gawked. What an inspiring story of problem-solving. The monks knew their sacrifice was for the well-being of the kingdom and the virtue of Tame himself. Without it, the church might have fissured, resulting in the loss of countless lives. They volunteered gladly. Gladick swatted at a mosquito. While there was no way inside their lodgings, we would have been able to sustain their lives indefinitely. The Aedan Rane may employ a similar system to protect his prime body. What does any of this matter? We're here to kill the prime body, right? So, rather than wasting time looking for a way inside the Lich's secret lair, why don't we smash the roof in and let the gigantic pool of water do the work for us? Tempting, Dante said. But it's got to have a way out in case there's a flood. We could lose the target. And then you use your magical powers to find him again. Assuming we can get to him before the Lich rushes in to stop whoever's messing with his one vulnerability. We'll find a way inside. And we'll end this here and now. Reasoning that the entrance would have to be above water, he ordered Volo to take them to the ruin-choked island. As the others wandered about looking for hidden doors, Dante sank his consciousness into the soil, searching for tunnels or stairs. The ruins were lodged in the dirt like raisins in a lump of uncooked dough. Any one of them could have a secret staircase into the space beneath the water, which seemed to be hundreds of feet wide and ascended to unknowable depths. With an inner grumble, he poked his mind down to the quiet stone of the first ruined building. He'd only been at his task for five minutes when Volo's voice rang out from the neighboring island. Hey, guys! Over here! Dante ran around the corner of a tumbled-down building, drawing the nether to him. But although Volo was jumping up and down and waving her arms above her head, she didn't appear to be in the process of being menaced or mangled by anything. Dante cupped his hands to his mouth. Yeah, we'll be right over, 
As soon as you bring us the canoe. Volo straightened in embarrassment, then laughed and ran to the bank of the island where she'd left the boat. The others gathered next to Dante as she pulled up to shore. For some reason, she was dripping wet. They piled inside the vessel and crossed to the smaller island. This had zero structures on it whatsoever, meaning they'd ignored it. Volo tramped a third of the way up the shallow slope and stopped in front of a tall and unpleasant-looking tree with a snake-like mess of roots and spiny branches that looked like they were reaching forth to strangle you. Aha! Blay said. You found us a tree. Volo wagged her head. Isn't just a tree. It's a janakang. Stores water in that potbelly-looking part of itself. Well, I swam inside it, and on the other side, there's a tube down into the darkness. Dante took a step closer to it, reaching into the nether in its trunk like he'd do if he were about to harvest it larger. Just as Volo had claimed, past the vast barrel where it kept its water, a woody tunnel ran deep into the earth much deeper than any route had any business going. The interior seemed to be dry, and was wide enough for a grown man to crawl through on his hands and knees. He rubbed the back of his neck. How in the world did you find this? Volo shrugged. I looked around until I saw something that shouldn't be here. You find it unusual to find trees in a forest? You can't see it because you don't even know what you're looking at. And you won't know there is something to look at unless I tell you. Concern bent her face. What if owning knowledge is the most responsibility a person can have? Does having it oblige you to figure out where you need to share it? Ease your burden by sharing it with me now. How did you know? Jana Kangs suck up brackish water with those roots there. By the time they store it in their belly, it's been made fresh. You travel around the swamps as much as I do, you have to know where to get good water. But this is the thing about the Jana Kang. They only grow where it's brackish. And we're two hundred miles from the nearest ocean. She made a little, there you go, gesture. Even if you knew it was strange for one to be here, the belly's filled with water. You'd never see the entrance unless you were already looking for it. Dante motioned to Blaze. Well? If you're suggesting I go first, Blaze said, then I suggest that you go defile yourself. But you're great at climbing inside trees. And I'm even better at telling you to do it. Volo rolled her eyes. What's the matter with you? I've already been inside it. It's dark, that's all. She threw herself at the tree and scampered up its trunk toward the woody shelf overhanging its so-called belly. Dante watched her youthful lack of care with an annoyance largely aimed at himself. In prior times, he'd done any number of things far more foolish and dangerous than climbing inside a strange tree— Yet rather than emboldening him, the experience of age had made him hesitant. 
Volo slipped beneath the shelf and into the belly of the tree. Dante set his jaw and started up after her. The gnarled bark made for easy climbing. He reached the wide hole at the top of the belly and swung a leg inside, ducking his head. The interior held a pool of dark water, six feet wide, four across, and unknowably deep. It was sloshing about slightly, but there was no sign of Volo. He lowered himself into it. The water was warmer than he'd expected, and smelled clean in a way the swamp absolutely didn't. He groped about with his toes, but couldn't feel the bottom. He conjured up a dot of ether. The white light stretched across the belly. Six feet underwater, a large hole stood open in the back of the chamber. Dante took three deep breaths and dropped below the surface, kicking toward the hole. He fit through without issue. After a few feet, the passage bent upward. He surfaced in a hollow space the size of a small wagon. Volo treaded water across from him. Her black hair slanted over her stark white face like a wind-ripped veil. His breath and the splash of water echoed tightly, but the close space was interrupted by another tunnel into the trunk. This one was above the waterline. Dry. Before he could think to turn around and go back for the others, Blaze surfaced beside him, blowing water from his nose. He was followed by Naren, and then, a couple of seconds later, by Gladick, who extended his wrinkled neck to keep his mouth above water. Blaze eyed the old man. You look like a drowned terrier. Someday, so will you, Gladick said. Dante grabbed the lip of the tunnel and pulled himself up. No more insulting each other until we're sure we're not about to be crushed to death by a sentient tree. The tunnel was only four feet high, obliging him to crouch his way forward. Within a few feet, it descended in a spiral staircase. The steps' edges were smooth, as if they'd been grown rather than carved. The floor and walls sweated condensation. Between the slipperiness of the steps and the lowness of the ceiling, he was so concerned with not bashing his head or tumbling downward that he had no mental space left to be worried about whatever they were walking into. The air cooled. A whiff of decay joined the smell of must. The tunnel leveled out, expanding to six feet high, then eight. They were no longer walking on wood. Rather, it was the bone-like grimstone. Dante tried and failed to reach inside it. I can't manipulate this stone. Blaze glanced at the floor. Have you tried telling it that it's ugly first? Is that a coincidence? Or did the lich build this place to protect it from people like me? The floating blot of ether Dante was using to light the way spilled over a tall stone door. Blaze started to draw one of his swords, but as the blade lit up with purple sparks, drawing on the nether of his trace, he thought better and resheathed it. Dante made eye contact with the others, 
then pulled the nether about him like a cloak and reached for the door's ring-shaped handle. He expected it to be locked or even rusted shut, but it swung open handily, an unseen counterweight pulling it along its hinges. The room beyond was too vast for the light of the ether to fill. The floor was patterned grimstone. The air smelled distantly of death. As Dante stepped forward, white lights glowed from the high walls. He froze. Gladick, did you do that? I was about to inquire the same of you. After several seconds of silent waiting, Dante muttered to himself and moved to his right, following the sweep of the wall. Round white pillars connected the floor to the ceiling. These were inscribed with foreign writing in a language Dante had never seen before. He passed by three of them before it occurred to him to stop. These columns, he said, there's writing on them. All columns have junk carved on them, Blay said. You think a king's going to pay for some big fancy temple and just leave all his columns blank? I thought Tenarians didn't use writing. Volo reached for the symbols, which looked grimy but not particularly weathered. We don't. The Drakebane's priests used to tell us that anything worth carrying forward should be made simple enough to remember. Gladick bent forward like a blade of grass grown too long to support its own weight. It isn't, Tenarian. It's Yossain. Yossain? Dante wrinkled his brow. The people who used to live in the hell-painted hills before the lich drove them out? Indeed. I would suggest they were the original architects of this place. What does the writing say? I do not know. Regrettably, I lacked the foresight to see that I would someday find myself in an underwater palace covered in your sane script. I might be able to read it. Blaze leaned close, running his fingers over the letters. I think it says, This has nothing to do with why we're here. I'm not so sure about that, Dante said. We keep seeing connections between the Aiden Rani and the Osain. If anyone would know about him, it's them. Yes, and if we kill him according to plan, none of it will matter. Dante was half tempted to make a rubbing of the inscriptions with a bit of charcoal he kept for such purposes. But even if they weren't in the middle of something extremely dangerous, there were dozens of pillars in the room. He'd only be able to record a tiny fraction of the text from a single pillar. Even if he found a way to translate it, the information would be so incomplete it would almost certainly be useless. He moved away from the pillar drawing his knife and poking himself in the arm. Nether lay heavy in the damp air, strangely skittish. Fifty feet from the passage through the tree, they came to a corner of the room. Dante followed the new wall, walking between it and the pillars. Another pair of torch stones glared to life ahead and above them. Leaves rasped over the floor, but there was no breeze. 
Dante stopped in his tracks and stared hard into the darkness to their left. Naren murmured, Did you hear? Pairs of lights winked from the gloom, faint as stars. Gladick lifted his hand. Ether blared across the chamber, lighting up a mob of lean-limbed ghouls. The blighted bared their yellow teeth and charged. They made no effort to coordinate, but so equal was their fury that they advanced with the discipline of a king's guard. Blaze drew his swords, the purple-black charge of Nether racing from the hilts to the tips. Dante and Naren did the same. Volo got out her long knife with its heavy guard. Gladick stood his ground, fist clenching portions of both Nether and Ether. Dante flicked his hand, sending back scythes whirling into every other blighted on the front line. They fell like fumbled crockery, rage burning with the last light of their eyes. Blaze and Naren carved into the thinned ranks. The Nether-enhanced swords cut through bone like it was flesh, and flesh like it was cheesecloth. Blood sprayed the floor in red curls. The Blighted climbed over their own dead, throwing themselves at Naren and Blaze. Ether streaked from Gladick's hand, straighter than any arrow, taking the enemy in their foreheads and chests. They thumped to the ground, their withered hands groping for the swordsman's ankles, even as they died. Blaze stepped pretty much through the corpses, lunging forward whenever a Blighted stumbled or tripped, running them through and then yanking his blade to the side, releasing their blackened guts to thud wetly to the ground. Dante slung a second round of Nether, cutting down ten of them in an instant. Ether seared through the gloom. Purple swords swung in arcs, trailing their dark light behind them. As always, the Blighted fought to the last. At the end, limbs and gore lay tossed across the stone, white islands in a swamp of blood, a grotesque copy of the wound of the world itself. Blaze wiped his swords on a dead man's clothing. The fabric was too tattered to tell exactly what it had been. How long do you suppose these bastards have been down here? Getting chopped to bits was probably the most excitement they've had in a century. Volo kicked a pair of legs, then looked disgusted with herself. If this is the best the lich can do, maybe he isn't so scary after all. Their wrath and speed is more than enough to overwhelm normal men, Gladick said. But they are more than soldiers. They are also eyes. The Aedan Rane now knows we're here. And if he knows... It's possible that the prime body knows as well. Dante swiveled his head in a slow semicircle. It isn't going anywhere yet. Maybe it can't even move on its own. Blaze sheathed his weapons. We're on a mission to kill a bedridden old man. If you see something running away from us at full speed, don't worry. That's just my honor. Gladick stepped over a torso. Honor is nothing but a way for the powerful to excuse their own power. We will find the prime body, and we will destroy it, or the white lich will find us. He strode onward, 
passing over the bodies rather than detouring around them. Dante kept a lump of shadows in his fist. They came to the far wall and turned left. Halfway across the room, they came, at last, to a door. Blaze drew his weapons and nodded to Dante, who pulled on the ring handle. It was heavier than the first door had been, but opened without trouble. The room beyond was a downward stairwell. Blaze led the way, Dante one step behind him. After a single flight, the stairs ended at another door. This opened to a tight corridor. Two inches of water lay on the floor. The air was now as cool and neutral as a cavern. Blaze stirred the water with the toe of his sandal, provoking a stagnant smell, but no movement from anything within it. He put away one sword and stepped forward, remaining blade held low before him. Gladick lit the way with a ball of ether whose light was soft yet penetrating. The corridor was just wide enough for two people to stand shoulder to shoulder, but not wide enough to fight side by side, and they advanced single file, blaze in front. Stone ground behind them. Dante whirled. Gladick called up a second spot of ether just in time to catch the door slamming shut behind them. Blaze swept back his hair. Probably just the wind, right? A gust from the massive storm we've got going on down here. Rather than waste time arguing whether they should go forward or back, Dante continued down the hall, tromping through the water toward the door Gladick's light had shown at the far end. The water felt warmer on his sandaled feet. He stopped. A current ran over the top of his foot. The water, he said, it's getting deeper. He jogged forward, water spraying from his heels to splatter the tight walls. Dante came to the door at the end of the passage, grabbed its steel ring handle, and pulled. The door didn't budge in the slightest. He tugged again, getting nothing. Hot prickles ran up his back and arms. It won't open. Have you tried not being an idiot? Blaze yelled. Use the nether! The water continued to flood in, now reaching their shins, foamy and lukewarm. Dante shaped the nether into a dense spike and rammed it into the middle of the door. Chips of grimstone flew everywhere, a large crack spreading from the impact. Dante hit it again, opening a hole to the other side. Warm swamp water jetted from the hole and sprayed him in the face. It's a trick! He backed away, nearly falling. It's not a door, it's a wall! As he stumbled back toward the other end of the hallway, Gladick waded forward, his face hardened with resolve. He lifted his hand. Light speared from his palm to the hole in the wall. Dante's heart jumped. What are you- The ether coalesced into the hole and settled into the cracks. It went solid white, then faded away, revealing a smooth and unmarred wall. Gladick smiled in brief satisfaction. Your nether is apt at destroying. It might even be used to create that which is new. But the highest virtue, 
lies in preserving that which already exists. Dante rolled his eyes. True virtue lies in finding where the god's damn water's coming in from before we drown. Shit! Blaze yanked his right foot out of the water. A hand-sized silver fish dangled from the blade of his foot, blood dripping from its jaws. Now, that's just rude. Dante felt as though he and the world had slipped out of joint from each other. He knew the feeling well. They had entered a situation where if you slowed down to think, you would get swept out to sea. The only thing left was to act and hope your instincts were well honed. Light! He pointed at the water. As much as you can. Gladick spread his fingers wide. Dots of light spread through the water, flashing from the scales of the wriggling Ziki Oko. Darkness darted from Dante's hands. A fish blew apart in a red and silver haze. He struck at a second and a third, clouding the water with their blood and filmy guts. Blaze grabbed Volo and hauled her from the water, boosting her up on his shoulder. He bugged his eyes at Dante. Here's a suggestion. Get us out of here. Dante nodded, but he had no intention of doing any such thing. He had the feeling, and it was a strong one, that if they abandoned the corridor to let it flood, the water would stick around for a good long while before it drained. Long enough for the white lich to arrive. And if they lost the prime body now, he knew they'd never see it again. He exploded four more fish. Naren yelped and jerked up his left leg, taking aim at the Ziki Oko clinging to his ankle and skewering it with his Odosain blade, nearly severing his own foot in the process. Dante blasted two more as they streaked toward the commotion that Naren had kicked up. The light was still spread across the water, shining crazily with the tossing of the surface. Another fish zipped toward Blaze, apparently from nowhere. Dante reduced it to a cloud of silvery chunks and slogged toward it. Another fish raced in toward the expanding cloud. Dante dispatched it and followed its tracks back toward the wall. Gladick grunted and stepped up beside him. Yet another fish swam in, seemingly straight out of the rock. Dante blew it apart. Gladick frowned and thrust forth his palm. A flurry of ether tumbled toward the base of the wall. The air crackled as the water there turned the milky white of quartz. Frost shot up the wall, glittering in the pure light of the ether. A wave of cold blew past Dante's face. No more fish came. The surface was still tossing and turning, but it already seemed calmer. Dante waded forward and nudged the ice with his foot. How long is that going to hold? Longer than it should, Gladick said. Yet likely not as long as we'd like. Blaze swung Volo from his shoulders and placed her into the water. She tipped back her head at him. You held me from the water. Well, what would you have done if the fish had come for you? Scream, I expect. Blaze made a quick inspection of his legs. If I didn't know better, I'd almost think someone doesn't want us to be here. A common reaction to your presence. Dante waved his hand sealing the small bites Blaze and Naren had taken to their feet. 
Does anyone see anything resembling a door? They poked and peered at the walls. Other than the false door, there was no other sign of an exit from the corridor. Dante couldn't manipulate the grimstone itself, but he could follow its edges with his mind. Something he should have done when the flooding began, but which he hadn't thought of in the heat of the moment. As it turned out, the chamber they were inside jutted out into open water. A dead end. But there was another level below them. A search of the floor turned up a trapdoor. Blazant Naren hauled it open, revealing a staircase. Though some of the water had drained from the false corridor, several inches remained, and it poured down the steps, leaving an unpleasant trail of scales and fish eyes. Dante took the lead to the landing below. Past a foyer, another pillared chamber yawned into darkness. He'd been tamping down the pressure in his head so he could pay better attention to his surroundings, but he allowed himself to feel its full strength. So close to the target, it was hard to be sure, but the feeling indicated the prime body was somewhere ahead of them yet, and possibly deeper still. He entered the chamber. Torch stones lit up from the walls to right and left, spilling over the faces of another score of blighted. Seeing the living humans, they stampeded forward. Perhaps Dante was imagining it, but for once the frustration in their expressions looked more resigned than furious, as if they understood they had no chance, but still couldn't stop their compulsion to attack any more than a rock, when dropped, could stop itself from falling. Dante and Gladick cut them down before they had the chance to close on the others. Those that didn't die right away glared up at the darkened ceiling, curling and uncurling their fists. Along with the pillars, the chamber held a number of long, sturdy tables, covered in grime and fine white mold. Slabs of solid grimstone served as benches for the tables. The latter bore books, some of them left open, the pages ruined by mold, which Dante found highly irritating, along with glass flasks, neat arrangements of bones, and copper cubes carved with symbols half obliterated by a green patina. Dante motioned to Gladick. Does any of this have any significance to you? The old man made a brief inspection of the table's contents, then pushed back. Research. Perhaps alchemical, perhaps sorceress. Sophisticated, if I had to guess. Quite possibly involving knowledge we no longer possess. His cheek twitched. He picked up one of the cubes, turning it in his hand. It was clear that its corners had once been sharp and crisp and that the symbols etched into it had been precise and artistic. But everything had been blurred and disfigured. Gladick dropped the cube on the table. In Malin, we are taught to praise Tame as the highest of the gods, as the one who brings order to our lives with the gift of time. But time is a curse, isn't it? It doesn't bring order. It brings chaos.
breakage and decay, to the bodies of ourselves and everyone who will ever be. Odd, Blaze said. You look like an eight-year-old man, yet you sound like a fifteen-year-old boy whose girl just told you she can't see you anymore. Dante picked up one of the cubes. Its weight felt right. He bounced it in his palm, then tucked it into his pocket. He moved on past another set of tables, giving them a once-over for anything interesting, more torchlights winking on as he advanced deeper into the chamber. A rasp of his sandals echoed from the blank walls. Another set of torchstones came to life, casting their light on a great throne of grimstone and iron, which had rusted over the years, the ruddy fluid staining the chair sides like old blood. Dante stopped short, breath catching in his throat. A man sat in the chair. He was motionless, desiccated. Dante reached into the nether and felt that it was quiet. He appears dead, Dante said. Then again, so does everything the lich is involved with. A silver crown rested on the man's head, blackened with age. His robes looked like they'd once been exceedingly fine. Tarnished silver bracelets and rings adorned his hands, but atop his shriveled skin they resembled a wealthy child dressed up in his parents' jewelry. Naren appeared to be about to take a step forward, then thought better of it. Do you see his jaw? The planes of his cheeks? Looks an awful lot like the Aiden Rane, doesn't it? Is this it? The prime body? No. Dante moved closer, keeping the nether locked in his left hand. The blood's telling me the real one's lower down but I'm sure the White Lich wants anyone who finds this to believe it's the prime body. Blaze drew his sword. Step aside. I just told you this isn't it. And I am replying to say there's no reason to take that chance. He twirled his sword. Besides, chopping things is fun. Dante glanced reflexively at Gladick for guidance then frowned and stepped aside. Chop away. Blaze flicked his wrist, sending his nether-coated blade through the body's brittle neck. The head took a moment to topple over, as if it had to wake up first. It hit the floor with a dull clonk. The dead man stirred. Blaze grunted and lifted his weapon, but the body was just leaning to the right, after having been relieved of the weight of its head. Dante tapped his temple. Pressure's still there. Congratulations, you have successfully defiled a corpse. Well, if he's down here, he probably did something bad. We'll tell everyone he drew his sword on you first. Come on, help me find the next door. He walked behind the throne. There, a mural lay across the floor. Beneath the grime, the tiles illustrated a scene of a great battle, legions of men in lacquer armor arrayed against an icy white titan while the world around them burned. 
The walls were all blank stone. Dante closed his eyes and felt down into the nether. As he'd thought, it seemed as though there was another level below them. Unable to feel anything about the grimstone other than that it was there, he instructed the others to spread out to search the floor manually for another trapdoor. But where the corridor had been tight, limiting the grounds of their search, this room was a massive open space. Searching all of it carefully enough to reveal a concealed door could be the work of hours. Yet, as with any overwhelming task, the only solution was to ignore the intimidating scale of it and start chipping away at what was in front of you. Dante made his way across the floor, bent like an old water carrier, poking at cracks in the floor with his knife. Galand! Gladick's voice echoed across the room. Standing beneath one of the wall-mounted torchstones, he beckoned with a bony finger. Join me. Doing nothing to disguise his irritation, Dante crossed the room to join the priest. Gladick gestured upwards. Do you see this torchstone? You mean the source of light making it possible to see anything at all? Indulge the possibility I am not a complete fool and imagine that I am asking you to examine it. Dante sent his mind into the torchstone. Though they were notoriously difficult to craft, in fact, as far as he knew, the ability had been lost altogether, although possibly it was merely that everyone had run out of the proper resources, the design itself was quite simple. The ether in the gems was converted to light, which was, in turn, enhanced in brightness by the nature of the stone itself, allowing for a small portion of ether to illuminate a space for a disproportionately long time. Dante was no expert in the stones, nor the ether, but everything in the item appeared perfectly standard. I'm looking, Dante said. It looks like a torch stone. It does. Now indulge me a second time and examine this stone. Gladick walked away from the corner toward the center of the long wall. He stopped beneath the next torchstone. Dante moved into the ether, at least as best as he could, then gave a shake of his head. I don't see anything strange. Then you are poorly trained. Look again, knowing that the device is attempting to deceive you. How can you be so old and still be so bad at making your point? Dante sent his focus back into the glowing stone. On the surface, everything appeared the same as the last torch stone. Pointedly aware that he was missing something that was apparently obvious, he pressed closer yet. On instinct, he sent a wisp of nether into the stone. The light flickered. And so did the wall. Dante clapped his hands. It's not just lighting the room. It's casting something onto the wall. Shall we find out what? Gladick squared himself to the wall and lifted his hand. Ether winked between his fingers and the torchstone. The light wavered, then flashed, and went out. 
Their section of the room dimmed considerably, but the remaining stones provided enough light to show the door set in the wall. A sophisticated act of trickery, Gladick said. The illusion is only deployed when someone enters the room, triggering the torch stones to activate. Additionally, this facility has employed the torch stones since we first entered it, and never as anything but a source of light. Only now, when we have long since grown used to their presence, and would not suspect them of any oddness, are they used to hide the truth from us. Dante motioned the others over to him. Yeah, well, if I'd been around for a thousand years, I'd better be able to come up with a pretty clever lair, too. Once the other three were assembled at the door, Dante pulled it open. Gladick's ether lit up a cramped, descending staircase. The smell that wafted from the depths was of something very old, something that never saw the sunlight. Dante headed down, stepping softly. Someone, Volo, he thought, was walking down the steps with her sandals slapping. Just as he grew annoyed enough to curse the offender out, he reached the bottom of the staircase. Holding the nether at the ready, he entered an expansive room. Torch stones sprung to life along the walls, raining light through a chamber that, at first glance, seemed identical to the one above it. Dante touched his forehead, which felt ready to give birth. It's just ahead. Beside him, he felt Gladick reach for the nether. Blaze, too. Volo drew a pair of throwing knives with leaf-shaped blades. As before, a line of pillars ran parallel to the two longer walls. Dante moved to the left side of the room and advanced along the columns, knowing the cover they provided was more psychological than real. By the fourth pillar they passed, he noticed one difference in this room. Rather than the columns being etched with Yosane script, they were carved with images of demons boiling up from the ground and ripping people apart with long claws. The next pillar showed a field of bodies on bare, ravaged ground. At the edge of the carving, nothing but demons remained alive. Near the far end of the room squatted an iron and grimstone throne identical to the one they'd seen in the previous chamber. As before, a gnarled and shrunken body sat upon the throne, hands resting on the seat's broad arms. The corpse was bearded, swaddled in a moldering robe. Dante came to a stop. The pressure in his head had grown so painful, he had no choice but to clamp a mental lid on it. That has to be it. The prime body. Blaze moved beside him. More like the prime mummified corpse. So what's her approach? Shred it into person, jerky. This and everything hence is beyond any man's knowledge, Gladick said. It may be as simple as destroying the body, but it might require destroying the body's trace as well. Sounds like it's time to start experimenting. Blaze drew one of his swords with a crackle of nether. Tell me when to stop hacking. He took a step forward. On the throne, 
The corpse lifted its head and opened its eyes. Dante choked. Blaze spat out a word that sounded like multiple curses ground up into a sausage-like slurry of nonsense. The dead man's eyes were a washed-out blue. He regarded each of them slowly, his expression foggy, as if he was examining a scroll written in a language he didn't understand. Blaze lifted his empty hand. Uh, hello? You are the first ones to ever find me. The decrepit man spoke passable malish, accented the same as the Aiden Rane, with his S sounds honed toward the sharper edges of a Z. His first words were halting, but grew more fluid as he went along. How have you done this? It wasn't easy, Dante said. We tell him nothing. Gladick pointed his finger at Dante's head. You know nothing of what sits before you. His master is more treasonous than a winter storm on the high sea, and he will serve that master without any hint of human compassion. I thought everything that came hence was beyond all knowledge. Think, fool. Should we tell him, and we somehow fail, his master will ensure that the same trick may never again be used against him. The prime body braced his arms on the throne, as if trying to lift himself, then groaned in pain and slumped back, head resting against the chair. Finding this place was no accident. No commoners should have reached this chamber. You are sorcerers. That is too obvious for comment. Holding the nether and ether together in his hand, Gladick paced sidelong in front of the prime body, keeping his distance. Do you understand what you are? The man smiled as thinly as it was possible to smile. I am nothing. A regretful leftover that must yet be preserved. And so, I am a prisoner. Is there anyone else here? This place is not a house for the living. You have no caretakers, no protectors. This temple was built to be all the protection that I would require. As for needs, I have none. None, at least, that will be tended to. Dante kept both eyes on the man in the throne. Though he was a long ways from healthy, he already looked less frail. Didn't you just tell me that he couldn't be trusted? And he cannot, Gladick said. Yet it may be possible to judge the quality of his lies. The prime body gazed at them flatly. Why have you come here? You will answer my questions first. What continues to keep you alive? The will of my master. Can this will, this power, be generated by those who are not under his sway? If a thing can be done once, it can be done again. Gladick chewed on this a moment. 
How did the Iden Rain become the Iden Rain? The man laughed, a disturbing rustle. How is all power gathered? By taking it from others and placing it within yourself. And how is this done? He closed his eyes. I no longer remember. Gladick strode forward, light and darkness glaring from his hand. You lie! Refuse me the truth and I will torture you to madness. I will answer no more questions, for I no longer have one of you. You have come here to destroy me. That's right, Dante said. But we will make it fast. Would it surprise you to learn that I welcome an end? Blaze cocked his head. You want to die? Haven't you had an awful long time to take care of that for yourself? Do you think my master would go to the trouble of locking me away from all harm without also ensuring that I be made impotent to harm myself? When I am trapped in this tomb, century on century without sunlight, without the songs of the birds and the girls, without the taste of meat, or even the sweet taste of clean water. Who, in such situation, would not go insane, driven to claim their own life, and at last bring about an end? When I have not felt a real life for so long, what would it lose me to end it? Surely there are ways to pass the time down here. You could have started up a mold collection. The prime body swung his head from side to side, an act that seemed likely to snap his fragile neck. I have been for long enough, for nothing has meaning that has no end. And that which goes on forever can never be loved, for it becomes too familiar, as common as the earth or the air, and just as unremarkable. While all around it fresh seeds sprout and grow tall, bloom in all their color, and then die, only to be replaced by the flowers of their own seeds. Tell me this. Would you trade my life for your own? The question was fully rhetorical, as the prime body ploughed on with more in the same vein, waxing on about how he no longer had true memories of life outside the tomb, but rather memories of memories, which he was no longer certain were accurate. 
He seemed capable of talking for eternity. Almost as if he wasn't quite ready to die after all. Had he gone senile? Or was his chatter a form of self-defense? A ruse to prattle on at them until they died of old age and left him alone? Dante's eyes widened. Sick with the certainty of their mistake, he lifted the tamp he'd placed on the blood bond that connected him to the prime body. It exploded forward, dazzling him. He waited for his senses to return, and found that while the sense of pressure remained overwhelming, it had diminished, and was getting further away with each moment. He swept the nether into both hands. This is not the prime body! Gladick gave him a scornful eye. But your signal brought us to it. And while that thing sits on its throne yapping at us, the signal's running away! Gladick's face stiffened. He drew his power to his hand. King of deceit, I will put your lies to their death at last. With startling agility, the man in the throne popped to his feet. He clasped each hand to the opposite forearm, nails near his elbows, and tore downward toward his wrists, opening shallow channels in his skin. He was so withered and pale that he looked as though his veins couldn't be running with more than an ink bottle's worth of fluid— but blood dripped readily down his arms. The man smiled, eyes narrowing to malevolent slits. I am much older than you know, and I have waited a long time to kill again. Dante and Gladick lashed out with a pulse of shadows. The ancient sorcerer flicked his left hand, whip-like, spraying drops of blood toward his foes. Nether streaked toward them from all sides of the chamber, multiplying beyond the force exerted by the sorcerer. The summoned shadows swarmed against Dante's attack, dispersing it like sand in turbid water. Gladix was dashed apart an instant later. One of Volo's knives flicked through the air, catching the light of a torchstone. The blade disappeared into the folds of the sorcerer's cloak, seemingly without effect. Blaze dropped into the nether and sprinted through the shadows. Without so much as glancing his way, the Ancient One twirled his left index finger. He ejected Blaze from the netherworld with such force that he hit the ground and skidded backwards. The sorcerer, who was, it was now clear, a sort of underlich left behind as the final defense of the prime body, snapped his left hand forward, flipping more blood toward Blaze. Nether gushed to the droplets, as hungry as Ziki Oko, forming a barrage of darts. Blaze kicked hard, scooting away along the floor. Dante tossed a chaotic handful of shadows toward the darts, but he could already see that he was too far away to intercept the strike. His heart clenched tight. As the barrage swept closer, an eye blink away, Blaze vanished into the shadows. The attacking Nether buzzed in confusion, spinning randomly through the space Blaze had exited. As the sorcerer cocked his hand, ready to force Blaze back into the physical world once again, Dante's strike rammed into the circling swarm, erasing it. Blaze reappeared to Dante's left. Have I ever told you I hate wizards? Technically, you are one. 
If sneaking about counts as sorcery, then why do cats still need you to open the door for them? Before the throne, the underlich flicked his arm, robes flapping, turning aside Gladic's reign of ether with another shower of blood-augmented shadows. Both sides paused, assessing. This fighting is foolish, the Ancient One said. You show strength. My master would welcome you to his service, just as he did me. Blaze wheeled his sword through the air. Yeah, that deal seems to have worked out so well for you, Mr. Hasn't Seen Sunshine in 500 Years. The man fixed Blaze with an interrogating eye. Your talent isn't known to us. It would make a welcome addition to our ranks. Regarding myself, it's true that I have spent ages in what some would call imprisonment. But my lord returns, and my wait is at its end. He will claim the world, and I will be granted my share. Gladick drew the nether to his remaining hand, beginning to shape it, but Dante held up a hand. He knew that they couldn't afford to delay, that every second they spent dealing with this underlich was another second for the prime body to make its escape. But he knew also that a great mystery stood before him, and that the owner of that mystery liked to talk. Did you join him willingly? Dante said. Or did he enslave you? The Ancient One smiled in crusty amusement. What does it matter? I serve happily, and so will you. If he's so powerful, why does he need people like us to help him? Can one man be in two places at once? To complete many tasks, one needs many hands. The Lord understands that it takes more than one candle to light the darkness. Has this deal made you immortal? Not even the Master knows for certain, for there have been none like him before. His eyes twinkled. But I look forward to finding out. Before Dante could say more, Gladick curled his lip and lashed at the servant with a patchwork blend of ether and nether. Posing with the arrogance of a fencer, the underlich spun from his right foot to his left, pelting the assault with his own blood and the nether that it drew. As the two energies pounded each other into sparks, some of Gladick's nether appeared to defect, or perhaps simply to turn neutral, too engaged by the presence of fresh blood to continue its original task. Though the struggle played out too quickly to be sure of its exact nature, one thing was clear. The underlich was using less power to defend himself than it seemed like he ought to need. Even if Dante and Gladick were able to wear the enemy down, his ability to defend himself would buy the prime body precious minutes to make his escape. Gladick seemed to draw the same conclusion, stomping forward and hammering at the underlich with a storm of prismatic light that overwhelmed the torch stones 
like the sun blotting out the stars. Dante flanked Gladic's assault, smashing at the undead with a mallet of nether. Volo tossed another throwing knife. It took the enemy in the shoulder, but he paid it no mind, as if he felt no pain at all. As the underlich spun and whipped his limbs, beating back each attack with a sprinkle of blood, Blaze slipped into the nether, attempting to circle around the sorcerer's back. From the corner of Dante's eye, he caught Naren trying to edge forward, only to be driven back by a stray loop of nether. Those shadows were under Dante's control, but in the chaos of the fight, Naren would have no way to tell. The underlich thumped Blaze from out of the netherworld. Blaze rolled backwards and blinked back from sight before the enemy's follow-up lance of nether could strike him. The scratch Dante had opened on his arm at the start of the fighting had started to coagulate, leaving the nether sluggish, almost grumpy. He used a razor of nether to lengthen the wound. A warm bead of blood slid down his arm. The shadows spun with enthusiasm, and Dante smiled. As Gladic tried and failed to brute force his way through the Ancient One's guard, Dante peppered the robed man with tight shots of nether. The sorcerer spun like a dust devil, his spilled blood driving the nether before him like a herd of black beasts, smiling his arrogant smile as if mocking Dante's own. Dante felt the ether about him, crackling between Gladic and the lich, glowing softly from the torch stones, present in the design of all things. In perfect stillness, he emptied his mind, like two cupped hands holding nothing, and asked the ether in the lich's arms to heal the wounds there. The sorcerer continued to whip his arms about like a practitioner of a strange martial art, but the nether that had orbited him drifted away from his now bloodless limbs. Dante summoned as much nether as he could hold together. Now! He unleashed the shadows in a single, long flood. Gladic jabbed forth his palm, matching the nether with a column of light. The underlich scrambled backward, his once smug eyes going wide with alarm. He raked fresh cuts across his arm. He'd only started to bring up the nether when the wave of energies broke over his body. He disappeared in a haze. Nether teemed around him like dark wasps. Ether streaked forward like lost bits of shooting stars. When the air cleared enough to see again, the underlich had fallen to his knees. One of his arms had been ripped free and was lying against the throne behind him. Half his face had been shredded to the bone. Something that might have been the remnants of an eye lay upon his exposed cheek. The other eye swiveled toward Dante, brimming with hatred. You will mourn what you have just done when you sit at his feet. When his half-flensed jaw swung free from its hinge, hanging from the side of his mouth. A look of dismay entered his eye, and then it rolled upward, seeing nothing. The underlich lost what little color he had left, 
whitening like snow. He lifted his hand to the ceiling. His fingers curled to his palm, snapping off one by one and falling to the ground with the sound of crumpled parchment chucked aside. With a burst of blue light, he collapsed into dust. The grimstone beneath him was stained with pure ether. Dante edged closer to the stain. Is he dead? He better be. Blaze nudged the pile of dust with his sandal. Otherwise, the only one who could slay him now is a charwoman. Don't we have a prime body to hunt down? Dante made a once-over of the others, but no one had taken more than a few scratches during the fight. Not surprising. The underlich had been too caught up in fending off Dante and Gladig to launch many counterattacks of his own. This done, Dante reopened the link to the prime body in his mind. The pressure pointed directly to the wall behind the throne. After brief inspection, they found another door concealed by the illusion cast by the torchstone above it. Dante grabbed the ring handle and pulled the door open. A wall of lukewarm water poured over him, sweeping him from his feet and slamming him against the back of the throne. Volo sailed past him, scratching about for a handhold. Gladick scrambled to the side, avoiding the flood's full strength. He approached the doorway from the side, water pouring over his bare shins as he craned for a look inside. Half the wall is open. The only way out is back the way we came. Dante wanted to argue, but the roar of the water coursing through the wall was convincing evidence for Gladick's point. He turned and ran toward the staircase, snagging Vola by the arm and helping her to her feet. Dante touched the center of his forehead. It's getting further away. They must have gotten it into a boat. Blaze grunted. Let's hope it wasn't ours. Dante took the steps, three at a time, reaching the hall where they'd first discovered the illusion-hidden door, and sprinting across it, his sandals smacking wetly. The next staircase brought them up the trapdoor and into the corridor where they'd nearly drowned. Water leaked through the cracks in Gladick's eyes, threatening to blow the plug loose at any moment. Dante ran to the entrance, ready to shatter the door if he had to, but the door opened without complaint. They dashed across the first chamber they'd entered, the ground scattered with the corpses of the blighted, and made their way to the tunnel up through the tree. Dante took a deep breath, dived into the belly, and swam out through its opening, emerging into a warm afternoon day. All in all, they'd spent a full two hours locating the tomb and making their way to its end, and hardly two minutes getting back out of it. Despite Blaze's worries, the canoe was still there. Most of it, at least. What was left floated in splinters, bobbing in the swamp's subtle currents, as the link to the prime body grew fainter by the moment. Five. Every organ in Dante's torso seemed to sink three inches, as if someone had pulled a plug from within his body and everything inside him was draining away. 
the chunks of the canoe floated serenely, warmed by the sun, which had finally fought its way past the clouds. No! Volo charged into the muck at the shore, plucking a broken board from the water and holding it across her palms like a dead infant. This was my wayboat. I was supposed to die with it. Dante was too brain-numbed to wonder what in the world she was talking about. As he stared stupidly at the wreckage, Gladick stumbled toward the bank of the island, dripping water after their swim through the pot-bellied Jana Kang tree. He lifted his intact arm and showered the pieces of wood with ether. They stirred, beginning to drift back together. A ghostly image of the canoe wavered above the water. Splinters of wood quivered. A bead of sweat dripped down Gladick's temple. The image of the canoe thickened until the water beneath it was as dim as a distant hill in a morning haze. Just as it looked ready to knit back together into an unbroken hole, the process stopped. After a final shudder, the pieces of wood fell back, going still. The ideal of the canoe faded away into nothing. Gladick lowered his hand and his face. I lack the power. What's done can't be undone. Well, it's not like we're totally screwed or anything, is it? Dante said. Which one of you volunteers to be the new boat? A complaint only reveals that the speaker cannot solve the problem before them. Oh, fuck off. This land has more vessels than... Any seven kingdoms put together, Naren said. Perhaps there is an abandoned boat somewhere on this island, or one of its neighbors. He jogged down the shore, sandals squelching. Volo had crouched down, and was still cradling the piece of canoe she'd fished from the swamp. There won't be another boat here, Dante said or else whoever's helping the prime body would have destroyed it, too. Blaze wandered forward, arms crossed. Build a raft. Unless we also build it a set of wings, we'll never catch up to them. We'll just raise a sail and power it with the wind of your bitching. Dante snorted. Right. You start gathering wood for the raft while I grow a field of hemp to beat into the sail. Blaze tipped back his head. Or we could skip all that, and you could grow us a canoe. From my canoe seeds, I knew I was forgetting something. Find yourself a plant and harvest it into a boat, you stupid ass. I know it'll be hard to find a tree in the middle of this gigantic forest, but I have faith in you. That's a pretty good idea. Dante turned back to the island's interior. Help me find a tree, then. Something young, but that's already got some growth to it. Blaze headed into the trees. As Dante went in a different direction, Gladick moved beside him. You are able to do that? Grow a boat from a tree? Theoretically. It's a skill I picked up in the Plagued Islands. 
It's amazing what people will share with you when you're not busy trying to conquer and enslave them. It was not my intent to enslave the plagued islands. Much more noble of you to prop up the bloodthirsty tower and, and have them enslave the place. Gladick clicked his mouth shut, gazing into the distance. All my life, I thought myself a beacon of moral clarity in an ocean of diseased minds. Visions of power turn us away from the gods. We are all worms in the same rotting log. Even if your hypothesis is true, some of us worms are less gross than others. Dante quickened his pace, intending to avoid a philosophical debate when he had boats to grow. Blaze hollered out from his right. Dante jogged over and found him standing in front of a ten-foot tree with leaves shaped like the feet of fat-toed geckos. I'm no expert, Blaze said, but judging from the leaves, trunk, branches, and fruit, I'd say this is a tree. It looked more than suitable, large enough to be established, but small enough to have a lot of growth ahead of it. Dante jabbed his arm with his knife, closed his eyes, and moved into the nether inside the tree, examining its structures. He was, at that point, a fairly decent harvester. He'd practiced the art on and off for over a year. He'd practically restocked the Colin Basin's granaries single-handedly. That, however, was relatively simple. It was one thing to make a plant grow as it wanted to. It was another thing altogether to make it grow as you wanted it to. After half a minute of poking around in the nether without finding anything obvious to help him, he concluded that sometimes the best way to learn was by diving in without caring if you failed. He focused on a low branch, gathering the nether near its base. A twig sprouted. Dante drew it downward until he had a vine-like extension long enough that its tip was resting on the ground. He stopped for a moment to walk around his creation. Someone get Vola over here, will you? As long as I'm doing this, I might as well do it right. Blaze waved his hands over his head and yelled for Vola, which was not what Dante meant for him to do at all. She trotted over dutifully. She was no longer carrying the bit of a ruined boat, presumably having buried it, pushed it off into the swamp, lit it on fire, and rubbed the ashes into her hair, or whatever it was that Tenarians did to properly dispose of the remains of their cherished boats. I'm about to grow us a new canoe, Dante said. You're the first person I've ever seen cry about losing one, so I'm guessing you have strong opinions about what makes a good one. Some of the sorrow left her young face. Canoes are what lets us trade, and visit each other, and get away from each other. They're what lets us explore new places, and what lets us escape when trouble comes to our village. When something is so important to everything we do, isn't the fool the person who doesn't care if he has a good boat or a bad one? Yes, agreed. Debate over. Just tell me how to make the damn thing. We'll start with the bow and work our way to the stern. 
That's your first mistake, dirt walker. In a good canoe, there is no bow or stern. They should be identical. That way, when you're in tight quarters, you don't have to flip the boat around. Just turn yourself around and start paddling the other way. After some questioning about angles, width, and depth, Dante kneeled next to the tip of the vine and reached into the nether. Green matter flowed from the end of the vine, expanding rapidly into the nose, or, he supposed, the stern of the canoe. As Volo watched, her eyes were as intensely focused as a surgeon operating on the king, but the gleeful smile on her face was that of a madwoman. She offered a few pieces of criticism about the sharpness of the prow. As Dante fixed this and moved on to expanding the body of the boat, the finished end hardened from a green, leafy texture into hardwood that was as dark as unadulterated coffee. The wood seemed to want to grow, and by leading the way with the nether, the tree extended itself happily, as if you were painting a boat in the middle of the air. When it was a third of the way finished, its growing weight caused it to tilt to the side. Volo dived forward and caught it before it could snap free of its fragile vine. With disaster averted, Dante finished the middle of the boat and moved on to sculpting the other end. The wood creaked pleasantly as it came together in a sharp point. With the hull finished, he extended seats across its interior. Volo's grin was wide enough to sail the canoe through. It's gorgeous! Not quite done. Dante branched a smaller vine from the one that he'd used to grow the boat. Once the new vine was long enough, he sprouted a bud from it, extending this into a short crossbar handle, then a long, smooth pole. At the far end, he flared the greenery into a shape resembling a flattened bottle of wine. After ensuring it met Volo's approval, he hardened it into wood, then duplicated it twice more. He cast the vines away from the completed pieces and stepped back from his work. What do you think? Volo dropped beside the boat, giving one end an exploratory lift. It's so light, and as smooth as glass, completely seamless. Bet it cuts through the water like an Odosayne sword. I'd kill for one of these. Unless it's the White Lich, no murder necessary. The boat's all yours. She swung up her head, searching his face for signs he was tricking her. I can't take this. It's a masterpiece. Well, I can't carry it home with me, so you might as well take it. Volo popped to her feet and hugged him tight. Thank you. When I pass this down to my children, I'll make them thank you too. He reached for the gunwale. Don't start thanking me yet. An hour from now and the prime body's guards could be bashing it into toothpicks. They picked it up and portaged it to the shore. It slid into the water like a knife being sheathed. The pressure of the link to the prime body had lessened significantly, but it remained steady enough to follow without difficulty.
Dante oriented them southward, and they struck out with all speed. Blaze drove his paddle into the water. Any idea who the prime bodies got traveling with him? Well, Dante said, as far as I know, today was Bob's shift, but he might have had to take time off to tend to his mother. She's got that swelling in her feet, you know. In that case, forgive me for wanting to know who or what we're about to do battle with. Volo twisted around, not missing a single stroke of her paddle. When it could be anything, isn't it better to prepare for nothing? What if you prepare to fight a fish, only to be rendered helpless against a bird? Then I'll aim higher. She's right, Dante said. If it's blighted, they won't be any trouble. If it's another sorcerer, then I expect it'll be weaker than the one they left behind to try to destroy us. Then again, I'm starting to think we've only seen a fraction of what the White Lich can muster. At least tell me we're gaining on them. Dante delved into the bond of blood. They've got several miles on us. We're not obviously gaining, but I don't think we're falling any further behind. It'll be a while before I can tell if the gap is growing or shrinking. The canoe whisked along so swiftly, the water hissed against its hull, a steady accompaniment to the rhythmic churn of the paddles. Dante closed his eyes and immersed himself in the link to the prime body. Were they gaining? Or was that just a trick of... Something tickled the far end of the link. If Dante hadn't been concentrating on the connection, he might not have felt it at all. The presence took up the end of the thread and began to advance along it with almost perfect stealth, its movement as subtle as the strokes of a Norrin line painting. Dante popped open his eyes. He knocked down an iridescent blue wasp that had been droning along beside the boat, reanimated it, and sent it buzzing south above the canopy with all the speed its wings could provide. Stone ruins peeped from the tree-coated islands. As the wasp flew closer to the prime body, the presence crept onward along Dante's bond to it. It was halfway to him when the wasp spotted the boats rushing on through the forest. The white lich! Dante's throat was so tight he could barely speak. He's less than ten miles ahead, and he'll reach the prime body long before we do. Gladick startled as if he'd been stung, making the canoe roll back and forth. How can this be so? It's been a mere three hours since the blighted in the tomb first saw us. He must have already been on his way there, to cover his only weakness. Wits will pass into his hands in a matter of minutes. We have failed. He will never let the prime body from his sight again. Dante expected someone to pipe up with an argument, perhaps even for one to stir in himself. But everyone was quiet. Naren lifted his paddle from the water and laid it across his lap. Blaze followed suit. After a few more strokes, Volo did the same. The canoe drifted forward on its own momentum before coming to a stop in the middle of the sun-dappled water.
So that's it, Bolo said. We're just giving up. Dante ran his hand down his face. We can't go after the prime body. The lich will smash us like a spider crawling toward the crib. Then what do we do? There is nothing more to be done. Gladick's voice was the monotone of the utterly defeated. This was our one chance to stop the disease before it can become a plague. With every day that passes, the Aedan Rane will convert more and more Tenarians into blighted. Each one swells not only his army, but also his personal strength. And we are already too weak to defeat the enemy head on. What shall we do against this? Attempt to rally allies to our cause? Most would scoff at the threat. Others might believe, but will be too afraid to fight. Those willing to heed our call will discover that, in the time it required for us to go to them for aid and then to return with them here, the enemy has become invincible. Gladick tipped back his head to the sky. The only power that can save us now is the gods. And they will do nothing. For most do not care, and the rest like to see us suffer. The finality of his words knocked them into a second silence. Bugs hummed along between the plants. A few stray bees visiting the fire-colored flowers that were beginning to bloom from the vines that looped between the trees. The lich is tracing the connection between me and the prime body, Dante said. Once he reaches the end, he'll know exactly where we are. He'll come straight for us. Gladick's voice lacked a single drop of doubt. The idea that we almost killed him will make him furious. You must sever the link. I know. But there's one thing I need to do first. While they'd been talking, the spying wasp had been following the lich's armada from on high. Now, Dante sent it north, back in the direction of the prime body. Aided in his hunt by the link in his head, he located the lone boat within five minutes. With the white lich closing in on his mind, an outcome which, if it came to pass, Dante feared might grant the enemy much more than the ability to feel where he was, Dante ordered the wasp to plunge down through the canopy. The boat was a double-hulled canoe crewed by a team of blighted boatsmen, overseen by a motionless figure whose face was the same color as his bleached white robes. A platform stretched between the two hulls, mounted by a small cabin. Dante sent the wasp straight toward it. It had no windows or portholes, but something between a door and a hatch was set into its rear. The frame was warped just enough for the wasp to wriggle through. The interior was dark, lit only by thin slices of light seeping through the edges of the door. In the center of the cramped space, 
a skeletally thin man lay curled fetally. He was nude, the prongs of his vertebrae stretching his skin, his knees and elbows as knobby as a malformed branch. Dante relocated the wasp to the ceiling for a better look, and almost wretched. The body's eyes and mouth were sewn into tight black lines. He was hairless, and his skin was a patchwork of seams, as if chunks of it had been replaced repeatedly along the centuries. His fingers were as long and thin as twigs, and he was missing most of his nails. He was twitching his fingers, drawing them over the cabin floor. He seemed to be tracing letters or symbols of some kind. But if so, it was from a language Dante had never seen. The tickling in his mind became a trembling, then a violent shaking as the white lich surged toward him across the blood bond. Dante cut the bond to the prime body, and their hopes with it. Lacking any real plan, they headed east, veering south once Dante was sure they were well away from the white lich's forces. Nobody said much except for mundane matters like asking for a water skin or a break from paddling. As dusk neared, Volo put them on an island half covered in frogs, whose skins were cornflower blue. The swamp typically stayed warm enough at night that there was no call for a fire, which was good, because Dante felt far too demoralized to try to drag together some dry wood. The five of them sat in a loose circle, gazing at the grass. Blaze frowned, leaned close to a green stalk, and held his hand to it. He lifted it, holding an insect that looked exactly like a stick with legs. The white lich only cares about enslaving humans, right? As the stick bug reached the end of his hand, Blaze flipped his palm over, letting the creature crawl to the other side. Clearly, the solution is to disguise ourselves as humble animals of some kind. Cats ought to work. He doesn't strike me as the sort of fella to care for cats. Sheep are better, Dante said. They're about the right size, and we could all hang around in the same flock. With plenty of normal sheep, of course. We wouldn't want to look like idiots. He reached for a handful of sour purple berries Volo had found upon their landing. Gladick, do you have any other ideas for how to come at him? Any other rumors? Old stories? Things the Drakebane was too scared to try? The priest appeared to be trying to stare through the horizon and into the other side of the world. Just as Dante was about to repeat himself, Gladick said, it is a miracle that we were even able to locate the prime body. If there were any other effective solutions, someone would have executed them long ago. Can we seal him back up? Let him be dealt with by whoever's around the next time he busts out? Even if I knew the process, which I do not, we would have to bring him back to the wound. He will know better than to fall for any tricks to get him there. 
Then what can we do? Make your peace, if you can, Gladick said. And then do what we are all here to do. Die. Blaze transferred the stick bug to his other hand. We could leave here and never talk about this again. That way no one has to worry about their coming doom until right before they're blighted. A breathtakingly humane proposal, Dante said. Remind me to nominate you for sainthood the next time we're in Narashtovic. No one had any other ideas. Dante hadn't really expected any. Walking to the other side of the island, he wondered if they shouldn't all just kill themselves. It would have the added benefit of stopping him from having to loom knack and explain everything that had happened, which he wanted to do about as much as he wanted to fall asleep with his feet dangling in the water. However, if there was one thing age and responsibility had taught him, it was that the overall pain of procrastination was higher than that of getting the chore done right away. With the daylight getting short, and fish rippling the water everywhere to bite at low-flying bugs, Dante opened his loon connection to Nack. Yes? Nack's voice was as upbeat as ever. Lord Dante! Hello, Nack. I was beginning to fear something had gone wrong. What happened then? That depends, Dante said. Remind me what I was about to do last time we talked. Well, you are about to sail in with that rebel outfit, the righteous monsoon, isn't it? And finally put an end to Gladick. Yes, that's what I was afraid of. Something has gone wrong. Don't tell me he escaped yet again. No, he's in our custody. Listen, Nag, do you remember when I asked you for anything in the archives about Tanaretain? and you told me that fairy story about the vampire of the deep swamps. I won't apologize for that. My intention was to provide you with everything I could find, and to let you decide what, if anything, was useful. It turned out to be wrong, but not in the way we expected. The vampire is real, and he's far, far worse than the stories told. Dante had little less than an hour before the loon shut down, and so he explained in only moderate detail about their attack on the wound of the world, and how they had indeed found Gladick, but hadn't realized that Gladick was actually in the process of attempting to destroy a long-buried evil that the monsoon was attempting to use to destroy the Drakebane dynasty. And how, after learning what the White Lich was, they'd deemed it necessary to keep Gladick around both for his knowledge of the Lich and of Tanaratain. Dante then summarized their recent efforts and failures to stop the Aiden Rane. No one's ever been able to destroy him, Dante concluded. But if we don't find a way, I believe it's possible that he's going to conquer everyone. By turning everyone into these blighted... Or things like them. 
But won't he eventually run out of power to raise more? Every necromancer has limits to how many undead he can command. Even Jack and himself had a limit to how many rats he could get to march to his tune. This is different. The larger the White Lich builds his force, the stronger he seems to get. That implies there's a point of no return. Once he crosses it, nothing will be able to defeat him. Come now, that violates everything we know about sorcery. Over the years, it has become readily apparent to me that most of what we know about sorcery is that everything we thought we knew about it was wrong. Footsteps sounded through the loon. Knack was pacing. If I was the one telling you this, you'd tell me that I was an ignorant fool. So rather than it being the case that this white lich is such an exceptional figure that he doesn't have to obey the known rules, and who is, in fact, capable of the exact opposite of what all experience has shown us to be true, isn't it more likely that you're wrong, and that he will shortly reach the end of his ability to command more blighted? Nobody here seems to think so. The Tenarians know everything, do they? Haven't you always been the sort to scoff at local beliefs, then attempt to expose them as ridiculous superstitions while you uncover the real truth of the matter? You could be right, Dante said, calming himself. We're in a strange land that's virtually unknown outside of its own borders. And the only person we know here is somebody I've spent the last year alternately trying to kill and avoid being killed by. Meanwhile, the enemy we're contending with is like nothing I've ever seen before. Given all of the above, it's not easy to know what's true. We could be overestimating the White Lich. Ah, it's been so long since I heard the sweet tune of sense. I thought I'd never... However, the point remains that we are at least partly responsible for his release, and even if he's not capable of consuming the entire world, I've already watched him consume a Tenarian village. He'll cause far more death than that before he's done. We have to find a way to eliminate him, but we don't have the strength to do it ourselves. It might have slipped your mind, busy as you are... But you do rule an entire citadel full of some of the most highly trained priests and monks on the continent. I could dispatch some of them to you. We'll do that, but it'll take months for them to arrive. Who knows how powerful the White Lich will be by then? And we need to plan for the possibility, however remote you might think it is, that he is as dangerous as the Tenarians say. Preparing a defense against that is going to require more than a few months. Hmm. Have you considered diplomacy? Well, we and the White Lich have already tried to kill each other three times now, and he keeps trying to enslave me. But I'm sure we'll be able to hash out our differences over a nice pot of tea. Not with him, you fool. A uh, foolishly great leader. 
I was referring to our allies, and potential allies. Like who? Galador. They have a few sorcerers around, don't they? And they're exceedingly loyal, especially since you completed that tunnel for them into the Western Kingdoms. Dante scratched the side of his jaw. They'll help us, but they can't afford to send much, not with the Gascons itching to return them to the Empire's grip. And the Colin Basin? They are much closer, and it seems as though they should owe us something as much as Galador. Unfortunately, they're too morally stunted to realize their obligations to us. Besides, as far as I know, they only have a single sorcerer in the whole place. Malin stole away anyone else who showed the talent. The Norin, then. They're loyal. Sort of. No nethermancers there, either. And I doubt their woodsmanship would be much use in these swamps. Still, a few of them might be useful to have around. Warn the rest that it might be a good idea to cut back on their feuding for a little while. There's always Pocket Cove, Nack said. Although, after they got us into Wesley, they probably think that you owe them. This might sound insane, but our best bet for an ally might be Malin. Malin? You've been halfway at war with them since the Plagued Islands. And their leadership has just been forcibly replaced by scheming foreigners. We could offer to help them restore order in exchange for their help putting down the White Lich. Nack grew thoughtful. How exactly are you going to broker this alliance? It will take at least a month to get our envoys down there. Rorschach and Sorowen are still in Bressel. They can start right away. You want to unite two ancient enemies in battle, and you plan to do this using an acolyte and a thief as diplomats? Rorschach's not a thief. She's an assassin. Given what Malin's up against, they might take her more seriously than some oil-haired dandy. Wouldn't that be something? Malin and Narashtivik working together as friends. Do you think such an alliance could last? We're too different for that. But better to have peace until the time when we remember to start hating each other again. I want you and the council to come up with ideas to make this happen. We shall convene at once. Beyond organizing whatever aid we can muster, right now what we need most is information. Records of the White Lich, or anything like him. Hopefully we'll turn up something we can use to kill him. A quill scratched in the background. Shall I dispatch a ship to the Hukali Islands? Bearing gifts. I'm not sure their monks have the highest opinion of Narashtavik. Send your fastest rider to Pocket Cove, too. They were establishing themselves around the same time as the Aiden Rani. They might know something about him. I could send a rider to Pocket Cove, but it seems to me that it might be faster to simply ask Min. She's still there. She was operating on the foolish assumption that you two would be back when you said you'd be. Nack left to go fetch her.
shutting down the loon connection so as not to drain the nether. Five minutes later, the loon pulsed in Dante's ear. Dante? Min sounded slightly distant. The loon was bound to nag, and she was likely standing next to him. Have you ever heard of someone called the Aiden Rani? Dante said. The White Lich? The what? Do you realize you have the strangest conversations? He's a... person. Of sorts. A sorcerer who has supposedly been alive since about the same time your people founded Pocket Cove. I wondered if you knew anything about him. No, but there's a lot at Pocket Cove that the elders keep to themselves. Is this serious? Extremely. Can I convince you to go ask them for me? Yes. Although, I feel like I ought to extract a concession from you in exchange. Name it. Grant us a title of some kind. Min said. It doesn't have to be proper nobility. I just want to be able to browbeat people when they get snotty with me. Very well. Dante swatted at a fly that wouldn't leave him alone. They were running out of Volo's anti-bug paste and had started to ration. I hereby declare you and Blaze to be the fishmaster and fishmistress of Canal Street. Isn't this the strangest thing? It seems I just forgot where Pocket Cove is. Okay, hang on. Make that the honored tribarons of the sealed citadel. That's a lordly sounding mouthful. I'll leave tomorrow morning. Oh, and one more request. Yes, Min. Don't let Blaze get hurt. I never do. He gets wounded all the time and always comes home without so much as a scratch. I wouldn't mind a scar or two, Min laughed. I'll be at the cove within a week. Her footsteps retreated from the room. Nack said, While I was off finding her, I was thinking about how odd it would be that the founding of Pocket Cove was taking place at the same time this lich of yours was first attempting to seize Tanaretain. And how, right before that, you had the Russian and Elson locked in a deathly struggle for Narashtivik that resulted in the finding of Selen, the raising of the Wodens, and all of that business. What was in the air back then that so much was happening in such a short period? Greatness doesn't emerge from a vacuum. It inspires itself in others. Dante smacked the back of his leg, which had been brushed by what he hoped was a sprig of grass. Or maybe it's about being challenged. The nethermancers of Narashtivik have learned more in the last dozen years of strife than in the two centuries before that. Now think about all the troubles they were going through a thousand years ago. That would explain why they seem to have known so much more than we do. Yet, how was all of that lost? I suppose they finally ran into a challenge they couldn't overcome. They both fell quiet. Before they could stare too deeply into the abyss, Knack brightened. I'd better get to it then. As they say, the only cure for hard times is hard work. Get a team to check the archives, too, and summon the council, 
Tell them everything I've told you, and that I need all the ideas I can get. He closed the connection. Twilight had fallen, casting the swamp into surreal shades of purple and steel. The voices of the others drifted from the camp. Dante had no new answers, but speaking with Nack had cleared his mind. If nothing else, the outside world would soon be aware of the darkness spreading across Tanara Tain. And the great gears of Narashtivik were rolling into action. Priests gathering to share counsel, monks paging through the stacks in search of lost secrets, riders spilling forth from the gate to seek the wisdom of other lands. It was almost enough to make him forget that all this activity was happening over twelve hundred miles away. Before he could lose his motivation, Dante pulsed Sorowan's loon. He wasn't certain the boy would answer. Before, the acolyte had kept the loon hidden away, only wearing it for prearranged talks. But Sorowan answered immediately. Lord Galland? The boy's voice pitched up. We haven't heard from you in days. We thought you were dead. No, Dante said, and was right about to begin to explain when he realized he had no energy to go through it all again. Fortunately, Sorowan was of grossly inferior stature, and Dante owed him no explanation whatsoever. We've run into difficulties. They're ongoing. But I have news for you. That new fleet Malin built, it wasn't to invade the Colin Basin. They're using it to transfer Tenarians into Bressel. Ah, right. Why? It's related to the difficulties here. The extremely condensed version is that it turns out Gladick, as evil as he is, was here to destroy something even more evil. Being ignorant of this, when we tried to enact justice for his crimes, we ended up stopping him from destroying the thing that's much worse than he is. And now things are so terrible that the Emperor decided to move everyone he likes to Malin instead. That explains the riots and the priests turning on each other, and all the warring, the cities in complete anarchy. But it hasn't fallen to the insurrection yet? No, but I would say it's about to. How can you be sure? Uh, Sorobin said, well, for one thing, the king's dead. King Charles? Wasn't that the name of the King of Malin? Yes. You grew up in Bressel. Yeah. Then it was definitely King Charles. That was a few days ago. The Pikes of Faith, that's what the rebels call themselves, have taken more and more of the city ever since. They're going to take control of the entire thing, once the Emperor brings back his first fleet load of Tenarians. If you and Rorschach haven't already figured this out, you guys don't have to worry about Malin invading the Colin Basin anymore. They've got way too much on their hands for that. But I've got a new job for you. After the Drakebane takes command of Bressel, there's going to be a resistance movement. I need you and Rorschach to join it. Uh... The loon picked up the sound of Sorrowin scuffing his shoe in the dirt. But... 
Didn't you just say the resistance is about to lose? Yes, so if I'd asked you to fight in it or take charge of it, you might have something to worry about, which makes it a good thing that I'm merely telling you to join its fringes and see if you can identify its leaders. What if Rasha says no? Dante swore, abruptly certain that she would. It was most inconvenient to need things from people who weren't required to follow your orders. Tell her there's no time to negotiate now, but that she'll be paid fairly. Sorrowin sighed. She's going to yell at me, but I'll do my best. See that you do. As Dante reached to tap the loon, he stopped his hand. One last thing. If at any time you haven't heard from me in a week or more, pack up your things and return to Narashtavik, and tell Rorschach she has no further obligations to the Citadel. You think you might... Do you understand me? Yes, Lord. Good. Keep yourself safe. Dante closed down the loon. Stars reflected from the dark water. After staring at them for a minute, Dante turned and rejoined the others. Everyone but Gladick was asleep, or at least attempting to be. They'd lost nearly all of their gear when the canoe was destroyed, however, leaving them without blankets or coverings of any kind other than the clothes on their backs. They didn't have much food, either. Would have to do something about that. Such details seemed very tedious, but Dante supposed that tending to them would give them something to do until they came to terms with the idea that they'd blown their only shot. While the others slept, Gladig sat apart from them, back turned as he scratched something out onto a palimpsest. Now that they weren't actively pursuing the white lich, the old man's presence felt different. It would be exceedingly easy to draw a sword and put it through his back. Gladick looked up from his work, glancing over his shoulder. Dante turned away and started tamping down the grass to make his bed. He supposed they should set watch. Then again. If the Aedan Rane came for them that night, what would it matter? There was something disproportionately uncomfortable about sleeping without any form of blanket, and Dante found himself waking time after time, tickled by the grass or the tiny legs of what he fervently hoped weren't spiders. He got up for good at the first graying of the east, happy to be out of the grass, even though he was still completely exhausted. When Blaze got up a while later, he took one look at Dante and laughed. You look like you've been blighted. Good. I won't feel guilty when I eat your limbs for sustenance. How much do you have left to eat? Just what I had in my pack. Split it with me. I don't have anything. That's because you ate all yours last night. Look, I'm the one doing you a favor. Either you can share part of it with me, 
or I'll steal all of it for myself. Dante reached for his bag. You think so? Yes, I... Blaze vanished into the shadows, rematerialized at Dante's back. Do. Concluding that the only way to end this torment was to comply, Dante split the rest of his nuts and dried fish. It wasn't enough for either of them, and they made a quick pass of the island, turning up a few more of the purple berries they'd eaten the day before. Dante was almost sure they were the same kind, anyway, but being generally not a fan of the type of diarrhea that often accompanied the consumption of the wrong type of berries, he double-checked with Volo, who confirmed they were edible. She eyed her share. Isn't much to fill you up, though. Well, no, Blay said. But if we plant them in the ground, and water them, and care for them for several years, then it won't matter how few of them we had to begin with, as we'll all have starved to death. Dante motioned into the trees. We need to find a village, or a city, if there are any of those nearby. What about the whole invincible lich and his undead army thing? We'll go back to ruminating on our utter failure after we've secured the basic necessities of life. Volo pinched her upper lip. Halo Vey isn't far, but it's back toward the Aiden Rani. Get us there. I'll make sure that we're not seen. He knocked down a pair of dragonflies, which he'd found to be the fastest and stoutest of the available insects, and sent them whirring ahead. The five of them piled into the canoe, discovering that the one upside to having no supplies was that meant you had nothing you needed to pack. The day was the warmest yet, and the paddlers were all soon sweating. Blaze and Volo chatted some, but Naren hardly said a word, and Gladick spent the time looking like he was trying to remember how to perform advanced mathematics. It was mid-morning, and everyone's stomach was growling by the time the dragonflies broke into the village clearing. The village is there, Dante reported, the people who live there are not. Blaze winced. Blighted. I'm not seeing any remains, or bloodstains. If the lich blighted this place, his first order to his new servants was to scrub it spotless. The canoe entered the wide clearing that held the village. No smoke rose from the communal ovens and grills, no people tended the stands of banana trees or the tuba paddies. Blaze stopped paddling. How many more villages are we going to see like this? It wears at the soul, Naren said. Volo ducked her head, surveying the silent fields and empty houseboats. If you see enough of it, that wears your soul down to nothing, right? And you can't go on any more. Does that mean there's a limit to how much good any of us can do before we give up? Gladick shifted on his bench. Is that what happened to the gods? Ah! Blaze pointed at one of the stands of trees at the edge of the village. Bananas! A large bunch hung from the crown of one of the trees. Most of the fruits were still green, but a few near the end were yellow 
and those at the very end had fallen to the ground, the peels browned and splitting. The uncollected fruit drove home the desolation even more than the abandoned homes. Volo altered course toward the small square island, bringing them onto the soft dirt of its fringe. Blaze hopped out, drew his sword, and hacked through the trunk. Rather than being hardwood, these were made of a dense and fibrous pulp closer in consistency to a giant stalk of celery, and yielded easily to steel, the tree splashing down in the water. With a flick of his wrist, Blaze severed the banana bunch from its thick green stalk. He wiped down his sword and hefted the bunch, trying to avoid the absurdly sticky white sap that gushed from where it had been cut. As if by mutual decision, they each ate two of the fruit to quell the rumbling in their stomachs, dropping the peels into the water. They stashed the green ones in the back of the canoe. Volo directed them to the gates and the nets surrounding the village proper. They're wide open! Her jaw dropped in horror and affront. That's a beating for sure! A shadow passed over Dante. They didn't bother to close it because they knew they weren't coming back. They docked on the long pier, bisecting the net-enclosed water. Dante entered the nearest of the raft-mounted shacks. Only a bit of dirt lay on the floor, suggesting that, as with the bananas, the villagers had left within the last few days. Feeling mildly guilty, Dante made his way through the household's possessions, collecting spoons carved from bone. In the swamps, even tin was too precious to waste on cutlery, and some bottled foodstuffs. In contrast to the spoons, glassware was so common in Tanaritain that even village peasant farmers kept their pickles and preserves in colored glass containers that would have sold for good money in any northern market. To conserve what little space they had, the beds were framed with a lightweight plant similar to wicker or bamboo and slung against the walls, where they could be secured upright when not in use. The raft's beds had been left down, the blankets rumpled. Dante lifted one and sniffed it. It smelled like another person, but not especially unpleasant. Even so, the idea of using a stranger's bedding, and likely a dead stranger at that, struck him as more objectionable than sleeping in the grass. After considering it for a moment, he called forth a wave of nether to beat at the blanket. When he lifted it, no vermin fell from it, yet he felt mollified nonetheless. They picked through a few more houses, replenishing their lost equipment, then gathered in the shade of a vine-colored trellis that ran down a third of the dock. While the others had been salvaging, Volo had used a fishing line and net to bring in a few fish. They lit one of the communal grills to heat the fish, leaving the skin on, then sat down for a proper meal laying the meat on banana leaves, and accompanying it with various pickled vegetables Dante had never seen before. 
Well, Blay said as the meal wound down. He leaned back and planted his palms on the dock. We've robbed our way back to competence. Do we have a new plan? Or is it time to try out the life of the vagabond? Dante used a fishbone to pick a shred of onion from his teeth. I spoke with Snack. He's making arrangements to send us a team of nethermancers, but it'll take two months before they're here. Too long. Gladick nodded to the empty village. By then, the Aiden Rane will have an army. You guys know his weakness, Volo said. Why don't you go and kill the prime body? Because he'd slaughter us. Dante flicked the fishbone into the water. There's no way to get close to him without him knowing about it. Blaze pressed his fist to his mouth and belched under his breath. What if we got everyone to evacuate the country? Without fresh blood, the lich won't be able to make more blighted, or swell his own power any further. How does that beat him? Do you suppose he'll die of loneliness? I suppose that it will cause him to stagnate, buying us time for our friends to arrive, at which point the smiting happens. Where do we evacuate tens of thousands of people to? A big mass on the coast, where the lich can kill them all at once? That's one option. But how about anywhere that isn't here? They won't have any homes. No food, either. If they stay here, they're going to become food. By the time we sail around to even half the villages, he'll have taken the other half. Besides, most people won't go, because some of them will be idiots about it, and some of those who wouldn't typically be idiots about it are even bigger idiots who support the righteous monsoon, which thinks the Aedan Rane is going to lead them to freedom. It won't work. Blaze scowled. It'll save a whole bunch of people. I'd call that working. It would only save them temporarily while taking up all our time that we could be using to save them permanently. Dante tapped his fingers on his knee. Maybe the best thing to do is hang back. Watch him closely and see if he makes any mistakes that we can pounce on. Gladick, what do you think he'll do from here? The old priest gazed blankly into the rows of empty boats. He has lived and planned for too long to make basic mistakes. He will continue to pass from settlement to settlement, absorbing them to himself. Once he and his legions are of sufficient size, he will bring them to bear against a city. There, his power will be doubled in one blow. That wasn't at all what I wanted to hear. Blaze got to his feet and paced across the dock. Figure out which city he'll hit and fortify the hell out of it. Set up traps to separate him from the prime body. Urban warfare is always a nightmare. It'll be a wonder if it doesn't open up a shot at his weakness. Not bad, Dante said. But it's very contingent. 
And if we prepare well enough to actually take him down, it's likely he'll hit somewhere else instead. He blinked in thought and turned to Gladick. You and the Drakebane had a plan to kill him in a straight-up fight. Why wouldn't the same thing work now? Gladick gestured in simple dismissal. The Aedan Rane was at his weakest, then. Even if we had the same force right now, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be the same force. It would include me and Blaze. And we wouldn't be attacking the White Lich. We'd be ignoring him while we put an end to the Prime Body. Gladick raised his white eyebrows, but his interest died the next moment. Our attack relied on the Knights of the Odosain suppressing the Lich's sorcery. Without them, we stand no chance in direct battle. Let me guess. There aren't any of them left. Most died fighting the Lich or the Rebels. Those that survived left with the Drakebane. They would never desert him. Ah. Shit, then. Indeed. This is the first time I have felt hope since the Prime Body fled from us. We should take this idea to the Drakebane, Naren said. If it's that sound, it should convince him to return with his knights. Impossible. The Odosain are key to his ability to hold on to Bressel. He would not risk losing them. Gladick smiled darkly. Besides which, the Drake Bane fears the Aedan Rane worse than death itself. He agreed to the assault at the Wound of the World because he believed it was his last chance to save his nation. It is clear that he believes this land has passed beyond saving. Dante folded his arms. We have nothing to lose by trying. I have agents in Bressel. I'll have them speak to the Drakebane. And when they fail, what then do we do? I don't know. See about Blaze's plan to fortify a city. Or maybe we can see if Volo can infiltrate the monsoon, if she's willing. We may be able to feed them fake information to try to lure the Lich into a trap. Gladick said nothing. Somehow, this was worse than any spoken criticism. Dante stood. We'll make for the nearest city. We need to start recruiting the Tenarians to our cause. Hang on, Blaze said. Gladick, you said that every Odosain is dead or gone. Where did they come from in the first place? Gladick lifted his bony shoulders. Their powers are a great secret. Anyone who shared such information, especially with worthless Hari foreigners, would be skinned from the waist down, tied to the back of a canoe so that the legs and genitals dangled in the water, and then sailed about until the swamp took its course. They seriously do that. Or is that what you would do? It is a punishment reserved only for crimes that could undo the Empire itself. Whatever happened to good old-fashioned beheadings? 
In any event, the Odosain don't fall out of the womb dressed in dragon scale and waving their magic swords about, do they? Don't they need training of some kind? They have an academy. Gladick rocked back his head. You wonder if there might be any trainees there. The Drake Bane lit out of here like he was being chased by a thousand-year-old madman, right? What are the chances he swung by the academy to pick up all the nightlings on his way out? There may be some with the skill to help us, but it can't be done. I don't know where the academy is. Blaze motioned to Volo. You seem to know the location of every drop of water in this swamp. You know where this academy might be? I didn't even know there was an academy, Volo said. The stories I heard were that the knights were immortal servants, like zombies, but people. I don't suppose it's a great use of our time to comb the swamp for something we have no idea what it looks like. For the record, though, I think this was a pretty great idea. Gladick lowered his chin. He had that faraway look on his face again. I don't know where the Academy is, but I know someone who does. Dante spread his palms in a shrug. So what? I thought they wouldn't tell a foreigner anything about that, on pain of having their balls eaten by Ziki Oko. Those were the old rules. With the coming of the Aiden Rane, my source may be made to see reason. After a quick and fruitless sweep for survivors in the village of Halo Vey, they struck out for Darabod. According to Gladig, his source, an official named Fade Alu, lived there. Or had, at least prior to events like the Righteous Monsoon's Rebellion that had seized the capital, and the release of the White Lich, and the fleeing of the Drakebane to Bressel, along with his soldiers' cabinet and thousands of others. A lot had changed, in other words, and as they carried on southward, moving back toward Tanaratane's particular version of civilization— Dante worried that they'd wind up wasting their time searching for a man who was no longer there. Then again, it was the best plan they had, and at least it would be much easier to get in and out of the cities than back when Dante had been trying to hide his skills from Volo. During the day, they passed two other settlements. Both times, they diverted to approach the people there and warned them what was happening further north. The villagers looked back and saw three wretched foreigners in the company of a Tenarian girl who barely looked old enough to own her own boat. Yet their scorn fell apart like damp bread when Volo challenged them to send a scout to Halo Vey and see for themselves. As they paddled away from the second village, Blaze turned about to watch them send a boatsman out past the nets. Ah, good. They're actually sending someone. Finding all their friends dead will teach them to insult our credibility. Well, it will, Dante said, along with the side benefit of possibly saving their lives. This feels like madness. The Drake Bane's gone, 
and the monsoon wants to feed these people to the lich. There's no one to protect them. They'll be slaughtered. And we're doing the only thing we can to stop it. Blaze shook his head. I know, but I wish we could do more. As the day wound down, Dante's dragonfly spotted a double-hulled war canoe patrolling their way. Until quite recently, the swamp's roots had been held down by the Drakebane's soldiers, but this ship flew the colors of the monsoon. Volo turned hard to port, detouring for half a mile before continuing to the south. With dusk coming on, they paddled a few hundred yards away from the watery thoroughfare to put in at another island for the night. They ate and made camp. It was starting to sprinkle, so they strung up an oiled canvas tarp they'd taken from Halo Bay. Once this was up, rather than moving under it, Gladick continued to sit in the rain, letting the droplets flatten his white hair to his head. For some reason, his refusal to get up and move to the shelter not ten feet away annoyed Dante worse than a horsefly. When he couldn't take it any more, Dante got up and stood over the old man. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've just now invented a way to keep the rain off our heads. I think we'll call it a rain beater. Gladick didn't bother to look his way. Have you come to the realization yet? That it's annoying to be asked vague questions? The Aiden Rane points to a single conclusion, that in the end, we cannot win. Sure we can. I'd bet you three tons of silver that you used to think you could never be beaten either. Even this didn't provoke so much as a glare. Even if we are able to slay the Lich and disperse all remnants of what might be called his soul, Eventually, a power like him will arise again, and again. Someday, that power will not be defeated, and all of the world will fall. You have no way to know that. As far as we know, he's the only one who's ever figured this out which is supported by the fact that nobody's been able to replicate his work in the last thousand years. People always seek power, over each other, and over death. Do not tell me that you have not pursued immortality yourself. Dante crossed his arms. And I failed quite spectacularly to find it. I certainly have no idea how to turn everyone on Earth into my undead slaves. You don't want to believe this because it hurts to do so. Then turn away from the pain, if it is too much for you. Even if you're right, and it's inevitable that one day a great sorcerer is going to destroy everything, what does it matter? Each one of us knows we're going to die someday, but that doesn't mean life isn't worth living. Perhaps someday the world will end. Until that day comes, people will keep loving and fighting and being afraid 
and finding the courage to go on. We can't save the world forever, but we can save it for now. At last, Gladick glanced at him, briefly and sidelong. Is it true that you have seen the afterlife? Where'd you hear that? From one of the many people I sent to spy on you. Dante pressed his knuckles to his mouth. He still wasn't sure how to treat the matter of revealing his knowledge to the priest. Assuming they did go on to eliminate the White Lich, they still had to deal with Gladick, didn't they? However much good the priest did here, it wouldn't undo the murder of Captain Twill, to say nothing of the thousands of lives lost in the plagued islands and at Colin. There would be a reckoning. When it came, Dante didn't want Gladig to know all of his tricks. At the same time, there was zero guarantee that they would win. The best way to increase their chances was to pool knowledge and work together without reservations. Countless lives depended on it. The calculus was ugly, but it was clear. Yes, Dante said. I've been there. So has Blaze. Is it like they say it is? Like we say it is? He laughed out loud. Not in the slightest. I thought not. Will you tell me the truth of what awaits us? It isn't a singular place. In fact, it's three. The first is known as the Pastlands. Usually it takes the form of a good memory, or something you've always wished for. When you're there, you don't know you're dead, or that anything's wrong. You just repeat the same things, over and over. And to you, there's nothing wrong with that, because it's what you've always wanted. Except that the Pastlands is a trap. It doesn't want you to leave. Gladick furrowed his brow. Why? Hell if I know. Maybe the landlords get to charge ourselves rent. Or maybe the gods meant this as a reward. Live out your dream in perfect peace, over and over, until the day you finally get disillusioned of it. Whatever the case, once you find your way out of the past lands, you reach the mists. It's both everyday and idyllic. Your normal life, but without violence or death. If I had to guess, it's a way to live out anything you missed before you died, leaving you without regrets, and to make peace with the fact that it's over. That does not sound unpleasant. It isn't. But after a while, everyone moves on. Into the world, see. I never saw it. Only the dead can go there. My understanding is that when you cross over, you become a part of everyone that ever was, and drift as one forever. The old man considered this, then gave Dante a piercing look. 
then there is a way we can escape his power. We can die, and enter a world that will be forever beyond him. While you are technically correct, I feel as though that would defeat the purpose here. Perhaps. Gladick lifted his left hand to the side of his head and closed his eyes. Ether sparked from his fingers toward his temple. Dante shouted out and grabbed for a chunk of nether. He clubbed it into the light, dispersing them both. What the hell are you doing? What does it look like? I am thwarting the lich. More light beamed from Gladick's hand. Better prepared, Dante thrusted it with a dagger of shadows. He grabbed for Gladick's hand. Stop that! You can't just fry your own head off! The others had rushed from beneath the tarp to watch from ten feet away. Gladick flapped his hand at Dante. You are welcome to join me. It will solve everything. Or you can waste your days hovering over me like an overbearing mother until the lich has won his prize and you have done nothing to stop him. Dante ground his teeth together, keeping the nether tight and pacing in front of Gladick. If there was no white lich to worry about, and you found a way to live for as long as you liked, how long would you stick around? What manner of question is that? You can find out by answering it. Gladick snorted. No less than centuries. Perhaps as much as forever. There is always more to see, and if you traveled across the world... By the time you returned home, you would find that it was now a new place, and so was everywhere else that you had once visited. Right, which is decidedly untrue of the mists. First of all, from what I can tell, you are confined to a relatively small portion of them, either the land you died or where you consider home. I'm not sure. I didn't really die, so I might not have been subject to the same rules. All I know is that you don't get to travel wherever you please. If you died now, you might find yourself stuck in the misty equivalent of Bressel, unable to leave the city. Or you could be trapped right here in the afterlife's version of this fetid swamp. Second, as it turns out, most people don't stay in the mists for more than a couple hundred years, and a lot leave within a single lifetime, or even a handful of years. There isn't the sense of danger that we have here, the urgency. Here, you have to get things right. There, it doesn't matter. There's no striving to better yourself, no history to participate in. The mists are boring, you fool. That's why everyone moves on, usually sooner rather than later, to pass into the world sea. And then, Whatever you are ceases to exist. Gladick stared at Dante for a moment, then lowered his hand from his head to his lap. That is why they lie to us about the afterlife, because if we knew the truth, we would not be afraid to do wrong. Not when there are no punishments or repercussions. We would be free to do anything. Sensing the drama was over, 
The others quit watching and moved back under the tarp. Dante soon joined them. Gladick sat alone in the rain for a while yet, then crawled beneath the shelter. In the morning, they struck out as soon as it was light enough to see whether there were any swamp dragons in their path. Volo told them it would take two days to reach Darabode. Crossing under the boughs, with the morning sun poking through in yellow fingers, Dante wondered what the Aedan Rane was up to. Then realized he didn't have to wonder. The lich would be ensuring no harm could come to the prime body. And once that was done, he would be traveling from village to village, absorbing the people there into himself. Blaze stifled a yawn. Say, Volo, considering that you are the only right and honorable Tenarian among us, and that the rest of us are a bunch of filthy hari, you think we'll have any problems getting into the city? She shook her head, a dark ponytail sweeping her shoulders. Nah, by law, any settlement has to let the people who do my work inside, even the capital. That was the law under the Drake Bane. But that revolution you were part of is calling the shots now. I don't think even the monsoon would be that heretical. Dante was less convinced, but supposed they'd be in a better position to find out once they were upon the city. And they were still dressed in monsoon jabats, which might make things a little easier. He spent most of the morning in thought. As noon neared, he turned to Gladick. That thing the lesser lit was doing, throwing his blood at us. Have you ever seen something like that before? Gladick gave a quick jerk of his chin. You neither. Never even heard of such a thing. Did it seem to you that he was amplifying his powers? More that he may have been expending somewhat less energy than typically necessary to achieve such results. Which might be a way of saying the same thing. He was just flicking his blood around. Any ideas as to why that would work? The priest narrowed his eyes, deepening his crow's feet. Blood attracts Nertha. You yourself employ it to magnify the shadow's strength. Yet you do so in a passive way. Perhaps a more active use results in more active nether. Plausible. What are your thoughts? This time, Dante only hesitated a moment before deciding to reveal them. Along similar lines. But I don't think it's as simple as just flinging your blood around. If it was, somebody else would have figured it out a hell of a long time ago. Whereas, what the lesser lich did had the whiff of a lost art, or one he had developed over centuries of isolation. Exactly. We already know certain skills have been lost to time. It isn't hard to believe there's been others. Dante drummed his fingers against the gunwale. Who was that guy, anyway? A sorcerer, right? 
The only other possibility would seem to be an unusually talented dancer. So when the White Lich turns you, he doesn't have to turn you into a blighted. You can keep your powers, your personality. Gladick shrugged. If he was able to turn himself into the Aedan Rane, why would he be incapable of replicating the effect in others, if only to a lesser degree? How much independence do they have? I have gathered a selection of stories on this matter. They agree that while the Lich's lieutenants are able to think and act of their own will, ultimately they are each bound to the Aedan Rane's commands to such extent that thoughts of treason would be inconceivable to them. This sounds like bad news. If we send sorcerers against him, can he turn them against us? If they choose to join him, absolutely. But if they are unwilling, I am not sure. Gladick toyed with a loose thread on his jabat. Would you like to know why I collected these stories of the lesser liches? I don't know. So you stood less chance of getting murdered by them? I was considering whether it would be better to join him or to be destroyed. And you chose to be destroyed. Indeed. I thought it would please tame. Gladick's shoulders jerked. He broke into laughter, its peals drowning out the buzz of the insects. Deciding that the canoe was perhaps not the appropriate venue for sloppy bloodshed, Dante waited to begin his experiments until they made landfall for the night. As usual, they camped near the center of the island to hide themselves from passing boats, so Dante padded toward the north shore. There, he produced his knife and cut the tips of his ring fingers enough to bleed steadily. Cutting his fingertips took a much more concerted mustering of willpower than the back of his arm, but he promised himself that he would heal the damage soon enough. He was too self-conscious to do any twirling about. Blaze would never let him live it down. So he contented himself with flicking his wrists like whips, snapping beads of blood from his fingers. The nether darted after it, as quick and hungry as Ziki Oko but not in any way that looked noticeably different from when it came to a cut on his arm. Still, was it more effective? How could he even measure such a thing? He crouched over the ground, drew a small portion of nether to his palm, and frowned. He got up, meaning to go back to camp and fetch a spoon, then spied a nutshell on the ground. One half had cracked, and the meat inside had been eaten by fungus. He scooped out the remains and removed the cracked side, leaving him with an intact half. He summoned the nether again, filling the nutshell to the brim. Once he was satisfied the surface was level, he brushed aside the leaves from a patch of bare ground and sent the shadows into the earth, softening the soil and drawing it aside until the nether ran out. The resulting depression was roughly a cubic foot in size. 
Dante filled the nutshell again, ensuring it was to the same level as before, then snapped his right hand at the ground. At the same time, he commanded the nether toward the falling specks of blood. The shadows swirled violently as they plunged into the ground. Again, he used every drop to soften and remove the dirt. The second hole looked no bigger nor smaller than the first. He measured them using his hands and found they were the same size, or at least close enough that he couldn't tell the difference. Cursing under his breath, he repeated the experiment just to make sure nothing funny had happened, but the results were the same. It was possible, however, that the blood flicking, he made a mental note to come up with a more impressive name, in the event he discovered how to harness its power, simply didn't apply to earth moving. The lesser lich had used it on offense and defense. He searched about for and found a smaller nutshell and filled it with nether. Shaping this into a small boat, he rammed it into the trunk of a large tree. He refilled the shell, flipped blood at the tree, and struck it again. Leaning close, he couldn't see any difference between the two holes he'd knocked in it. With the sunlight getting scarce, he backed away from experiments in favor of simply whipping a bit of blood around, sending the nether to it, and observing the results. By nightfall, this had gotten him exactly nowhere. He healed his fingers and trudged back to camp. The next day kept him busy watching the path ahead with a trio of nimble dragonflies, warning Volo whenever they were neared by a monsoon patrol boat. Now that they'd seized the capital, the rebels seemed to have taken on a new set of colors, a white flag set with two circles, one light blue, the other dark. The soldiers were dressed in similar colors. The uniforms Dante and the others wore had become outdated. As they neared Darabode, the patrols grew more frequent, detouring them on five different occasions. By sunset, they were still miles from the capital, but Volo paddled on. Blaze laid his paddle across the gunnels and motioned to the west. I know it's easy to miss now that the sun's going down, but did you notice that the sun's going down? Volo didn't break pace. What? Are your arms getting tired? We can be there in two hours. Silly me. I forgot that city guards love letting foreigners inside the walls after dark. It's better this way. We maggots come at all hours of the day to collect our bodies. What about us for Hari? Dante said. Your advisors. Brought here to speak to the monsoon. She brightened. About the Drake Bane's plans in Malin, which is where you are from. That's more plausible than half the stories we've used to get into places that didn't want us there. Still, now that the capital's under rebel control, we should treat it like hostile territory. Let's do our best to not cause any battles. They carried on the woods darkening around them. As they neared the city, 
The foliage grew denser on both sides, until it was only a single wide lane of open water providing access to the capital. To Dante's complete lack of surprise, it was blockaded near its end by a small flotilla of monsoon sailors, flying there white and blue. Working on the assumption that every entrance to the city would be similarly patrolled, they approached the soldiers and were ordered to present themselves before a double-hulled war canoe. The soldiers asked Volo several questions, made a few disparaging remarks about the poor quality of her foreign cargo, and waved her on to the capital. The forests opened before them, exposing an enormous clearing. The capital was laid out like any other village, but the scale was immense, with the outer ring consisting of four hundred feet of open water, though some of this was taken up by fish pens, before the agricultural islands and paddies marking the outside of the city proper. Past that, oil lanterns flickered from swaths of raft houses, and in the windows of the stone manors that populated the many islands in the center. Volo steered them around to the passage through the netting that surrounded the capital, calling out a greeting to the guardsmen watching their approach from one of the docks supporting the gate. The man stood, tottering to the edge of the dock, and lifting his lantern to spill light over the black canoe. Volo? Is that you? She shielded her eyes from the sudden glare of the lantern. Hobron? They got you on the gates? You didn't think Commander Bahrain was going to leave the Drake Bane soldiers in charge of the gates, did you? Yeah, but I expected him to put someone good on the job. He flashed a toothy grin and beckoned them onward. Tie up and hop out, will you? Volo obliged. She hopped from the canoe and entwined the fingers of her right hand with his, a gesture that appeared intimate to Dante's standards, but which seemed to bear no more weight than a handshake. Dante climbed onto the dock, trying to look inoffensive, as Hobron gave them a once-over. Nice to go a few days without rain, Volo said, when the sentry was finished making sure they weren't obvious threats. Then again, if you consider the fact that— Hobron bulged his eyes and lunged forward, clapping his hand to her mouth. He glanced down the dock to where two other guards chatted and laughed with each other. He released her and stepped back. Sorry about— What the hell was that? Volo stamped after him. I'll shove you off this dock! Hobron dropped his voice so it could barely be heard above the wash of water against the dock. How have you not heard? The monsoon has banned Danakide, just like they promised. I thought that was just... something they were saying. How can they ban Danakide? We already know the truth. What's the point in arguing different? It's just meant to confuse us to muddle our minds and make us forget what's right. You know this. I know, Bolo said softly. That's what they told us. And they're right. So what's there to worry about? What do they do to you if they catch you doing it? 
They glass you. Shit and scales. They're serious. There's nothing more serious than protecting the truth from those who would slander it. Obron smiled, then grew sober. You sailed north with them, didn't you? Into the Gokaza? She nodded. Hobron lowered his voice again. Is it true what they say? That we freed the Aiden Rane? Yes. He whooped and clapped his thigh. Then Tanara Tain is ours. Yeah. Volo did her best to smile. And they'll never take it back from us. She jerked her thumb toward the city. Hate to rush things, but they're waiting on me. What's your business here anyway? In case, my captain asks. Hauling bodies. As for the Hari, they're here to advise the monsoon. Hobron gave the four outlanders a skeptical eye. Advise us in what? How to smell bad? How to kneel to little statues of false gods? This time, Volo's laughter was genuine. Our leaders know what they're doing, don't they? Who are we to question if they want to hear Hari gibberish? I don't get it, but I guess I don't have to. The guard rocked on his sandaled heels. Well, try to see me again when you're leaving. Volo stepped into the canoe. I'll do that. Clear waters, Volo. She waved. Clear waters. The others re-embarked. The metal gates, painted blue against corrosion, creaked apart. Volo guided them through the entry and into the farmlands, which were dark and smelled of damp leaves. The clouds were thin and were rippled like a spoon dragged through whipped cream, allowing the full moon to shine through. A tear slid down Volo's cheek. Uh, Blay said, is something the matter? She dipped her paddle in the water three times before answering, I can't believe they did it. Band Donaki Day, your peculiar way of saying hello. I bet it looks pretty funny to you, doesn't it? A couple of Tenarians meet each other, and maybe they haven't seen each other in years, but the first thing they do is argue about whether the rain is good or bad, or whether beauty is proof of virtue. Hello is a lot shorter. Donaki Day isn't about rain or beauty or any of that crap. It's about hunting for the most elusive prey in the swamp. The truth. Our devotion to hunting is what made us who we are. Then the monsoon came along and told us they had the truth, and anyone who argued otherwise was trying to pollute our minds and keep the peasants locked in the Drakebane's chains. Their supporters believed it, and so did I. There's no shame in being wrong, Dante said, only in refusing to admit it. And in spouting wise old grandpa wisdom like you just came up with it. Blaze swept his paddle along. What did he say about the punishment for Donaki Day? That they'd glass you? Volu nodded. At high noon, 
they chain you to the middle of a dock, and they bring out a glass lens, and use the sun's rays to burn your crime into your skin. Congratulations, Naren said. Your people have discovered a way to make hanging seem like a kindness. The watery farms looked undisturbed by the recent unrest, but as they passed into the sprawling neighborhoods of rafts, Volo had to dodge around numerous planks sticking from and floating in the water. Four-man monsoon canoes cruised down the canals. The raft-filled slums had always been boisterous laughing places, but that night, the loudest voices Dante heard were people coughing. Gladic provided Volo with the address of their destination. This was a manor in the well-heeled island districts. His contact was an elderly man named Fade Alu. According to Gladic, Alu's official position within the Drake Payne's cabinet had been that of a roving tax collector assigned to many of the outlying villages. But for reasons that were obscure to Dante, Gladic suspected Alu's job was actually a cover for his true task, traveling about and identifying potential talent to join the Knights of Odosein. Alu's home was one of a score built onto a shallowly sloping island. Volo guided the canoe up to one of the island's docks and tied it to a cleat. Gladic stepped off and waited for the others. Dante crossed over the platform. Are we all going with you? He will not wish to reveal his secret, Gladick said. He might kill to protect it. By arriving en masse, we may intimidate him away from such ideas. He made his way to the thoroughfare that bisected the island, running from its low point to its highest. Cobbled paths wound away from the streets to the gates of the high walls that enclosed each property. Alu's mans was located at the far end of the island, which, at an elevation of some hundred feet, rendered it one of the highest points in the capital. From its vantage, the only thing blocking sight of the entire city was the heart of Darabod, the fortress of the Bastion of Last Act. Gladick followed the path to the gate in Alu's brick wall. The grills were wrought iron, sealed by a chain whose links were as thick around as a man's wrist. Blaze cocked his head at the distant house. Shall we yell? Gladick slashed his hand downward. A blade of white light flicked across the air. The chains fell away with a weighty clank. He pushed the gate aside and entered the garden, which remained well-kept despite whatever troubles had riven Darabod over the last few weeks. Gladick took another path to the stoop and its oversized front door. The knocker boomed through the house. The door opened with a mutter of hinges, revealing a middle-aged servant in an orange jabat. He flicked his gaze across the five of them with increasing disgust. Do you even know the hour? Later than you can imagine. I am Gladick of Bressel, 
and I will see Fade Alu. Then you will depart, and only return once the sun has given you permission. The servant moved to close the door. Gladick extended his index finger. The door quit moving. The man blinked at it and put his weight behind it, but it wouldn't budge. He fell back a step. Who are you? A former servant of the Drakebane. Your emperor has fled, but I remain here to save your country. The doorman's eyelid twitched. You will wait here. He made to close the door, which held firm until Gladdy gave a small nod. The servant slammed the door. His footsteps retreated into the interior. Dante gave the priest a look. You catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Yes, Blay said, but you catch the most flies with shit. Gladick didn't respond. A minute passed, then another. Volo wandered to the edge of the stoop to gaze down on the quiet city. Naren had a distant look on his face, as if remembering old times. A lantern lit up one of the third-floor windows, then receded from the room. At last, the door swung open again, the servant stepping adroitly to the side. Enter, guests. Dante moved in behind Gladick, bringing a trickle of nether to his hand. The servant spun on his heel and led them through a brick corridor and into a sitting room, or, more aptly, a kneeling room, considering that its furniture consisted of a few knee-high tables and vast numbers of rugs and cushions. A man rose from the main table. He was about sixty, and his slicked-back hair had gone almost entirely silver, with a few streaks of deep black hanging around what remained of his temples. He took in Volo and the foreigners before settling his pale eyes on Gladick. Gladick, you're aware our new rulers have outlawed Donarchy Day. Gladick inclined his head. I have just learned as much. Then you'll understand that I'm being purely rhetorical when I greet you by asking whether it's in the best interests of a people to strangle their ability to speak themselves toward truth. I could not say. Good, because I didn't ask. Just as I didn't ask whether the best way to win the hearts of a conquered people is to stamp out their holiest traditions. If such a question were to be asked, I would tell its asker that the best way to ensure that a conquered people will never rebel against you is to reshape them to be the exact same as your people. As a former taxman, you'd think I'd have more appetite for grinding people under my heel— but I don't even have the stomach to think such things. Fade smiled with half his mouth. It's good to see you. I'd have guessed you'd be dead or long gone. 
The priest moved a half-step in front of the others. An unexpected calling has kept me here. I do not expect to see my homeland again. Fade made a subtle gesture to the others. And because you can't go back to Malon, you've brought friends from Malon to visit you instead? We would not call each other friends, but we have all found ourselves being swept along by the same strange tide. Let me guess. The one flowing from the north? Indeed. First, though, what of matters here? Have you and your family been safe since the revolution? Got them all packed up and shipped off to Bressel. Houses felt damn near empty. Then why do you remain? Fade pulled his lopsided grin again. You're not the only one with a calling. I aim to wrap things up and skip town soon as I can. The way things are going with the monsoon, I'd leave even if there were no northern threat. Gladick nodded thoughtfully. Yet there is. You are wise to go. The other man lowered his eyes to the stump of Gladick's right arm. Looks like you got first-hand experience there. He winced. Pardon the pun. It's no matter. As I said, I have already accepted I will not survive the coming storm. Losing an arm better prepares me to face death when it comes without flinching. You're even more fatalistic than the last time I saw you. Gazing into hell will do that to a man. Gladick tilted his head to the side. Do you know why I am here? To make sure I don't get any sleep? The Aedan Rane has returned. I have seen him. We have fought him. And we think we know a way to destroy him. Oh, batshit. The Drake Bane did everything he could about that. If there'd been another option, he'd be out there on the front lines right now, not digging himself a new nest in Bressel. You don't have to believe, but the Drake Bane has abandoned you, and I am still here. Fade scowled and motioned to his servant, making a drinking motion. The servant vanished from the room. Can we get to the thrice-cursed point already? Fade said. Why are you here? To save Tanaretain. Our plan requires the Orosain. Do you know where they used to be trained? Why in the nine waters would I know that? There were rumors that you worked for them. You can tell a lot about a man by which rumors he's eager to swallow. The servant swept into the room, presenting Fade with a green glass. Fade tipped it back, emptying it, and set it back on the tray. The location of the training grounds was one of the biggest secrets in the Empire. If I had so much as stumbled on it, 
My bones would be hanging in a cage in the deepest swamp. Then you don't know where it is. Hell no. I wouldn't want to know. Gladick turned his profile to fade, taking two steps toward the wall. Do any Odosein remain in the capital? You know they'd never leave the Drakebane behind. Any that survived the fighting sailed away with him to Bressel. That was the conclusion I reached as well. In that case, I need you to stop lying to me. Excuse me? You know precisely what I am saying. Fade motioned to his servant again. Trying to keep track of all your malish gods must have driven you crazy. I don't know anything about the Orosain. Do you understand that this is the last hope for your country? There is no hope, you loony bastard. I can't help you. I suggest you find someone who can. Gladick turned to face him. The priest's eyes were as sunken as wells. We didn't get a chance to engage in Danaki Day. I will rectify that. Are we agreed that liars are bad people? What kind of question is that? Do not attempt to dodge me. Donaki Day is the search for truth, which is holy. If truth is holy, then lies are unholy, and liars are their vessel. The servant came back with a refilled glass. Fade didn't reach for it. If a man lies to save his life, does that brand him a liar? It does, when the man's lies will cost the lives of everyone in his country. Now stop dodging and answer my question. Are lies unholy? Depends entirely on the why, doesn't it? If a man lies to save himself from death, that is merely the act of using one unholy act to protect oneself from another. The lie itself remains unholy. How, then, might we rid ourselves of lying? If we killed every liar, do you think the next generation would be raised without knowledge of falsehoods? I think if we killed everyone who ever told a lie, we'd have done the Aidan Rani's job for him. Indeed. For lies are a disease that seems to run as deep as our own blood. Do you know the only way to be cured of them? To lose everything. Every single part of you and what you love. When everything is taken from you, and you have nothing left to lose nor to fear, at last you can see the truth. Gladick swept his left hand through the air. Ether glittered across the room. Scores of footsteps lit up across the floor, a shimmering pattern of chaos. 
Most of them were adult-sized, but two pairs were much smaller. They led out the rear of the sitting room, accompanied by a set of larger prints. Gladick followed the trail out the door and into a hallway. Fade made a choking noise and lurched after him. The hell you think you're doing? Blaze trotted after them both. Does anyone know what's going on? A thought stirred in Dante's mind, but he left it unspoken. Gladick tracked the footsteps past the kitchen and down another corridor, with Fade hectoring him in increasingly strident tones. The small footsteps led to a dingy door that might have been a pantry. They stopped there. The larger set that had traveled with them reversed and headed back down the corridor toward the sitting room. Gladick set an ear to the door, then pulled back his head and lifted a quizzical eyebrow. What do you keep in here, Fade? Food, roots and such. Spittle flew from Fade's mouth. Get out of my house! Gladick reached for the door handle. Fade stormed forward. He was a heavyset man with some muscle to him, and if he struck Gladick, it was likely the old man would fall. Gladick glanced at Fade's feet. A white glow outlined the man's sandals. His lower body locked up, his upper body swaying forward. He windmilled his arms for balance, but his feet and legs were so firmly rooted in place he couldn't have fallen over if he'd been struck in the back with a mallet. Gladick smiled at him so briefly, Dante wasn't sure that it had been there at all. The priest swung open the door. The room beyond exhaled the smell of dirt and tubers and spiced sausages. Windowless, it was as dark as a cavern. Gladick lifted a finger and flooded the room with gentle light. Two young children huddled on the floor, arms wrapped around their knees. Between their identical haircuts, long on top, short on the sides, and the softened features of childhood, Dante couldn't tell whether they were boys or girls. In tandem, they stared at Gladick, then at Fade, who remained half-frozen behind the priest. Grandchildren, Gladick said. Stand, please. Fade wheeled his arms, but Gladick was out of reach. Don't you dare, you foreign shit! I'll bait my hooks with your balls, I'll— The priest jerked a thumb at Fade. The man's jaw clamped shut. He stood as static as a statue. Come out, children, Gladick said. Into the light. The one on the left stood, motioning for the other one to do the same. Hesitantly, they walked out from the pantry, stopping outside the door. Gladick didn't move. Are you afraid? The one who'd stood first, the shorter of the two, nodded. Yes, sir. You should be. For your grandfather would rather sacrifice you and everyone else in this land 
than to break his word to the coward who's abandoned him. Grandpa, did we do something bad? No, child, Gladik said. You are innocent, but innocence is the weakest shield of them all. It splinters the first time it meets a blade. Gladik made a chopping gesture. Fade's head jerked forward as it was released from its bonds. Stop, you son of a bitch! Stop! Ether sparked on Gladik's fingertips. I haven't yet begun. Right. Blaze moved forward, reaching for the hilt of his sword. If this is going where I think- Gladik gestured again. Whiteness traced Blaze's figure. He stopped in his tracks, immobilized, except for the raging of his eyes. Gladik ignored him, staring right back at Fade, whose neck worked and strained. A halo of ether formed around Gladik's index finger. He hovered it over the top of the braver child's head. Get away from her! Fade shook his head side to side like a dog that's taken a snoutful of pepper. You're a monster! Gladik snorted in contempt. Your words have no power, fool. If the Aedan Rane is not stopped, these children are already dead. He shaped the halo into a long needle, lowering it to the girl's face. She backed away, her back thumping into the wall. Grandpa! Dante's heart beats like the wings of a manic bird. Galadic moved across from the girl, trapping her against the wall, and maneuvered the glowing needle to her ear. Dante called forth the nether. The girl screamed. So did Fade. The hell-painted hills! Gladick halted the needle. What of them? The training grounds are tucked away in the hell-painted hills! You want to find whatever's left of the other saying? That's where you need to go. Six. Gladick touched his chin. The hell-painted hills. Fade nodded, sweat dribbling down his brow, chest heaving. That's why no one's ever found the place. Only the Odysseans' power is enough to keep a body from getting poisoned by the old magics. The hills run for hundreds of miles between the coast and the mountains. Where within them is the academy? Fade rattled off a slew of precise directions to the hills. That will take you to a spot known as Frog's Reach. It's right there on the fringe. The silent spires, that's the academy, is miles past the border. There's no road, no proper path, neither, but the way is marked in gold. Follow the gold, you'll get to the spires. He curled his lip. Except you'll drop dead before you get a mile in. And in the hills, there isn't even any dirt to bury your foreign corpse. 
Gladick turned his head to Volo. Are his directions plausible? She swallowed. I know where Frog's Reach is, yeah. But nobody travels through the hills. It's death. Thank you, Fade. At last you have found a way to speak the truth. Gladick closed his eyes. The needle blinked away. Fade and Blaze stumbled forward, released from their invisible bonds. The girl ran past Gladick and into her grandfather's arms. Fade gazed over her shoulder with sheer loathing. Now get your half-rotted carcass off my land! I don't care what kind of sorceress devilry you got in your veins. I ever see you again, I will plant my knife in your heart. I would not blame you. Gladick bowed. Thank you for your cooperation, Fade Alu. They made way for the front door, the sobs fading behind them. Outside, the night air was sluggish and humid. Dante had been getting used to it, but at that moment it felt suffocating. What? Blaze said, batting aside a low-hanging bit of shrub. In the orgy of the gods was that. Gladick looked as untroubled as a man waiting on a shaded bench on a spring day. The guiding of a man toward the light. By paralyzing him while you threatened his granddaughter with a knife made of ether? Would you have hurt her? I don't know. Blaze skipped ahead and planted himself in the middle of the path, blocking it. That's not good enough! I didn't spare your life to watch you hurt children! And I didn't go on living in order to watch you fail because you lack the courage to win. You asshole! Do you even- Dante stepped between them, barring his arms to the side. You idiots! Have you forgotten that we're in the middle of enemy territory? How about we wait to accuse each other of war crimes and cowardice until we're somewhere the authorities won't burn us with glass or feed our lower halves to the fish? Teeth gritted. Blaze nodded once. Gladick made an, as you wish, gesture. Dante wasn't entirely sure they had proper inns in Tanaretain. Conceivably, if you went to visit another city, you could simply pole your raft house to it and live in that. But upon asking Vola, she confirmed that, though rare, such establishments did exist. They got in the canoe, and Volo guided them through the endless canals. As soon as they exited the island district, she came to a stop in front of a three-story building skirted by wide porches. Laughter rolled out of the open windows. Rather than being built on land, the structure was held up by thick stilts, as though it had once been a dock until its owners thought of a more profitable use for it. Otherwise, it was more or less like any inn you'd see in Narashtovic or Malin, with the exception of the stables, which took the form of a miniature marina, enclosed with fences above the water and nets below it. It was overseen by a guard whose egg-shaped body was a local rarity, given that most everyone spent a good portion of their day poling or paddling boats around, 
hacking at plants with machetes, or shaping beams into new rafts and docks. Volo didn't leave her new canoe behind until she had thoroughly impressed into the guard that if her boat got stolen, she would, in turn, steal no less than one of his testicles. They secured a room, third floor, which Volo said would get a better breeze, and headed up to it. Dante bolted the door behind them. Blaze and Gladick separated like combatants in an arena. Volo sat on a mat in a corner, looking downcast. Naren moved to a wall, hands clasped behind his back. Blaze stood across from Gladick, held apart by a shin-high table. He hadn't taken off his sword belts yet. You were going to do it, weren't you? You were going to kill that little girl. Killing her would have been inefficient. It had been a long day of travel, and most men Gladick's age would be hunting for a chair, but he stayed on his feet. Her grandfather broke before she'd felt the slightest sting of pain. But if he hadn't buckled, you would have hurt her until he did. Bask in your self-righteousness. I, above anyone, know how good it feels, how intoxicating it is to condemn your enemies as evil and yourself as the wielder of virtue's sword. Quit their speeches, Dante said. You sound like a mad priest. Gladick smirked at that, then sobered. Look to our results. No one was hurt, and we gained the location of the last remaining Odosain. Blaze flung out his hands. No one was hurt this time. But if we hike out to these silent spires, and they tell us to go fuck ourselves running, what's your plan then? Start torturing the youngest person in sight? If such an act was required to stop the Aiden Rane, you would spare one child and sacrifice the world instead? Some things aren't worth compromising on, you son of a bitch. Like, I don't know, baby killing? Gladick lowered his face and pinched the bridge of his nose. Conventional morality works against conventional threats. But the threat posed by the lich is beyond all scale. If we don't accept the nature of what we face and adapt to its horrors, we will lose. Blazer's face had gone scarlet. This was a bad idea. I'll fight the lich with everything I have, Dante put in, but I won't become a monster. We can't give up our souls to this. Gladick rubbed his jaw. That would make our task much harder. Then we'll work harder. As if we weren't already. Restricting our methods will only increase the risk of our defeat. Then we'll risk it. God's damn, man, I've done more than my share of killing. And I do most of it again. Despite that, I still think I'm a decent person. Or that I'm at least capable of saving. But if I start torturing children, then I don't get to believe that anymore. 
The old man considered him for some time. So be it. But know that if I must sacrifice my soul to end this, I will do so in a heartbeat. Not much there to sacrifice, Blaze muttered. Dante shot him a pointed look. The darkest solutions are often the fastest, the easiest, the surest. But sometimes there are other methods. We have made a long and ridiculous career out of finding those alternatives. Let's try to do the same here. Agreed? Agreed, Gladick said. Blaze folded his arms. We'll do more than try. Dante sighed heavily. Then it's settled. With such an enlightened agreement in place, I'm going to descend to the common room and acquire a bottle of the local liquor. On second thought, I'll get two. No. Naran pushed off from the wall, wandering toward the middle of the room. I can do this no longer. But I just told you we're done arguing. Don't tell me you're against drinking time. I mean that I can't participate in this alliance. Not with him. Ah. Dante hesitated, unsure how to approach the awkwardness of the situation. Then remembered he didn't give a damn about Gladick's feelings. I'm not particularly thrilled about palling around with my worst living enemy either. But the cause we're working toward is much greater than our differences. Right now, the five of us are the only thing standing between... Naran held up a hand for peace. There's no need to argue. I am already convinced that what you are doing is right. But I cannot continue to fight alongside a man who would threaten a child the same man who murdered my captain. Everyone looked Gladick's way, but the priest seemed perfectly uninterested in defending himself. Because he knew he was guilty, or because he knew that they would never understand the reasons for his innocence. Naron, Lay said, you can't just flounce off. Not after everything we've been through. Naron smiled a little. It has been an experience like none other. But it's also because of everything that we've been through that I must go. But we need your help here. Do you? Volo knows these waterways like I know the Middle Seas. As for the three of you, you can do things that would make most gods jealous. Myself, however, I am just a man with a sword. I can't stand against what you fight now, but I can be of more use elsewhere. What's the plan? Dante said. I'm not yet sure. I may attempt to find the spice route for Lady Vita, in order to win Alabolgian allies. They'll be the closest to this menace, if the White Lich breaks free of the swamps. I'm sure our war coffers wouldn't mind the assistance either. I hope this will be over long before it comes to that. But if it does stretch out, we're going to need every ally we can get, and every person we've got working to the best of their talents. 
Are you sure this is what you want? I have spent too long away from my ship. Pride warmed Naren's eyes. It's time I served my crew again. He unbuckled the belt bearing his Odosane blade and held it out to Dante. You may find someone who will put this to better use than I can. I can think of no better use for it than for you to use it defending yourself. Dante ran his hand over his mouth. Which you might need to do sooner than you'd like. We can't send Volo to bring you to Aerisosis. We need her to help us find the Odyssein. I understand. I know how to navigate the waters. I will find my own way. Volo scoffed. You buffoon. If you aren't eaten alive by a swamp dragon, the monsoon patrols will lock you in a tower until you're as old and grey as he is. She jerked her chin at Gladick, then smiled. So it's a good thing for you that you know me. I got friends here, others like me. One of them will take you to Erisosis. You would do that for me? You're the one rushing around the swamps to do battle with the craziest things I'll ever see in my life, all for the purpose of defending Tanaritain, a place you've never even seen before. And you're asking me if I'll help you. Naren laughed. Tanarian logic is a formidable enterprise. How long will it take you to make your arrangements? Better make it tonight. I expect our friends here want to get moving at sunup. He made for the door. Then, let's be on our way. Blaze reached for his arm. Hang on, Captain. How about a drink before you run off on us? Naren clasped his forearm. No, my friend. There is nothing for us to drink to. Not yet. He released his grip nodded to Dante, and stepped outside, Volo right behind him. The door closed. Sandaled footsteps rasped down the hallway. Well, Blaze said, I'd hate to waste a good pub just because one of us is too busy getting things done. Shall we? Dante nodded, stood there a moment, then walked out with Blaze. They headed downstairs. The common room wasn't overly crowded. The local liquor was of decent quality, if inexplicably fishy tasting, but they didn't seem to have much to talk about. And they were drawing stares from the Tenarians. After a single, if strong, drink, they returned to their room. With nothing else to do, they went to sleep. Volo had been out for half the night, but as the sun broke through the eastern haze, she rolled from her cot with an eagerness that made Dante acutely jealous that he was no longer young. After a quick meal downstairs, they headed for the stables, retrieved Volo's canoe, and departed the capital. According to Fade Alu, the silent spires of the Odosain were located roughly eighty miles from the coast, in the middle of the hell-painted hills, which separated the southeast border of Alebolgia 
from the northwest of Tain. According to Volo, everyone said the hills were still as hostile to life as when the Yosein had first poisoned them against the White Ledge. I once knew a boy named Goss who said he'd spent a day in them, she said, but he used to bite off his own toenails. And tell us that if you went deep enough into the Gokaza, the fish had wings and flew through the sky, while the birds had fins and swam in the water. Dante shifted on his seat. Do you know of anyone who stepped foot in them? You don't drop dead the instant you touched them, do you? I didn't. Not when me and some other maggots decided we had to explore them. But we were only in the hills for a few minutes before we all started to feel like it was a really bad idea. Because you were scared? Or because the land was imposing that feeling on you? I think that it was a lot of both. What exactly did it feel like? Did you get an impression of what would have happened to you if you'd stayed? Volo screwed up her mouth, eyeing the patchy clouds beyond the canopy. It felt like I was becoming someone else, and that if we'd stuck around much longer, whatever I am would have been lost. Well, Dante said, I hope very much that you're wrong. Gladick smoothed the front of his jabat. What if it is only possible to travel into the hills while in the presence of a night's sorcery-deadening field? Then we're completely screwed, aren't we? What kind of question is that? The kind we must never be afraid to ask ourselves if we are to succeed. Volo estimated the journey to the hills would take four days. Within the first hour of leaving Darabode, they were stopped twice by monsoon patrols. But apparently, Volo's status as a corpse carrier was still valued under the new leadership, as they were let on their way without issue. After the second stop, she took more obscure passages wherever she could. She'd assured Dante that she'd left Naren in good hands, but he feared what would happen if Naren's escort were stopped by the monsoon. Given local hostility to foreigners, Dante wondered if it had been a mistake to let Naren go. Or if they should have accompanied him to the port of Erisosis themselves. A nice thought. But it would have cost them a week or more of travel. Gladick was, to a certain extent, Correct. They were a long way beyond niceness. Dante thought it would be a long time before they had that luxury again. Late in the day, they passed by the town of Yeli Paid, which was nowhere near the size of the two cities they'd been to, but a dozen times larger than the outer villages. It had fallen to, or pledged allegiance to, the monsoon, the white banner flew from its small stone fort. On it, the two blue orbs, which Dante suspected were to represent the eyes of the lich, watched over the town. After they made camp, he spent an hour working on the blood flicking, but nothing he tried provided any results whatsoever. He was starting to think it never would, 
Things were always passing from the world, devoured by the blind jaws of time. When they were gone, there was no getting them back. That night, he dreamed of sailing out to sea and coming to an immense edge that stretched from one horizon to the other, the ocean spilling into it in a colossal waterfall to nothing, dragging all the water and all the land behind it into the abyss. The next noon, as they approached the town of Uruhain, the clamor of battle swelled in the distance. They diverted, approaching stealthily, and watched as the righteous monsoon overwhelmed the town, which had apparently remained loyal to the Drakebane. The rebel soldiers seemed to be taking special care to take as many of the residents alive as possible, not out of respect for their countrymen. It was to provide the white lich with as many bodies as possible. There was no talk of intervening. Beyond Uruhain, a swathe of settlements had been gutted. There were no obvious signs of violence, and as far as Dante knew, the lich remained in the deep swamps of the north, laying the foundations of his power. It was possible the Drakebane had evacuated the people to be transported to Bressel. Yet for some reason, Dante suspected the monsoon had gotten there first, and that there was, at that very moment, a flotilla of prisoners on its way to the Aiden Rane's hands. He heard from Nack while they were two days out from the hell-painted hills. The conversation didn't take long. The monks had scoured the archives. The boat had returned from the holy men of Hukali Island, and Min had arrived back from Pocket Cove not minutes before. All of them had reported the same thing. They knew nothing of the White Lich, nor anything that resembled him. Great, Dante said once Nack was through. Well, I suppose it's a good thing we kept Gladick around. The old man turned around in the canoe and lifted an eyebrow. I'll continue the search, Nack said. Who knows what might turn up? And I assure you that I have nothing better to do. Dante thanked him and shut down the connection. Later that same day, his loon twinged again. He answered, hopeful that Nack had turned up an overlooked tome, but was greeted by Sorowan's hesitant voice. There's been a lot of fighting, the boy said. Like, uh, lots of it. For a while, nobody was sure which way it was going to go. Today, though, the rebels turned the tide. They drove the king's loyalists right out of the capital. Couldn't happen to nicer people, Dante said. But we might need to get them back in power if that's what it takes to ally with them against the Lich. The Brasilian resistant movement has likely already started. I need you and Rasha to join it and work your way toward the top. Show them the powers you can wield for them, if that's what it takes. Um, Sorowan said. 
That sounds dangerous for us. Trust me, I'd be ecstatic to switch places with you. Work slow and steady to gain their trust, Sarwan. When they see what you can do for them, they'll be clamoring to bring you into the fold. After a bit more talk, Dante concluded the conversation. He spent the rest of the day thinking through the shape of an alliance between Narashtavik and Malin. Kali would be turning in his grave at the mere notion of such an outrage. The things had changed for the stranger. Dante believed the old systems were about to be ripped out by the roots. As they neared the hell-painted hills, the air cooled by several degrees. Frequent winds shivered the branches of the trees, which stood taller and taller, vines dangling from their boughs like colonies of six snakes. The pockets of land grew few and far between, but blades of rock lurked just below the surface, obliging Volo to slow down and feel the way forward with a pole. There were no more villagers, no more wandering fishermen, no more signs of human life at all. Enclosed beneath the lumbering trees, the swamp grew darker. The canopy shook with the wind, but below it, the air lay still. After some miles, the way ahead brightened as swiftly as if the sun were passing from behind a cloud. The colors of flame and soot appeared behind the trees, and then the trees were gone, and the sky opened above them, and the swamp came at last to an end. Blaze rested his paddle on the gunwale. We're supposed to walk into that. Are you sure there isn't a safer route, like off the edge of a cliff? The landscape was a slope of rock as jagged as the just-cooled stone on the north coasts of the main plagued island. Most of the rock was shiny black, but it was streaked with the colors of flame, the more distant of which seemed to dance in the sunlight. After weeks in the flatness of the swamps, the heights seemed monstrous, like a vast black wave about to pound down on the shore. Not a single tree, shrub, or blade of grass grew from the land. Except on the very border. There, the division between the hills and the not-hills was as stark as if it had been cut by a knife. Everything to the northwest was barren, but on the few blobs of earth that extended from the southeast of the line, yellow spring flowers bobbed their heads in the wind. We're here, Volo said, then blushed. In case you hadn't noticed. Blaze reached his paddle across the border, nose tilted back like he was expecting the instrument to burst into flames. Is it remotely safe to go in here? This place looks like an army of demons has spent the last thousand years barfing in it. Dante shielded his eyes against the sun. Does anyone see any golden streaks? Volo, is this Frog's Reach? Sure is, she said. 
and so are the twenty miles to either side of us. The frogs like it here because the fish don't. Frog's reach is that big. I don't think people are that concerned about giving a name to every little piece of land they never go into. It would have been nice if Fade had mentioned that. Then again, I suppose he was a little preoccupied with stopping his granddaughter from getting slaughtered like a pig. Dante squeezed his temples with one hand. We've got two jobs here. First, we find the trail, and second, we figure out if it's safe to follow it. The answer to the second question may be before us. Gladick extended his knob-knuckled finger. Consider the insects. Dante peered into the sunlight, uncertain what he was looking for. Gnats and flies weaved through the air on their drunken little missions. What am I looking at? A bunch of pests? A bunch of pests who cross the boundary without falling on their backs and crossing their legs above their bellies. So it isn't so treacherous after all, Blaze said. It must be sheer coincidence that the hills don't have a single bird, mouse, tree, or blade of grass on them. If it's that poisonous, you might finally be able to get the mold out of your small clothes. Dante called to the nether. I'll see if I can find us the path. Then we can argue about who has to go first. He knocked down two dragonflies from the countless number of them that were cruising around, then reanimated them, sending one along the border to the southwest and one to the northeast. Unsure how bright or conspicuous the gold markings might be, he leveled the insects out at just sixty feet up, moderating their speed. Ether and Nether stirred behind him. After a moment of panic, he realized that Gladick was poking at the boundary of the hell-painted hills, seeking answers. Within ten minutes, gold glinted in the vision of the northbound dragonfly. Dante descended, confirming that the color was a part of the rocks, rather than a lost piece of royal jewelry, then swung the insect about to fly directly away from the boundary and into the wasteland, gaining altitude as it went. Two hundred feet further into the hills, a second blotch of gold shined from below. Got the trail, Dante said. It's only a few miles north. As they paddled toward it, he recalled the second dragonfly, sending the one that had found the gold marking inland as fast as it could. By the time they'd gotten the canoe up to the first marking, the inland-bound scout had crossed a good ten miles of the hell-painted hills. In all that time, it hadn't seen a single sign of life. Not even bones. A lobe of grassy land extended from the barren border. They brought the canoe up to it and climbed out. I'm still on the trail. Dante motioned into the hills. But I have no idea how long it'll be before I find the spires. Assuming Fade was telling the truth about them being here, Blaze said. He was, Gladick said. I have no doubts. 
Why would you? After all, why would a man lie to save his family? Would you like to make a wager on the matter? Blaze grinned. Since when were Bressel's high priests allowed to gamble? Bressel is no longer malish, is it? Nor part of the malish faith. Hence, I have no church left to answer to. If it's good enough for you, who am I to argue? The only problem is I've spent all my money in this damn place. Blaze rubbed his chin, then brightened. Ah, ha! Penny-pinching Dante over there always has extras hidden away, probably tucked behind his balls. I'll bet you ten of his silver that the spires aren't here. You won't, Dante said. As an agent of the Citadel, I haven't been paid in months. Fork it over, and I won't charge you interest on what I'm already owed. Dante was too distracted by his dragonflies to do more than don an unpleasant look. Very well. Gladick produced a pouch from beneath his jabat and gave it a jangle. Ten silver. If Fade Alu was lying, it is yours. But if the spires are there, then yours is mine. Blaze stretched. I assume you won't be insulted when I ask to see the color of your money first. According to you, cheater would be the least of my crimes. Gladick made a thoughtful noise. Which would, in fairness, only make your suspicion all the more reasonable. He opened the pouch. Having only one hand, he was obliged to pour the coins into Blaze's palm. Blaze inspected them, then dropped them back into the bag. Well, I know whose corpse I'm looting first. As the two dragonflies zipped their way deeper into the phantasmagoric hills, Gladick hunted through the grass until he found a shield-shaped green beetle. He placed it inside an empty, narrow-mouthed ink bottle, then walked to the knife-sharp edge separating the live land from the dead stone. He set the bottle on a naked black rock and stepped back. Mile after mile of black slag land passed beneath the dragonflies. The trail of gold blots carried onward, spaced irregularly sometimes as much as an eighth of a mile apart from each other. Sometimes, however, two to five of the marks were clustered within a few feet of each other. Just as Dante was starting to worry about how much further his scouts could fly before the connection dropped, a spot of green drew his eye. Unlike the sharp, jagged angles of the hills, this was fuzzy. He took the dragonfly higher. The greenery poured down the side of a slope and into a valley, forming a circle of trees and grass hundreds of yards across. Within it, a ring of towers jutted from the hillsides like the spokes of a cage with its roof torn off. Bad news, Blaze, Dante said. You owe Gladick ten silver. I don't see how that's bad news for me. 
Blaze said. Go on and pay the man. And if you have any decency, wash the coins first. The other bad news is the spires are at least twenty miles in, maybe thirty. Even if we... The dragonfly's sight blacked out. Dante felt for his connection. But it had been snipped like a loose thread as it had been right about to pass over the edge of the trees. Lost my scout. Probably closer to thirty miles, then. Of some of the worst terrain I've ever seen. We'll be lucky to make it in two days. Two days in a land that supposedly kills everyone who hangs around in it for more than a few minutes. Volo, how long were you and your friends in the hills before you turned back? She scrunched her mouth to the side. More than an hour. Less than two. Excellent, Blaze said. Then all we have to do is cross thirty miles of horrific terrain in under two hours to get to the spires, which may or may not be just as toxic themselves. I think it's okay, Dante said. They have plants there, trees. Whatever's keeping life out of this place doesn't impact the spires. Mind set at ease, then. Race you there. Maybe it's just superstition that's keeping people out. That and rough terrain. People explore everything. They'll travel for hundreds of miles across the ocean, which is essentially a bottomless pit of salty poison. If the hills were safe to travel through, someone would have found out by now. Gladick moved to the boundary crouched and picked up the ink bottle. He returned and held it before them. Behold! The green beetles strolled around the bottom of the bottle, antennae twitching. It lives! Blaze placed his hands on his thighs and bent in for a closer look. So you're saying all we have to do to survive the hills is turn ourselves into beetles? Young Volo has already ventured into the wastelands for a modest period of time without suffering harm. If we begin to feel ill, we will do as her friends did, and turn back. Is this the brightest way to go about this? What if we sail to Bressel, kidnap one of the Drakebane's pet Odosein, then bring him back here? You guys can tie him to a pole and wave him at the lich while I move in for the stabbing. Gladig took down the corners of his mouth. He turned his back to them and waded through the grass toward the boundary. As he neared the line of blasted rock, he wavered, then set his shoulders and stepped across. He tilted back his head and breathed through his nostrils. Wait here, then. I will return with an acolyte of the Odosain, or not at all. He walked onward into the fiery kaleidoscope of stone. The wind ruffled his hair. He didn't look back. Gods damn it, Blaze said. Are we about to let a crazy old man shame us into committing suicide? Dante shrugged. Look at the bright side. 
If we drop dead, you can spend the next nine hundred years in the mists calling him a moron. He braced himself and stepped onto the black pan of rock. There was no thunderclap from above, no wilting in his chest. Blaze did some swearing and joined him. Yet as they made to follow after Gladig, Volo remained standing in the grass, her eyes wide as she stared down at the lifeless ground before her. What's the matter? Blaze called. So what if this place was hostile enough to drive out the white lich? It's probably safe for squishy little humans. Volo didn't look up. When I joined the maggots, we were told we had free current to go anywhere in Tanaratane except two places. The Gokaza and right here. You can stay on that side, if you like, Dante said. You've taken us far enough. She stamped from one foot to the other, then slapped herself on the face. I can't walk away. If the monsoon hadn't gotten me to trick you into helping them, then maybe none of this would have happened. Bearing her teeth, she stepped over the line separating life from nothing. She froze for a moment, as if coming face to face with a bear, then hurried after them. Come on. If we move fast enough, maybe I'll forget this place wants us dead. Gladig hadn't slowed down for them, but despite his spryness, the others caught up with little effort, making good time over the gently sloping land as they moved from the first gold marking to the second. A quarter of a mile in, the ground shot upward in a series of blade-like ridges and deep valleys. Blaze came to a halt. Anywhere else, and I'd say we should take the ridges. Valleys would be choked with more shrubbery than a brothel's merkin locker. But somehow, I don't think undergrowth will be a problem here. There's not even any rubble in them, Dante said. It's just solid rock, like it was draped on top of whatever was here before. Or the surface was melted, like a good cheese. Cheese, Volo said. Blaze gaped in horror. You don't know what cheese is? That's the real reason that Drake Bane seized Bressel, isn't it? Not to escape the White Lich, but to get his hands on Bressel's famous Temple Yellow. Dante scowled. Will you stop making me think about cheese? The valleys would be protected from the wind, but their rear walls looked too steep to climb. They hiked up a ridge instead. The sunlight was only mildly warm on its own, but the black rock baked like a fire was crackling beneath it. Completely exposed, with the limbs bare, the four of them were soon sweating like a stone brought up from the springhouse. I don't know what's worse, Blaze said. The sun or the footing? It's a damn good thing we have these rugged sandals to protect our feet from the jagged, jagged rocks. Dante already had an oozing scrape on one of his toes. Let me know if you hurt yourself badly enough to need the nether. The code word will be 
Oh, hell, I just sheared off three of my toes. With the worsening ground, they had to place each step carefully, cutting their pace by a third. As Dante's jabat dampened with sweat, he summoned a shadow sphere above their heads, flattening it and stretching it out until it was the consistency of a thick mist. With the sun blocked, the wind dried their sweat, suddenly cold. The slope leveled out. They stopped for a look around. Behind them, the swamp was a mat of treetops, water sparkling from beneath the growth. Ahead, the land rolled on and on, each hill a little bit higher than the one before it. Volo buckled her knees, reaching for the ground with one hand as if she might collapse. What's wrong with this place? Why is the ground all bendy? Is that from the magic? Disturbing news, Blay said. Everywhere is like this. It's your swamp that's the weird place. How can that be? If it's all a bunch of bare rocks, how can your boats get anywhere? Because we put wheels on them and build little streams for them. Except, instead of water, we use bare dirt or paving stones. We call it roads. Volo regarded him suspiciously, then bit her lip. If the rest of the world is made of land and hills, why is ours so different? You should be happy about that, Dante said. Coming from a unique place has made your people unique, too. He didn't tell her that it might not always have been that way, that the lifting of the Wodens and the great changes that had seemed to have flooded across the land in the years before and after the last coming of Selen might have forged Tanaritain from something more mundane into its current shape. So that if not for his forebears, the land might never have been locked away from the rest of the world to become the breeding ground for the White Lich. They moved down the ridge and ascended the next. After so long in and around water, Dante found himself with an odd case of sea legs. On the positive side, though the rills in the ground were as sharp as knives, there was no dirt or grit to slip on. A few grueling hours and miles onward, no one had reported feeling any signs of illness. Was it superstition that kept everyone out of the hills? Maybe there had been an enchantment protecting the land, but it had faded away long ago, while the memory of it lived on. Whatever the case, other than a general sense of exposure and the low-grade anxiety of being in a place that would offer a person no hope of survival if they were to get lost in it, everything seemed normal enough. Gladig had brought the beetle in the ink pot along with him, and it showed no signs of trouble. Sunset poured across the land, the oranges and reds matching the smears of color on the rock. None of them had seen an uninterrupted sunset since the last time they'd been in Erisosis, and they watched it until it was almost all the way down, before descending into a valley where they'd be out of the wind. 
We're somewhere over a third of the way there, Dante declared once they got a tarp up and had progressed to arranging their blankets in a futile attempt to spare them from the hardness of the ground. We'll want to be out before dawn if we want to avoid spending a second night here. Because of the invisible wolves, Blay said. You've not seen them, too? Stalking after us, unseen, howling to each other, unheard. When they bite us, it might not look like they're doing any harm, but that's only because you can't see the blood. Dante wrapped his blanket over his shoulders. The wind had driven the humidity down, and the late spring evening was much colder than in the swamps. It's about more than the hills themselves. We're going through our water faster than I thought we would. We'll have to ration it until we get to the spires. Volo got a funny look on her face. Ration water? You guys make it sound like you've had to do this before. Nobody tell her about the deserts until the morning, Lay said. Not unless you want to carry a wet blanket the rest of the way to the spires. They arranged a watch schedule. More than watching for intruders or animals, it was to observe each other for signs of illness and did their best to sleep on the mercilessly uncomfortable ground. Dante got up for good a few minutes before first light. His thighs and feet were achingly sore. He was usually the first to get up, but Blaze was already sitting up and blinking his eyes, and Gladick had had last watch. He sat at the edge of the tarp, illuminated by the tiniest trace of ether. Dante shuffled over to him. How's the beetle? Gladick lifted the ink bottle to the light. The green beetle twitched an antenna, but was otherwise still. Sluggish. From the aura of the hills. Perhaps. But I pray that if I were confined to a bottle without sustenance for a day, that I would be doing half as well. How are your legs? Strong enough to travel? Gladick smiled thinly. I have eased my soreness enough to continue. But your concern is appreciated. Dante roused Volo. They ate and packed up. Gladick lit the way onward with the ether until the sun broke clear of the eastern ridges. The hills were as rugged as ever, yet they made steady progress. Dante kept the fog of Nether over their heads to protect them from the sun, but the day warmed quickly, and sweat trickled down his sides. Limiting himself to scant sips of water, he found his hands were shaking. Late that morning, they stopped in the shade of a cliff to rest. Dante had been keeping his remaining dragonfly relatively close to ensure that they weren't wandering off course, nor that there were any unexpected threats lurking ahead of them. Meaning to see how far they had to go, he sent it whirring along until it spotted the pocket of greenery that made up the silent spires. To the best of his judgment, they were ten to twelve miles out. Doable by nightfall, if they pressed hard. He sent the dragonfly closer, searching for the best approach by foot, 
as well as any defenses they might have. As soon as it flew above the outermost trees, it blacked out. Dante swore. Just lost my other scout. To what? Blay said. The invisible airwolves? It wasn't far enough away for the link to degrade. It dropped dead at the same spot as the first one. Something stopped it. And this upsets you? Sounds to me like it's proof they've got active Odosain there. A half mile later, as they trudged up an incline as steep as a set of stairs, Volo's right sandal snapped, spilling her to the ground. As Dante swept away her cuts with the nether, Gladic waved his hand, restoring the sandal with a glare of ether. Yet the strap wasn't pristine, merely reverted to a state of being heavily worn but not quite broken. It looked as if it would give out after another couple of miles. Even if Gladick used the ether to fix it again, the state it was returned to would be more worn than it was now, meaning it would break again even sooner, with the cycle repeating until the ether could do nothing at all. Dante bent his mind to the problem, yet it vexed him more with each minute that passed. Broken things could be fixed by hand, but only if you had the materials to replace or reinforce what had worn down. There were no plants here to work with. Should they shred one of their blankets to wrap around her foot? Carrying her was out of the question. It would make whoever was carrying her ten times more likely to unbalance and fall off the ridge. And anyway, even Blaze wouldn't be able to bear her on his back for more than ten or fifteen minutes at a time. An hour later, Volo's sandal snapped again, sending her reeling to the edge of the ridge. Blaze caught her, falling down in the effort. She landed on top of him. Gladic peered at the broken strap in angry confusion. Why would it do that? Doesn't it know that we need it to function properly? He snapped his hand back and forth as if he were dueling with a miniature sword. The ether glared at a skewed angle, knitting the strap back together. Gladick spat on it and walked onward, wobbling a little. Volo roughly wound the straps around her feet and calf. This sandal is Stupid. Feet are stupid. They should be hard enough that you don't even need shoes. She ran after Gladick at a speed that seemed much too fast. Dante walked after them, frowning deeply. Could he make her feet harder? Grow a lot of skin on the bottom or something? But he couldn't do that, could he? Unless... What if he drew the rock up around her foot, encasing it in a thin stone booty? He could remove it once they reached the spires. It would... Stars flashed over his vision. He crumpled to the ground. He'd kicked a clump of rock. His toes were mashed and bloody, and one of the nails was split. It should have turned his stomach, but he wanted to laugh. He muttered to himself. 
Anatha came slowly, as if confused, then settled onto his wounds, erasing them. Blaze snorted at him. Forget that rocks are stronger than feet, idiot. Dante got to his feet. Let's find out if your face is harder than my fists. I could fight using only my face and you'd still lose. Dante stomped to within two feet of Blaze. Then let's find out. You want the first swing? Blaze drew back his fist, mouth twisted into a leer. As his elbow reached its apex, he paused, eyes darting to Volo and Gladick, who watched eagerly. Dante, Blaze said, there's something wrong. That you're not bleeding from both nostrils. I'm about to correct that. Dante, look at us. Dante's nails were digging into his palm so tightly he'd drawn crescents of blood. With difficulty, he relaxed and took a long breath. Across from him, Blaze was wild-eyed, and despite the healthy tan they bore from months on months of travel, he was as pale as a Tenarian. Gladick was, too. Volo's face was as white as plaster, while her eyes were webbed with red cracks. Dante could barely get the words out. We look like blighted. The anger receded from Gladick's eyes like a spell. He fumbled for his pocket, extracting the ink bottle. At its bottom, the green beetle lay on its back, legs folded over its thorax. The hills, Gladick said. They have come for us at last. Blaze groped his own face, as if afraid it was in the act of changing form. We have to go back. Dante wagged his head, dizzying himself. Can't do that. We have to get to the spires. I won't become one of them. It's nearly twenty miles back to the swamp. We'll never make it there in time. The spires are much closer, and there are people living there. It must be safe. For the Odosain, maybe. What if it isn't any safer for us? Then we die, or we join the Lich's service like the other blighted. Do you want to stand here arguing about it, or do you want to run for your god's damned life? Blaze snarled, then fought down his anger like he was swallowing his own vomit. He wiped his forearm across his brow and laughed. We run, then, and hope the Odosain have a beer waiting for us on the other side. Dante moved to the front of the column and broke into a jog. He drew a knife and cut his arm. Wherever the ridge was too spiky with rocks to run over it, he reached into the stone and smoothed it before them. Behind him, he felt Gladick draw on the ether. Light glowed on Dante's skin. He didn't look back. What are you doing? Attempting to preserve us, Gladick said. Is that going to work? I operate on the assumption that it will be better than nothing. 
Whether due to Gladick's efforts or the panic racing through his veins, Dante's head cleared, if only for the moment. He ran as fast as he dared, gaze flicking between the path immediately before him and the next glint of gold marking the way forward. He no longer had a dragonfly to plot their course from above. If they lost the trail now, they were as good as dead. Sometimes they fell. When the cuts and scrapes were bad enough to slow them down, Dante healed them. When all they were was a little blood, he let them bleed. A thudding redness encroached on the edges of his vision. Every time he stumbled, or couldn't see the next golden marker, rage choked his lungs like he'd inhaled a draught of water. Volo's sandal broke a third time. Gladick mended it with the ether, but they'd been running less than ten minutes more when it came apart yet again. The next time it hardly lasted five before it sent Volo crashing to her knees. She screamed and hurled the broken sandal off the ridge as hard as she could. Gladick spat a curse. What will you do now, you fool? Run until my foot bleeds, Volo said, and keep running until it stops. She hopped in place, then broke into a dash Dante could hardly keep up with. It wasn't long before her left foot was leaving shiny, dark blots on the stone. Nether darted from Gladick's hand, healing her, if only for another minute. Dante couldn't say how long they ran for. Even if he hadn't been distracted following the markers and smoothing the path, the red fog was suffocating his brain as badly as the haze of the pastlands. At some point, Volo lost her other sandal, too. Dante's right foot felt warm. It was covered in blood. Rather than pain, all he felt was anger. He needed to find someone. He needed to hurt them. Bare skin smacked against the rock. Dante glanced back and saw that Gladick had fallen. Blaze and Volo ran on. Dante glared after them, teeth clenched so tightly they squeaked. Get up! He yelled over Gladick's body. Get up, you worthless shit! Drowning in fury, Dante drew back and kicked Gladick in the ribs. The old man didn't stir. Dante kicked him again, hard enough to rock him on his side. His legs jutted from his jabat, as thin as the back legs of a dog, and as wrinkled as a shirt tossed in the corner for days. Pathetic. Dante drew back his foot again. Something bobbed to the surface of his mind. Clarity. He calmed himself the wrath raging around him like a windstorm while he was tucked away inside his house. The ether came. He let it flow down his body. Everything got... better. Dante crouched and shook Gladick's shoulder.
nothing. The priest's skin, the easily tanned complexion of a malisher, was now so white Dante could nearly see through it. He picked Gladick up. The old man was as light as he looked, and stumbled onward. Blaze and Volo were starting up the next hill. Dante slogged along, only smoothing the path where it was most treacherous. When he reached the top, he had to kneel and catch his breath, sending the nether into his muscles to wipe away their complaints. He didn't catch up to Blaze and Volo for another mile. They were slumped next to an upthrust fist of rock painted with red swirls. They were as pale as fish bellies, and their eyes were closed. As Dante approached, Blaze's bloodshot eyes fluttered open. Oh, Blazer's voice came out in a croak. Was going to ask if you'd carry Volo for a bit, but it looks like your hands are full. Dante sank down beside him, propping Gladick against the rock. When was the last time you saw Mark? Time ago. Some of it. Do you remember which way we were going? Blaze swung his head about, mouth hanging open, brows lowered. Up? Weren't we going up? Dante grunted. North. Which way is north? The sun is there. Blaze pointed to it. It was currently hanging to their left painful and yellow, then traced his arm across the sky. That means it came up over there. And there is up north. Yes, north. Blaze tried to push himself up, but his legs gave out. My lower arms aren't working. Dante thought for a moment, then glowered at the dark stuff until the shadows rolled across their limbs. The fog pulled back a little. Able to think again, he stilled his mind and touched them both with ether, which seemed to help. He meant to turn it on Gladick and Volo, but his supply was exhausted. Not sure we'll get much further, he said. That was all I had. Blaze cracked his neck, looking a little better. Don't worry. Volo and Gladick are already asleep. If we all die, we can tell them it was their fault, and they'll never be the wiser. They hoisted their charges and shuffled onward. Their progress was creeping. They'd barely made it over the next hill before the red fog stole in from the sides of their minds. Dante pushed on, barely able to see the way ahead, lost in the huff of his breathing and the thump of his wrathful heart. When his legs threatened to quit working, he called to the nether again. 
He wanted nothing more than to become part of the swirling darkness, to lose himself in its coldness, its hunger for blood. Blaze lifted a shaky arm. Beneath his pale skin, his veins stood out like worms. Look! Beyond the next line of hills, a single tree rose into the empty sky. Later, Dante couldn't remember crossing the final leg of their pilgrimage. All he could remember was the rage that seemed to define his every desire. And then, like being splashed with a bucket of water from a mountain-fed stream, it fell away. It stepped out of the hills and into the trees. He set Gladick down and sat, leaning his back against a trunk. Blaze found a spot across from him. The color was already returning to Blaze's skin. Blaze rubbed his hands into his eyes. Care to tell me what just happened to us? Other than something horrible. This land kills all life, Dante said. That's the only way the Osain could turn back the White Lich and his armies. But the Osain are long dead. How can their enchantment have lasted this long? Maybe that's a reflection of just how much they hated him. In other words, you have no idea. Correct. One of Dante's dragonflies lay dead on the dirt, twenty feet away. He reached for the nether, but it wouldn't come. Not because his strength was exhausted, though he knew he was close, but because the power of the Odosain refused to let him. Examining the others, Everyone had a few cuts and scrapes on their elbows and legs, and Volo's feet oozed blood from the soles. But he didn't see anything critical. Gladick's eyes fell open. He considered the trees around him, and the towering pillars of stone at the bottom of the valley. I exist. And I mean to have strong words with the gods about that someday, Blaze said. In the meantime, we've got a job ahead of us. One that you insisted we do, I'll note. What is our plan to make contact? To walk into the most secret temple and pray they allow us to live? I was thinking I'd wait for them to send us a carriage. Dante pulled himself to his feet. But now that you mention it, your way sounds faster. It was another minute before Volo came back to her senses. In that time, Dante didn't see anyone moving in the windows of the towers, or in the green fields around them. There was a dirt path just to their right, and Dante followed it downhill. After the neutral emptiness of the hell-painted hills, the smell of leaves and pollen stopped up his nose like a bung. The path leveled out, delivering them from the forest. Pressure lifted from Dante's shoulders.
he could reach the nether again. He was tempted to use it to heal their abrasions, but not knowing what awaited them at the academy, he saved his strength. In an echo of the settlements in the swamps, the grounds of the silent spires were composed of concentric circles. In the outermost ring, fruit trees grew unfettered, festooned with blossoms of every color. Next came a ring of tidy crops, starting to sprout from the jet-black soil. After that came a ring of statuary, well-tended squares of decorative greenery, and a form of pavement achieved by smoothing out the natural rock of the hills into a high gloss, then etching patterns and glyphs into the stone. And within it all rose the circle of towers. Seven in number, they soared two hundred feet high, capped by black domes marbled with the colors of fire. Their faces were peppered with arched windows, some of which opened to balconies. All of the rings were empty. There were no workers in the fields, no worshippers at the small shrine that stood in the center of the plaza between the towers. Wind buffeted the sprouts in the fields and tousled the flowers in the gardens. Dante swallowed. Tell me the Drake Bane didn't bring everyone from the spires with him, too. He'd been angling for reassurance from Gladick, but the priest said nothing. Dante touched the hilt of his sword, pulling the shadows close like a thick blanket on a winter night. He passed into the shadow of a tower, then back into the late afternoon sunlight as he entered the paved grounds in the middle of the towers. He stopped there and turned in a slow circle. Hello? I'm a friend of Tanaratain. We come seeking the order of the Knights of the Odosain. A leaf fluttered across the courtyard. The windows stayed silent. Blaze waved his hands above his head. Hey, people who dedicated your existence to not getting destroyed. Guess what? You're about to be destroyed. Silhouettes moved within the windows. The tips of arrows winked in the waning sun. Dante shaped the nether into killing darts, but a great blankness slammed down upon him locking both ether and nether in place. Seven. Dante scrabbled for the nether with all that he had, but there was no defying the power of the Odosain. That was the very thing that had brought them to the spires. Though he, Blaze, and Vola were armed, there was no hope of fighting back. They were exhausted which ruled out running away, too. Ah! Blaze quit waving his hands and held them above his head. That destroying I was talking about, not by us, by the Aiden Rane. Archers advanced onto balconies, 
sighting down the white shafts of their arrows. As many as a score per tower, more than a hundred in all. He tells no lies, Gladick boomed. The Aedon Rane has been released from the iron prison of Rhea Lace. He slaughters your people as we speak. We have fought him, but we cannot stop him. Not without your help. With the archers in position, quiet overtook the grounds once more. White cloths embroidered with orange patterns hung from either end of the temple in the center of the plaza, flapping away at themselves in a wind that felt as if it might never stop blowing. A door creaked open in the base of a tower across from them. Six men, or women, dressed in hooded white robes, swept from the entry in perfect silence. They kneeled down in two rows of three, arrows trained on the intruders. A seventh figure walked into the light. She wore a robe, or something like it, but unlike the warriors, her arms were bare, and her face was uncovered. She was tall, and neither young nor old. Something in her bearing was so commanding that Dante hardly noticed as another six archers trotted from the doorway to join the others. She walked toward them, the wind pinning her robe to her legs and torso, rippling the orange stitching. Half of the warriors advanced with her, while the others held their bows trained on the four outsiders. After thirty feet, the first grouped, dropped into a crouch, arrows knocked, and the others popped up and dashed forward to flank the priestess. She came to a stop across from the four of them. Her light skin and dark hair marked her as Tenarian, but she was taller than most. Taller than Dante, in fact, and nearly even with Blaze and Gladic. Despite being a priestess and one in the middle of a rocky desert at that, the muscles of her arms and shoulders were fit for hard labor. Her stature would have drawn looks, but her face would have stopped feet. She was at least five years past the stage of life when nearly all young people were pretty, but that extra time had carved the excess softness from her cheeks and chin, granting her the beauty of a noble warrior. Her eyes locked on Gladick. Gladick of Bressel, I know you. I do not think so, he said. I would have remembered if we had met. The Drake Bane spoke of you. He wasn't sure he could trust you. Yet which of us is still here, in service to your land? She snorted in a way that Dante found annoyingly charming. You, a foreigner, stay in our land to fight a battle that isn't yours, while the Drake Bane, our emperor, abandons our land because he thinks that battle can't be won. One of you is a very big fool. I'd put good money on both, Blay said. Don't worry, my friend Dante will cover me. 
You shouldn't have been able to get here. Not without adding four more gold markers to the trail. You two are warlocks. She nodded at Dante and Gladick, then eyed Blaze. And there's something wrong about you, too, isn't there? Crippled brain, Dante said. I'm afraid he was born with it. She nodded again, sympathetically. She frowned at Volo. You're a roamer. Of the veins? A merchant? No, there's something unsettling about you. Like opening your door to find a single banana has been placed on your stoop. You're with the maggots. Volo bobbed her head. Yes, ma'am. Did you bring these dirty harry here? No, ma'am. It is, ma'am. It isn't, the woman said. Is the purpose of titles to show honor to those that bear them, or to degrade yourself before your betters and train you to do their bidding? Vola straightened her back, looking deadly serious, and a little alarmed to find herself in Dana Kide with someone of the woman's stature. Do we know who first invented titles? No more than we know who invented the first floor beneath our feet, or the first way to tell a man that his mother's a whore-dog. If the first title was invented by the one who bore it, then I'd say it was meant to degrade everybody else. But if it was made up by one of the everybody else, just another commoner, then I'd say it was meant to honor a good person. And since I already admitted we can't know who invented titles, we can't know their intent. Classic dodge. She gave Volo a brief and not overtly warm smile. My title is Belle. I have a name, too, but it's mine, and I don't share it like drunks passing around their bottle. You can have it when you tell me your own names, and why I shouldn't kill you for trespassing in a place where no Harry has ever set foot. I'm Dante Galland, Dante said, deciding that lying might only get him in trouble down the line, and that he might need to impress her. High Priest of Narashtivik. If this meant anything to her, she didn't know it. Blaze Buckler. Blaze extended a hand, which the bell ignored. No title attached. Not because I don't deserve one, of course, but because a fancy title would only make it harder for me to do what I do. The woman tilted her head. Which is... Save Narashtivik from disaster, when its high priest meddles in something he had no business with. That's what brings you here? Meddling? If this is what meddling looks like, Gladick said, then we should all wish for our lives to have more priests and mother-in-laws. As stated, the Aedan Rane has returned. We seek to stop him. And I seek to find a way to stop aging that doesn't involve dying.
I think I'll have more look at my job than you will. I'm inclined to agree. Yet we have faced him and survived. The bell laughed, her pulled back hair swaying as she wagged her head. Do you even care if I believe you? While you're at it, why not tell me you're my long-lost father? Thus I'm obliged to help you however I can. We got here to the spires, didn't we? Blaze lifted his right elbow behind his head, stretching it with his other hand. You know the weirdest part of it all? Between the way his eyes shift between blues and those granity features of his, the lich is a pretty handsome fellow. I don't normally say that about a glowing giant who's trying to cut me in half with a glaive as big as a church steeple, but it happens to be true. She smirked, then swung her dark brows together like a closing gate. But you saw him. You looked into his eyes. And then, the clash of weapons, an escape. How? We had the help of a few of your knights. Unfortunately, they didn't make it out. They fought with great valor, Gladick said. They met their fate precisely as they were trained to. If you were able to stand against him, why are you here? She strode forward, startling her guards as she shoved at Gladick. You have to go back. You have to go back and you have to rip his heart in half with your sorcery. With the guards on edge, Dante reached for the nether, but it was still being clasped in place by the knights concealed in the towers. Why didn't we think of that before we poisoned ourselves marching through the hell-painted hills? We can't stand against him, Bell. Not on our own. That's why we're here. Send your knights with us, and we'll destroy the White Lich. You said that you've already fought him alongside the Odosain, and that he killed my knights and forced you to run away. Why would I send more good men to their deaths? Gladick straightened his jabad. Have you heard of the theory of the prime body? She doused him with a look of sheer disdain. If you think we're that negligent in our duties, why come here at all? I don't follow your reasoning, my lady. That's because you haven't bothered to think it through. We're the ones who uncovered the idea of the prime body in the first place. Even if we hadn't, a moment of thought would have led you to the conclusion that, in the course of our sworn duty of destroying the Aiden Rane, we might have heard of a method that would allow us to do exactly that. Your people have sought out the body, then. We've been seeking after it for centuries, Gladic of Bressel. Before you waste my time, I'd suggest you go and find it, and only then return to the spires. I'll be long dead by then, but I'm sure my granddaughter will be very accommodating to you. But, my lady, we have already found it. Her jaw dropped open. That's not 
possible. We've been searching for centuries, I heard you. But as you know, we are sorcerers. Warlocks, if you like. And though the group of us are not friends, there is one value we hold in common. We do not like to fail. If you've found it, then you don't need to battle the Lich himself. You only need to suppress his sorcery long enough to strike at the prime body. For that, you don't need to travel all the way to the spires. You could just use the Drakebane's personal guards. She tapped her front teeth. Except you came here, which isn't at all easy to do. The Drakebane's Odosein are all dead. Many, yes. The others fled with him to take Bressel. That's actually worked. Better than even he dreamed. And so we are left to come to you for aid. My name is Era, the woman said sadly. And there are no more knights left to help you. Dante crossed his arms. The next time you want someone to believe the Odosain are gone, you might want to warn your Odosain not to use the powers of the Odosain. I said there are no more knights here. Did I say that there was no one left with our talent? Then give us a squire, or a page boy of Odosain. I don't care what you call them, all I need is for you to send some of them with us. There are many reasons for a person to reason poorly. She began to pace across the paving stones, the white fabric of her dress flowing about her strong legs. We know most of them as the Hana Ro. In your language, although these days it's as much our language as well, this translates to something like the Branch of Lax. Era's gaze grew distant, as if she were searching for signs of infiltrators in the fire-colored hills. Yes, something like that although not precisely that. Her eyes snapped to Dante. Do you speak more than one language? Too well, he said. A lot of others, not so well. Then you know that exchanging words between them isn't like exchanging coins between different countries, where you can weigh the metal in them against each other and know that you're getting a fair deal so that nobody needs to be stabbed. With language, there are lots of words that don't translate at all. You might dismiss this as the barbarism of a foreign culture that doesn't even have the concept of such and such. But that is arrogant thinking, which is lazy thinking, which is the slow death. I think that if you can't translate one of your terms directly to another language, such that it means exactly the same thing in theirs that it does in yours, that doesn't mean there's a flaw solely in the other language.
for if your language lacks the specificity to be translated, then it is inaccurate as well, and strays from the truth in ways that you can't even see. That makes sense. Dante looked up at the balconies of the tower across from him. The archers were still crouched there, watching them with knocked arrows. You were talking about the Hannah Row. I was and am, so be quiet and let me. When you're reasoning, the branch of lax is like a tree that bears the fruit of all the things that you don't have at your disposal. We in the spires could spend all night arguing which fruits are born most heavily. But I don't care about that right now, and we list them in no particular order. One common lack is the lack of information to reach a sound conclusion. If you think fire is cold, then you'll never understand why it keeps burning you. Another lack, and some of my peers will argue that every other lack is merely a subform of this one, is the lack of brains to guide yourself down the correct path. Just as a sick man is too weak to paddle across a body of water, your mind is too weak to paddle you toward the truth. A third lack, which might be a refined version of the second, is the lack of training to be able to reason well in the first place. Say you come to a fight with a spear of burnished steel. Your foes only got a sharpened pole. But if he spent years in training, while you just picked yours up for the first time, you're dead on your feet. And lastly, at least for our purposes, there is the fourth lack, the lack of good intent, where you will willfully deceive yourself with false logic in order to reach conclusions that reinforce your old beliefs, or that justify your poor actions. Now then, in not understanding why I can't send Odosayin away with you, which fruit from the branch of Lax are you full of? I'll save you some time, Blay said. It's absolutely the brain's one. I'm guessing it's lack of information, Dante said. In any other circumstance, he would have been highly annoyed that they were drifting so far off track. But listening to Era philosophize was like watching a trained athlete run through an unfamiliar course without missing a step. Given that I didn't even know this place existed until a few days ago, and that you deliberately hide yourselves out in a wasteland that sucks the soul out of anyone who walks into it. Era smiled, flashing her teeth. You're already making your way toward the answer. Yes. We founded the Odosein in the hell-painted hills because their poison protects us from the Aiden Rane, to say nothing of pests like you. Are you aware that a knight, on finishing their training with us, never returns to the silent spires. Why?
Because the Drake Bane needs them to fight off the endless monsters and rebels your land's always spawning? If a fruit is grown from toxic soil, would you eat the fruit? Of course not. It would be full of the same poisons it grew from. Even if the tree was grown in a clean land and then transplanted to the foul one, it would still start absorbing the poisons as soon as it was taken there. Yes, it would. And so do we. This land was made to be so corrupt that nothing can grow here. We've carved out a small piece of it that we can survive in, but we can't keep all the poisons out of it. Over time, they build up in you. We have ways to protect ourselves from them, but that changes our bodies forever, in ways that make the normal land toxic to us. The knights don't return because they can't, Dante said. They'd get stuck here, just like you are. It was lack of information, after all. Era smiled. The beauty of her face shot through with sadness. Sure, there are some people here who possess the powers you need, but none of them can leave the spires. They'd drop dead long before they met the Aiden Rani. I see. Dante nodded twice, finding that he'd been unceremoniously dumped into that numb and quiet space where all hope has been kicked from beneath you, and your mind decides that the only thing left is to lie down and wait for it to end. Well, how about apprentices? Blaze motioned vaguely to the towers. In a place like this, you've always got loads of young kids to sweep the halls and muck the stables in exchange for the privilege of being taught to serve their lords for the rest of their lives. Oh, they're long gone, Hera said. The Drake Bane recalled everyone we had to try to put down the monsoon. Right down to the children. They weren't close to being ready to fight, but when a man feels his future slipping away from him, He'll mortgage it for pennies on the round. I expect the last of our apprentices were fed to the Ziki Oko weeks ago. But if any survived, then they'd be with the Drake Bane, hustled away to Bressel. They're trained to obey him like your arm is trained to obey your mind. They can't leave his side any more than your hand can pop itself from your wrist and crawl away on its fingers. Blaze opened his mouth to reply, then closed it, giving a quick shake of his head. He seemed to lapse into the same hopeless acquiescence Dante found himself mired in. You say that you would die if you left the spires, Gladick said. How long would this take? Era rolled her eyes up and to the right. For those of us that were born here, a matter of hours. For those who were brought here later in life, they might last a day or two, 
which implies that those with the stoutest constitutions might endure longer than that. Long enough to depart the hills. You must commit your people to us. I must order my people to commit suicide. You northerners worship so many gods that your brains don't know which direction they're pulling in, priest. Gladick leaned closer. Dante could feel him fumbling around in both the shadows and the light. But the soldiers of the spires continued to keep both forces in place as tightly as the glaciers of the Wodens. Do you suppose that you will survive here, the last island of free humanity, after the Aden Rane has swallowed the rest of the world? Fine bits of spittle flew from Gladick's lips. Once he controls the continents and the seas, he will rip these hills out by the roots. The only sanctuary for you will be that of death. Era held her ground. Desperation is driving you to hysterics, you wrinkled sack. Don't feel bad. It's a common failing when you lack a real argument. Gladick's face flushed red. He made a great yank at the ether, grabbing at enough to level the plaza, only for the unseen negators to clamp down on it with everything they had. I make no hysterics. Gladick closed his eyes, breathing through his nose until his hands stopped shaking. Better than anyone, the Odosein must understand that if we fail, everything is gone, replaced by two ends, death or the slavery of the blighted. If I must understand it, why are you talking to me like I don't? Because you, and everyone else I speak to, are incapable of understanding that your life was rendered worthless the instant the Aiden Rane crawled back out from the earth. Send your people and at least know that you tried. It would only be a waste. Then send your lessers. What does it matter, you arrogant bitch? They are meant to fall in service of the spires. Era's right hand twitched. Her guards tensed. The cord stood out from her neck, but her voice was calm. It's not logical to waste resources on a strategy we know will fail. Better to wait and see if the lich makes a mistake, like trying to enter the hills before he's strong enough. You know that he won't, Gladick said. He has fought your people before. He's had a millennium to plan his ascension. He will never strike before he is ready. The only choice is to take the fight to him before he's prepared. There's wisdom in that. But we can't help you do it. So, if you're serious about stopping him, about taking the fight to him, I suggest you stop wasting everyone's time and be on your way. Gladick curled his hand, as if to make another grab at the ether, then slouched his spine, dropping his gaze to the plaza tiles. It is no wonder the world lies ever in darkness.
Bring the answers before your leaders and wise men, and they will prove themselves as cowardly as everyone else. Dante turned to take in the slope they'd come in on. Crossing the hills almost killed us. If we leave now, will we be okay? Once you enter our land, it'll cleanse the hill's corruption from you within a few hours, Era said. But once you start off again, don't stop until you hit the swamp. She glanced up at the balconies. Some of the archers had returned. You should go. You can wait in the outer trees until you feel well enough to go. Dante racked his mind for answers, but they'd exhausted every argument they'd come to make. Under the watchful eye of the archers, he walked away from the plaza and into the gardens that ringed the towers. He felt much better than when they'd arrived at the silent spires, but he could feel the exhaustion lurking in his legs. Even after some rest, it was going to be a long walk back to the swamps. Blaze kicked a rock, sending it skittering over the dirt. Well, that was a lot of a bust. What are we going to do now? I think, Dante said, that we are going to do an unpleasant amount of walking. Why don't we ever travel to anywhere that you can reach by sitting? Maybe Naron had the right idea. We should buy the fastest ship we can find and spend the rest of our existence sailing around somewhere warm. If we stick to the seas, the lich might not even be able to get at us. The blighted would make awful sailors. They already act like they're drunk. Just wait until they get put on a ship and get some rum in them. Dante brushed past a shrub of blue flowers. Taking to sea isn't a completely insane idea. Once we're out of the hills, I'll loonack and tell him to start arranging for an escape fleet. You mean, like what the Drakebane did, except with no destination at the end of the journey? If that's what we're down to, I'll start preparing a eulogy for the state of our ideas. We should go to Bressel, Volo said. If we can find the Odysseyne and talk to them, maybe one of them would come back with us. Dante grunted. Everyone we've talked to seems to think that's about as likely as talking the white lich into sitting on his own glaive. Then we'll kidnap one of the knights and make him fight the lich. Kidnapping someone who can strip our powers from us like dirty sheets might be our worst idea yet. Even so, just to cover our asses, I'll ask my agent in Bressel to see if she can run down an Odosayin. Right now, though, everything we've seen indicates that traveling to Bressel would be a waste of weeks we can't afford to lose. That's pessimistic, Blay said. I'm sure the White Lich will put his plans on hold if we write him nicely enough. Volo wiped a bead of sweat from her temple. What if we search for one of the apprentice knights who fled with the Drakebane? 
Maybe they weren't able to train long enough to be totally loyal to him. If they were trained for... Blaze got a startled look on his face. He spun on his heel and dashed back toward the plaza. There, Era had been speaking with her bodyguards and was just now mounting the steps of the tower. Hey! Blaze waved his arms over his head. Bell Era, wait! Archers flooded back onto the balconies of the towers, aiming their arrows at Blaze. He skidded to a stop, holding his hands high above his head. I admit running straight at your leader while yelling my head off wasn't the most diplomatic approach, he called Ad. But can you wait to fill me full of arrows until after I filled you in on how I'm going to save the world? Dante was already running after him, trying to take a posture that indicated he thought his friend was very stupid, and that he was only trying to stop that friend from making things worse. As Dante hit the plaza, Era descended two steps to stand above Blaze. If you've come back to beg me, you'll have more luck begging a tree to grow you a wife. Oh, I already have one of those. He smiled tightly at the archers and slowly lowered his hands. But if I can talk this tree into growing me a person who'll hear me out, then I'd be interested. She squinted at him with one eye. You're aglow with cleverness. That seems like a stupid reaction, considering I've already told you at length why we can't send anyone to help you. You want to argue more? Waste as much breath as you want? Words can change minds, but they can't change facts. You might say that, good bell. But my companions and I are cursed with the foolhardiness of not knowing when a thing can't be done. With that in mind, I have a proposal for you. Make it fast, or not at all. You can't send knights to help us because you don't have any. And the only other people here who have the power of the Odosain can't leave the hills. Well, that's the end of it, isn't it? But then I got to thinking. You might not be able to leave here, but we can. And we can put a blade through the prime body's heart and bring down the lich. If you teach us to be Odosain. Era's black eyebrows twitched upward. A smile spread across her face like dye dropped in water. I see why they don't give you a title, Mr. Buckler. After all, what would they call you? The Minister of Alternative Solutions? I prefer the Baron of Getting Shit Done. Blaze turned to Dante, who had stopped a few feet behind him. You think we could fit that on a signet ring? If this works, Dante said, we'll stitch it in gold thread on a thirty-feet banner. Well, Belera, can you train us? She descended another pair of steps. Sure. In fact, the idea had already occurred to me. You're serious? 
You can train us to do what you do. The skill we need to counter the white lich. And you didn't say anything about it. You were going to let us just walk away. I have to come up with the ideas for you. You don't understand the Order Sayin at all, priest of the eleven plus one gods of the North. If you couldn't think this solution out for yourself, then you proved you're not ready to learn what we do. But I did think that thought, Blay said. So that means you'll teach us? Nope. Era dropped down the final steps, putting her on the ground with them. But I will bring your plea in front of the argument of seven voices. Right. The good old argument of seven voices. Will you think less of me if I ask you what the hell that is? The rulers of the silent spires. Dante licked his lips. I'm sorry, I thought you were the ruler here. Then that was a faulty assumption on your part, wasn't it? Not a good thing, thinking the first person who wanders out of a fortress is in charge of the whole place. I do have sovereignty over my own tower, and as the newest voice of the Seven, I'm expected to handle irregularities like this. But in a case like yours, we decide as a group. As in you take a vote. You don't have a king, or at least a chancellor of some kind. Eris snorted. Trust a high priest to argue that every governing institution's got to be ruled by a high priest. Why would you believe one person can be right about every single thing at every single time? If you want to get to the truth, you don't assign it to a single man who's above us all. You put a bunch of good people in a room and you let them fight their way to the truth. Gladick moved next to Dante, looking more thoughtful than during his angry outburst earlier. How will this hearing proceed? I'm thinking we'll argue on three decisions. First of all, whether we're allowed to train those who approach the Odosain, rather than vice versa. Second, we'll look at whether we're allowed to train Hari to be knights. And last, I'm pretty sure the others are going to want to argue that foreigners who trespass in the silent spires should be put to death. Aha, Blay said. On that count, might I suggest no? Dante shaded his eyes against the sun, examining the heights of the towers. How will this process play out? Like any process meant to get to the bottom of an issue, Era said. You'll tell the Seven who you are and what you're about. Then they'll question you until you're so sick of questions, you'll spend the next five years ending every sentence with a period. Then we'll argue with each other until we've reached our decision. A shadow fell over her face. That's the process in theory. Like always, it's different in practice. As I hope you figured out from the name, you'll be talking to seven people. But the truth is, three won't be listening. Not with an open mind. 
You'll have a pair of boulders sitting in front of you. Boulders, Dante said. Boulders are just like they sound. They're sitting in the exact same place they've always been in. And they won't budge from their spot even if you tied a team of swamp dragons to them. They're the preservers of our first ideals. And they'll never agree with what you're proposing. Their names are One and Five. Era paced in front of them. So, if you want to win a judgment in your favor, you'll have to convince four of the remaining five lords of the towers to go your way. Sounds brutal, doesn't it? Like trying to wrestle a bear that you've just cuckolded. Good news is that of those five people, the five you have any hope of persuading, one of them is a river, someone who's been pushing for change for a long time. Her name's Seven, and she'll support you in everything. That means you only need three of the other four. A little better for you, unless you lose anyway because your hopes will have been raised higher by it. That's a needlessly cruel way to put it. But I'm confused. You say there's two boulders, one river, and four undecided. That's already seven people. Aren't you one of the voices, too? Era flashed her teeth again. I am. Voice. And I haven't decided how I'll vote yet. Comforting. What are the state of your laws on the three matters we'll be discussing? Our laws? What is a law? The things people give to other people so that those people will be less inclined to be horrendous butchers toward each other. A law is a rule that was decided to be correct by a certain group of people at a certain point in time. Are those people here now? Is that time here now? I don't see those people. I don't see that time. I see my people gathered at the current time to determine what we believe. A truly enlightened state of affairs, Dante said. How long do we have to prepare our arguments? Era waved up at the seven towers. Until I get the other six down here to hear you make them. Don't worry, it'll take a minute. Some of them are very old. Before Dante could say another word, she strode toward the shrine in the inner ring of the plaza. There she lifted a small mallet from the post it had been hanging from and used it to strike a bowl-shaped piece of brass that rang like the offspring of a bell and a gong. Shouts carried down from the balconies. Most of the archers withdrew, replaced by people with the general bearing of trusted household staff. They leaned over the railings to look down on Era. She swung back the mallets and struck the instrument again. At this, the staff dashed back inside. Era replaced the mallet on the post and walked across the open-walled shrine to one of the seven seats that were arranged like a pincer beneath the structure's pitched roof. Well, this is unfolding rapidly, Blay said. 
Suppose we should figure out what we're going to say. You're not going to say much. Dante turned a stern look on Gladick. And you aren't going to say anything. Not unless you can refrain from calling the person you're speaking to a bitch, or threatening to cut off their digits with a dull stone, or any of the other pleasantries you spit out the instant things aren't going your way. Gladick's mouth twitched. Threats are often more convincing than rhetoric or facts. I will do what is necessary to secure our goals. You will do what is necessary to not make me punch your jaw out of the top of your head. This could be our last shot, Gladick. Then see that you do not fail, and require me to correct our course for us. Dante curled his hand into something not far from a fist. I have run my country for years. I've forged treaties, alliances. I know when to extend an open hand and when to draw the dagger. You, on the other hand, solve your problems by murdering anyone you don't like. Before we begin, swear you'll follow my lead. The old man smirked. You suppose your efforts to control those around you are more moral because there are times when you don't employ violence? Yet how many have died in your wars? My wars were fought to free people, not to enslave them to... A door boomed open from another tower. A tall man in a white, airy robe similar to Eros plodded down the steps, followed by a small coterie of attendants. Like Era, he was tall, with muscles more suited to swinging an axe than to poring over scholarship. But he was well into his middle age and bore a baker's layer of fat. He eyed the foreigners with naked suspicion, head swiveling to keep watch on them as he approached the shrine. As he settled into his chair at one end of the pincer, Another tower opened, disgorging a man with the lean build of a racing hound. He was about forty, and he was nearly bald, sporting a tuft of black hair at the front of his forehead, and not much else at the top. He glanced at the three foreigners with curiosity, then smiled quickly, but warmly. The next voice to arrive was a woman whose wide shoulders and thick body were stout enough to house a small family. She gave them a look that was nearly as cold as the icy blue gaze of the lich, mounting the steps with the implacability of a draught animal. I don't like these people, Vola whispered once the woman was seated. They look like they say mean things to babies, knowing that the babies won't understand them. The remainder of the council arrived shortly, consisting of four men and three women in all. Two of them were old enough to require assistance up to their seats. Two staff members appeared next to the outsiders, and through a process that was almost entirely non-verbal, indicated that they should step before the seven voices. As the servants guided them to their place between the two points of the pincer of chairs, they kept a twitchy distance, as if afraid the foreigners' leprotic arms were about to drop from their bodies. Voices of the Silent Spires, Era said. 
we have an unusual matter before us. One that I suspect we're going to have to spend an immense amount of words to untangle. First things first. Let's make some introductions. We're going to know each other very well before this is over. She introduced the outsiders, including Volo, then moved on to the voices. Dante made special note of the boulders, one and five, the axe-swinger and the shelter-sized woman, respectively, and the river, seven, the balding man who'd been the only one to smile at them. I'll summarize the situation to the best of my understanding, Era continued. With the aid of the rebels of the righteous monsoon, the Aiden Rane has re-emerged from the deep swamps. The Drakebane tried to stop him. The Drakebane failed at this and put into play the Exodus, abandoning Tanaratain to the Lich and his servants. We know this. There aren't any surprises there. What is a surprise is that these four people, including no less than three Hari sorcerers, have kept fighting back. They faced the Aiden Rane at the wound of the world. They didn't win a complete victory, but they did survive the battle against him, which would be counted as a win by most people who know what they're talking about. After this, they proceeded to do something impossible something we've failed to do for centuries. They found the prime body. The other six voices shifted in their chairs, scoffing and muttering to each other. Era shrugged, waiting for them to simmer down. If you can't believe it, that's probably because your ego doesn't want to accept that a team of degenerate foreigners have done what we couldn't. It doesn't help our pride that these Hari were trying to save Tanara Tain while our own emperor was ducking out of here like the sun was about to drop on his head. It makes you wonder why we ever agreed to such a plan. We didn't agree, said one, pressing his fingertips together and leaning forward. We were told, and we obeyed, as is our duty. Now quit sermonizing and get back to the point. The point? The point is that these Hari, in all defiance of self-preservation, want to take a third shot at the Lich. But they need the Odosain to strip them of his powers, while they strike at the prime body. When they learned that none of us can leave and help them, they came up with an alternative plan, that we should train them as knights so they can confront the Aiden Rane themselves. If her earlier words had caused a stir, these ones unleashed a storm. Again, Era waited for it to grow quiet enough to be heard. Do you want to sit here all day puffing on about how outraged you are, and how important it is for all good people to be exactly the same amount of outraged, or be branded a traitor? Or do you want to talk through whether we should be outraged? You're putting the stern before the bow, one said. 
The first thing to decide isn't whether to train them to be Odosain. It's to decide if we should feed their guts to our gardens. Do you think I'm so dumb that I've forgotten that I live in this place that I've never left? If you want to ask them why we shouldn't kill them, they're standing right in front of you. Interrogating them is your job. One shifted his bulk to better glare at Dante. What's there to ask? Outsiders who trespass in the silent spires are to be executed. Are you an outsider? Is this question rhetorical? Dante said. It's a good way to find out if you're lying or delusional. Yes, I'm an outsider. And were you invited here? I think that, given the circumstances of... One flapped his hand like a yapping mouth. Is that hari babble for yes? Or do you think that trying to wriggle away like a greased eel makes you more trustworthy? No, Dante said. We came here on our own. Because there you have it. They're outsiders. They came without permission. Hence, they forfeited their heads. Now, where is my sword? Dante looked to Era for support, but she'd taken a seat and was watching them with bland interest. To his right, a guard drew his sword, looking uncertain. But his confidence was bolstered when four other guards unsheathed their blades, too. Seven, the balding man, cleared his throat. We've always held that, yes, trespassers are to be executed. It's just good policy. Can't have the wrong people sniffing around our secrets. But it occurs to me to ask, have we ever had a trespasser? One's face grew stony. Five pressed her lips together until they disappeared. Era said, They've tried, haven't they? The gold marks where they fell are scattered over the hills, like spilled grains of rice. But has anyone ever made it here? No, not a single one. Then it would follow, Seven said, gesticulating tightly, fingers splayed as if he were working a skein of threads. That we've never had to, rather had the chance to, test our tradition. To bring it from the clean room of the mind to the grimy grounds of the real. One snorted. That's the most obnoxious thing I've ever heard. If it offends you, feel free to rephrase it in a way that's less upsetting to your tender ears. There's nothing to be tested, Five rumbled. She had a streak of grey running back from her right temple. The knights of the Orosain are the land's only defense against the Aiden Rane. The Silent Spires is the institution tasked with the grave responsibility of replacing those knights. Anyone who compromises our security— and our ability to save our citizens from annihilation must be destroyed. 
That would be challenging to argue with, indeed, Seven said. But now that the Drake Bane's gone, are we still the same institution? Now that we're not training more knights, what are we? If our responsibilities have ended, what's left for these outsiders to threaten? Five thrust out her jaw. We don't know that we won't be needed again. This is all irrelevant, isn't it? Dante gestured southeast, back toward the unseen swamps. We're not here to compromise your security. We're here to fight the same thing you are. What do you have to lose by teaching us the power of the Odosain? It's very simple, one said. Our principles. Blaze rubbed his jaw. I don't think he knows that word, good sir. You might want to try something along the lines of the ruthless pursuit of your goals. Dante shot him a look. Exactly what principle is at stake here? The tradition of the spires. Our loyalty to the emperor. Our pledge to our people to never let foreign powers influence our protection of Tanaratain. Take your pick. Is any of those principles more important than not being consumed by the lich? Six, who looked to be the oldest man among the voices, cleared his throat. I'm sorry, but have we decided not to kill them? Or did I nod off during that part? One crossed his arms over his broad chest. If that's a call to vote, then mine is for death. Blaze rolled his eyes. Great thinking. Let's get those heads rolling. I'm sure that the next outsiders who march into the spires will be another group of friendly and extremely effective allies, and not the white lich looking to feed you to his troop of enraged zombies. My vote is for life, Seven put in. One scowled. The tradition is as clear as the air in front of your face. Foreign intruders get introduced to Tenarian steel. How in the bottomless waters can you deny that? Since arriving, they haven't caused any trouble. They spoke with three peacefully enough, and whatever they had to say impressed her enough to induce her to summon an argument. It seems to me that the obvious interpretation of the tradition is that were to kill foreigners who come here to harm us. What sense would it make to execute those who come to help? If a foreigner came to us to guarantee that he could kill the Aiden Rane, and all he needed was a single speck of dust from the spires, would we still execute him because tradition can't be violated no matter what? Era glanced across the pincer of chairs. Who wants to let them live? Seven raised his hand. So did two, then six, 
Then Era herself, followed by four. I count five. Era stared at one. Unless you've got four extra arms hidden in your pockets, you lose. One shook his head in disgust. Get this over with before my lunch escapes my throat. So that you all understand. Six jabbed his bony finger at the foreigners. Anyone else had come and wandered in here from the hills, and I'd be cheering as the servants swabbed the blood from the shrine. But these aren't normal times. That's why I listen to what comes next. This is exactly what I was talking about before your vote, Dante said. This is an extreme time. The White Lich has escaped his confinement. There's no one else left to stand against him. During times of peace, there's nothing more important than principles. But in times of extremes, when whole futures hang in the balance, the normal rules break down. It's what you do when your principles fail that defines who you are, and whether you survive or fall. Five chuckled. Do better, Sir Galland. Excuse me? You think you're speaking reason, but you're speaking about emotions. Why we should let our fear of what's out there change what we do in here. Aren't you afraid? Don't see how that matters. Answer the question, and I'll tell you. Sure I am, she said. Anyone who isn't afraid of the Aiden Rani is so stupid they wouldn't even notice when the Blight stole the rest of their minds away. You've always been able to stick to your principles because the spires have always been protected from the outside world. But your insulation's about to be ripped away from you. You're afraid because for once you can be hurt. Five sank back in her chair, glaring hard. But he thought he saw doubt in her eyes. One cursed. We're way off course here. We've always chosen our recruits. What we should be talking about is how it's wrong to train any random person who comes to us. Seven cocked his head. I don't understand why that would be so. We can't trust them. They might have hidden motives. They might be infiltrating us to do harm. There are reasons we seek out our own talent. And do you think we find all of the talent that's available? More than enough. I'll make this quick, Era said. You might not know our history, one, but I know it, and I know it well. Ever hear of Fadden the Cleaver? He came uninvited to the Spires to become a knight. And it was a good thing he did, because if not for him, we would have lost the second battle of Darabod. Then there's Rika Marn. She turned out to be something and a half. Less than a century after that, we took in the Dala brothers. I can keep going if you want. 
Or you can accept that you have the talent and swear to serve the Drakebane. The spires have allowed any number of those who came to us to serve the emperor. One tossed a glance at the foreigners. None of those people you rattled off were Hari. Are we talking about Hari yet, one? He didn't look at her. No. Then I call for another vote. This time it was four to three, with four defecting to the other side. Dante didn't know what to make of the loss of one of their voices, particularly when Era's history of them doing exactly what they were voting on seemed so ironclad. He was suddenly aware of the gaping rift between the actuality of the voice's personal opinions and his assumption that he'd be able to stroll in and talk them right to his side. But these weren't half-drunk peasants in Narashtovic who would scramble to do anything he asked. They were an institution every bit as venerable as Narashtovic, one that was vital to the ongoing existence of Tanara Tain. They would have a deep culture of their own, and a will to match. Glad to see not everyone has lost their minds, one nodded at four. Now then, three, you got any history lessons about all the outlanders we've taken in over the years? Because I just did a quick count and came out with, let me see here. He lowered his head, counting off on his fingers. All right. Zero. You're right, Era said. No Hari has ever been trained in the Odosain. As far as I know, they've never been allowed to set foot in the spires. I'm as interested as you are to hear the foreigners explain to us why we should break that streak. It's just as I've said. Dante kept close watch on the faces of the undecideds. Two, Era, Four, and Six. We're the only ones who can stop your enemy from conquering you. And the rest of us in turn. Why wouldn't you train us? One got a good laugh from this. You're warlocks, right? Great, big, powerful ones. Except when you oppose the Odosain, of course. When we render you just another man with a sword. Back in your frigid homelands, if your enemies came to you, would you teach them the ways of your dark magic? That depends. Is my homeland being ripped apart by an invincible lich who I'm powerless to stop? If we're so powerless, why are you begging us for aid? Now who's getting off track? Yes, I would train my enemies if that's what it took to hold off the enemy that would destroy us both. What other choice would I have? An easy answer to give. Now, let's think this through. You and your enemy have always run at a stalemate. Maybe you're the big guy one year, and the next year his kingdom's looking a little stronger, but neither one of you has been able to conquer the other. You're evenly matched. Now they come to you, and you teach them all of your strengths. Together, you march against the new foe, and you beat him. Wow!
Great job. One leaned back in his chair, looking down his long nose. Then you go home. Soon enough, the old conflicts flare back up. Only this time you're not evenly matched anymore. You've taught your enemy everything you know, and they use it to put you to the sword. That's paranoia. We're not your enemies. Until a few months ago, I didn't even know you people existed. The bulky man exchanged a smug look with Five. She smacked a meaty hand on the arm of her chair. You ask us for the one skill that is uniquely Tanarian, the one weapon we know how to forge that no one else does. You say that you're not our enemy? Perhaps not. Perhaps not for now. She pointed to Gladick. But his people surely hate us. And if they ever cast off the Drakebane, they will come for their revenge. Or the Alabolgians will buy the secret from the Malish and send their greedy ships to plunder our wealth from Erisosis, reducing us to poverty. Your claims that you are not the enemy are disingenuous. When you pour a bottle of spirits into the swamp, there's no putting it back in the bottle. If we allow our secrets to leave Tanaratain, one day they will be used against us. You might be right, Dante said, keeping his words slow to mask his annoyance. But I still say it doesn't matter. Not when the alternative is your total destruction at the hands of the lich. The wisdom of the Odosain lies at the core of who we are as Tenarians. This was spoken by two, a man in his fifties with the lean-limbed build of one of the runners the Galadies used to swiftly deliver messages across the rugged terrain of the Rift Valleys. If we pass it along to foreigners, and it's no longer our own, then haven't we lost who we are? How so? You'd still be right here. You fail to look deeply enough. If the process of saving ourselves requires us to destroy who we are, then what have we saved? Aside from the world. Joke all you want, one said. You're not the one being asked to surrender all of Narashtavik's treasures to outsiders. I just don't see how sharing a piece of Tanaratain can destroy Tanaratain. If anything, it will spread your influence and your prestige. Dante rested his arm on the pommel of his sword, then blinked. He reached for the handle, the gently tapered horn of a swamp dragon, and drew the blade. Purple nether forked along the black metal. One shot to his feet and thrust his finger at Dante. That's one of our swords! Right and wrong. Dante held up the weapon for them to see. It's modeled after your weapons, but I crafted it myself. Your design has saved me several times already, 
allowing me to find my way to the spires, where we will find a way to kill your mad wizard. Meanwhile, though I've borrowed from their traditions, the Odosain still exist, completely untroubled by my theft. And the same will be true, if you teach us to be one of them. He held the sword up for another few moments. Each voice stared at the swirling nether, which continued to flow even as every other shadow lay trapped by their power. Dante let the moment linger, then sheathed the blade with a forceful click. He allowed himself a small smile. One chortled. Error sighed. Seven cleared his throat, then looked down, a touch of red coming to his cheeks. Rhetoric, Era said. You're trying to stir our guts. But has it occurred to you that sword you carry is the physical embodiment of what we profess to fear? Dante shook his head. Sensing his bewilderment, Blaze stepped up beside him, giving the audience a small bow. Forgive me for making a suggestion that's almost stupidly simple. But what if we just promise not to tell anyone else what you teach us? Five laughed some more, her belly shaking. And no man has ever lied? No foreigner has ever broken a promise to people he has no loyalty to? No, Hari, we can't accept your word as if it's made from pure gold. The main problem here is that we're not Tenarians, right? Then how about we resolve that whole mess by becoming Tenarians? This caused the voices to exchange glances. Frowning at his lap, Seven said, That would be an elegant solution, yes. But, But, one said, you aren't Tenarians. Look at yourselves. Your features are as fat as a blowfish. The fish aren't going to like it when that gets back to them. Surely you don't think the way a person looks determines what land they belong to. If we'd been born in Darabode and raised as right and proper Tenarians, would you still think we were nasty Hari? A convincing counter, Five said. But irrelevant, as you weren't born in our land, nor raised as one of us. One's face bent with contempt. It's not that convincing. If you jump in the water and swim for an hour, does that make you a fish? Mostly it makes me hungry and sleepy, Blay said. I dare say that fishiness isn't defined by the specific piece of water the fish lives in. You can take a fish from one pond and put it into another, and it'll do just fine in its new home. Six eyed them, the wrinkles deepening around his eyes. You'd become Tenarian, would you? What can you tell me about the body? The body? It's fleshy. 
some bones inside it to keep it from flopping around. An excellent way to travel from one place to another without the need for expensive horses or canoes. I refer to the body of Tanaraten. Yes, me too. As I was saying, something about how you're all a part of it, and you have duties to the rest of it. All pulling together, you might say, just as the body's lungs, heart, spleen, and so forth, set aside their differences and work together to keep the physical body, uh, alive and happy and so forth. So must the people of Tanaratain work together to form what you might call a body of the country. Seven was looking embarrassed again. Six applied one of the most patient expressions Dante had ever seen. You aren't Tenarians. You could live among us for another dozen years, and you might not yet be one of us. Do you suppose the Aiden Rane will give us that long to find out? Maybe if we got something to distract him, like a large quantity of pinwheels. This is all hypothetical, isn't it? Era motioned to Dante. Would you actually pledge to serve Tanaratain, when it means you'd have to sever all your ties to your homeland? You'd renounce your titles and pledge to serve as knights in the Drakebane service? Dante shifted on his feet. I have a responsibility to my people. I can't abandon them. Then you can't become Odorsain. We could make it, she made a cutting motion through the air. This will never work. You can't be a master of one land and a servant to the other. Blaze shrugged at Dante. Well, damn, that trick worked with the broken herons. I have a solution. This came from Gladick, who drew a thin, hooked knife and set it against his throat. Once our work is finished, I will destroy myself, and my knowledge of the Odosain will perish with me. Finally, we're getting somewhere. One grinned at Dante and Blaze. And the two of you, would you make such a pledge? Absolutely, Blaze said. To be honest, I've been looking for an excuse to off myself, ever since I found out my favorite baker closed shop. Dante gazed across the seven waiting faces. Do you realize how easy it would be to lie to you? We could complete our training, slay the Aiden Rane, then return to our homeland, and you wouldn't be able to do anything to stop it. You're trapped here. So, yes. I, too, promise to commit suicide once our mission is complete. Era pressed her knuckle to her upper lip. For some reason, I feel as if I can't trust you on this one. One tilted his head toward her. I am not hearing bold ideals. I'm not hearing a compelling counter-morality for us to explore.
All I'm hearing is ways for them to weasel past our beliefs. Are we ready to vote? Several of the others nodded. From the bored and exasperated looks on their faces, Tante could tell which way the vote would swing. Stop, he said, and found he had nothing else. One regarded him with heavy-lidded eyes. Why? Because you're about to vote no. That's the first time you've been right during this entire argument. Voices, let's get this done with. Everyone who is convinced that the silent spire should train Hari in the way of the Odosain. No hands went up. After two seconds, Seven lifted his arm, though he didn't look happy about it. No one joined him. Gladick laughed, a sour and caustic thing. Look at these wise elders who condemn themselves to death. One smirked. The time for talking is over, priest. We've made our decision. It must have been easier to reach that decision, knowing that soon no one will be alive to write the history of your cowardice. Enough. Guards, he might look old but that'll only make him easier to drag away. Soldiers moved in from the sides. Blazer's hands drifted toward the scabbards on his hips. Dante laughed. You won't train us because you fear it would lead to the loss of Tanaritain. But what does it matter when you've already let that happen? Your culture's in its death throes. Train us in the Odosain and I'll save it from vanishing forever. The soldiers paused, waiting for orders. One swore. I told you, no more talk. The voices have spoken. Era stood, drifting a step toward Dante. Her eyes seemed to grow sharper while the rest of her face blurred. We should listen. I see inspiration in him, one. Don't you? The large man glared at her in disgust, then considered Dante. His anger relaxed. For the first time, doubt crept across his face. Damn it. Shit and scales, I see it. Speak, priest, and be fast with it. The idea is very simple, Dante said. The execution will be complicated. You need to put your language into writing. You need to put your ideas and your history into books. And I will help you. Six started to speak, then coughed, his elderly eyes watering. A servant leaned in to help him, only to be smacked away by the old man. After a gulp of air, Six found his voice. You know nothing of Tanaritain. You think we've never heard of writing before? Of books? We have our reasons for doing things as we do. 
I understand perfectly well. What is it you once said about this, Volo? That Tenarians want their truths written in water, which naturally changes its form to suit its surroundings, rather than chiseled in stone, which can never be altered. Close enough, Volo mumbled, wide-eyed and clearly reluctant to be dragged into the talk. Congratulations, Six said. You listened to one thing that one of us had to say. We have no need for your writing. It's stifling. We've passed our knowledge along just fine without it. Dante took a step to his right, looking past the towers in the direction of the distant swamps. That worked before when everyone thought the same way that you do about the value of being able to exchange ideas with anyone willing to listen. But once a group breaks away from that, and clamps down on what can be said, they'll destroy anything they don't like. You're seeing it now with the righteous monsoon. They believe they have all the answers, that there's no need to pursue other ideas, that any others are a threat to them. As a result, they've already banned Donarchy Day, put an end to your daily quest for new truths. Soon they'll be imprisoning or killing the heretics who deny their faith, if they haven't started already. Even if we kill the Lich, the monsoon will kill everything you consider Tenarian, until your former culture is as barren as these hills. All seven voices watched him thoughtfully. He raced onward, letting the idea Gladick had provoked in him unfold. The only way to protect your heritage is to write it down, so that if you're killed, your ideas and knowledge won't die with you so that other Tenarians don't have to come to you to find your wisdom, but can share your books as easily as they'd share a meal. Books can be burned, or wear out with time, but in most ways, they are stronger than us. They never get too tired to go on. They don't need to eat. They can be hidden away for years without harm. This is how you last in the face of strife. Dante returned to the center of the shrine's floor and faced error. As I said, the idea's a simple one, but getting it done will be as complex as any sorcery. Here's my offer. If you train us in the Odosein, then I will bring Narashtivik's scholars to you. They'll train your own scholars and archivists. They'll show you how to craft an alphabet, to record yourselves on parchment, to fill libraries with the story of Tanara Tain. That way, you can persist through the monsoon without losing your past to the flames, so that even when the day comes that Tanara Tain eases into the past, its history will remain alive forever. Five stirred. Jowls creased with a frown. Are you finished? He folded his hands at his waist. I think we're all hoping the answer to that is a massive yes. 
Then I call for a final vote on the matter of whether to teach the Hari the skills of the Odosain. All those in favor? Still meeting Dante's eyes, Five raised her right hand. Dante swung back his head in surprise. Seven was the next to follow. And then the others. Until only one remained with his hand down. Six to one, Five declared. The argument is concluded. The voices have spoken. Era, you are hereby authorized to train the four before us in the ways of the Odosain. Eight. Are you ready? Era waited until each of them had nodded their affirmation. Then you may begin your practice. Right. Blaze shifted his knees on the mats Era had laid out at the edge of the forest. The bleakness of the hills spread before them. He looked down, adjusted his jabat, then took a sharp breath through his nose. Pardon my comically deep foreigner's ignorance, but did I miss the part where we were taught what to do? No, I shouldn't think so. That's odd, because I'm pretty sure you just told us to get to it, but what is it? It is the Odosein, Era said. I've managed to pick up on that much, but aren't you to, uh, teach us? How should I do that? Blaze looked at Dante. A little help? Oh, no. On the mat beside him, Dante shook his head vigorously. I think you've got the matter well in hand. I'll admit I'm not much of a teacher myself, unless you'd like to learn how to chug a mug of beer without spilling down your shirt. But it seems to me that you might try teaching us the same way you taught your other students. Era touched her finger to her lips. Interesting. Are you my other students? If so, I must have delivered a few too many chugging lessons, because I don't remember any of it. If you aren't those other students, then how can I teach you the same way I taught them? With terrific skill and aplomb? It's critical to understanding of the Odosein that the student learns its processes on their own. Why is that? Dante said. She fixed her eyes on his. Think. Why might that be? You're a radically isolated group of practitioners of an obscure form of sorcery. The most likely answer is because you're loony mystics who've spent too much time cut off from human contact and have either gone insane or adopted unique practices that are indistinguishable from insanity but I'm guessing that's not what you're going for. Why are you framing that as a joke, when it's a perfectly reasonable conclusion? Am I right? You'd better hope not, hadn't you? 
Dante leaned on one palm. If learning the processes on your own is vital to the process itself, that suggests the Odosaine is based on private revelation. Or the very process you're engaged in right now, Gladick said. Reasoning, deduction, getting mired down in silly arguments. This is sorcery, not philosophy. Both the Nether and Ether follow predictable rules. One might even say that they are logical. Oh, yes, they're practically arithmetic. You remember that time I added two to three and it killed twenty monsoon soldiers? You're not very smart, Era said to Blaze. He laughed. We've only met today, and yet it's already like you've known me forever. A minute ago, you told me you don't know anything about the Odyssean. What you're wrong about that. And not only a little bit wrong, but so wrong that I have a hard time believing you're not deliberately lying. I think I preferred it when you were calling me stupid. How do we figure things out? Huh? Yes, by grunting dully until someone takes pity on us and does it for us. That's one method. But let's pretend you're a person who respects themselves. Blaze tilted back his head, contemplating the late afternoon sky. By beating it out of people for being too cryptic? We reason, Dante said. How do we begin to reason? Era said. Several ways. Extrapolating from personal experience, abstracting out our thoughts, observing repeated patterns of behavior or natural forces. She stared at him levelly. Let's start with personal experience. Do you suppose you can think of an experience you've had with the powers of the Odosein? Several. He felt the blood rushing to his face. Like the one we just had twenty minutes ago. Do you need me to keep holding your hand? Or are you ready to take a step on your own? We don't know how you do what you do, but we've seen its results. Normally the Nether's like water. It flows easily because that's its nature. But when the Odosein is applied to it, it becomes icy, like it's frozen in place, and you can't move it. Are you sure that's true? Yes, I suppose. For me. Gladick, how did you experience it? Similarly, the old priest said. With the ether as well. Typically, one is able to bring it forth the same way that one might open the shutter in a dark farmhouse, allowing the light to spill forth upon the interior. Beneath the oppression of the Odyssean, I can still see the light outside, but it no longer shines through the open window and the house remains dark. Blaze shifted his weight on his knees. Normally, if I try really, really hard, I can make a little piece of nether do something that may or may not resemble what I want it to do. But when your knights are around, I don't even get the chance to fail, because 
The Nether just sits there. It reminds me of the early parts of my training, when I'd learned to see the Nether, but still hadn't figured out how to touch it. That points us to the general mechanism, Dante said. We all agree the shadows and the light are still there. The Odosein isn't taking them away. It makes them inert. He lifted his eyebrows at error. Are we supposed to be able to reason this out further? If I tell you no, is that because it's true, or because your belief will make it true? Era smoothed her robes over her thighs. When it comes to learning, most people cripple themselves by running to their teachers for help the instant things get hard. Yet, if you train yourself right, you can reason your way forward far more often than you'd think, using far less hard knowledge and evidence than you'd believe possible. Getting good at that process is vital. If you try to rely on me for all your answers, you're never going to reach them. Dante, Gladick, and Blaze fell into a longer conversation about how they'd encountered the Knights of Odosein during earlier conflicts, specifically when they'd freed Naren from the Blue Tower, and then the confused battle at the wound. As they spoke, Volo wriggled around on her mat like a dog seeking to bed down in the grass. Dante didn't feel as though they were making much headway, but they'd at least confirmed that the experience had always been the same one of being unable to reach the locked-down shadows. Era hadn't been paying much attention to them until the conversation petered out to half-hearted rehashes of things they'd already rehashed twice before. Annoyed disappointment grew on her face with each moment. When she couldn't stand it any longer, she stood, knocking the grass from her robe. You're slowing down like you've been hulled. Try this. Look out there, into the desert. You see it? Blaze shielded his eyes with the blade of his hand, peering into the streaked black hills that started just feet away from where they were kneeling. You mean the freaky-looking stuff, surrounding the spires for thirty miles on all sides? I'm having to squint pretty hard here, but I think I've got it. Today, it's nothing but naked rock. But that wasn't always so. A long time ago, the desert was a forest. Where the Yosain lived, Dante said, before the White Lich came. Their only way to stop him from destroying them was to destroy their homeland instead. A simple version of the facts, but I suppose that's the best I can hope from you. It's true, though, that people lived here. Animals, wild and domestic. Trees. The whole land thrived with life of all kinds. I want you to look out there, and I want you to imagine what it was like. Then what? Quit worrying about the then before you've even started the now. You've been whining that I wasn't giving you any instructions, and now that I'm trying to give you a lesson, you can't even do what you're told. 
I'm sorry, El Era. You can apologize to me by doing your damn job. Gods, teachers always make the worst students. Dante inhaled and exhaled, clearing his mind in the same way he emptied it for the arrival of the ether. He stared out into the field of jagged rock. It looked unreal, like a glimpse from a hellscape inversion of the mists. A layman might think it was impossible that such a place could once have been a bountiful forest. But Dante had seen other places time had changed just as much. Plains into mountains, forests into deserts. The only reason the earth looked eternal was because a person's span upon it was so brief. His first thought of how this place had once looked was the pine forest surrounding Narashtavik, with their towering rough trunks and the carpets of slippery needles on the forest floor. But this was obviously wrong. It had to have been closer to the great leafy forests of Malin, although probably different from those as well, as it often snowed in Malin, and he wasn't sure that it ever did in Tanaratain. The jungles of the plagued islands, then, with their flowering vines, thickets of bamboo, and lush trees. He thought that might be closer, at least. Then again, the Usain and their forest had ceased to exist something like a thousand years ago. Had the trees and flowers back then even looked like the ones that existed today? From what he'd pieced together, the people from that time period were nothing like the ones that were here now. Did everything change over time? Or were birches always birches? And bears were always bears? And specific groups of people were the only ones that didn't last? The sun tilted westward. As it went, the wind picked up driving at them in uncertain bursts. As Dante contemplated what type of forest might have covered the area, he kept a general awareness of the nether to see if this little exercise was affecting it, but it looked perfectly normal. It wasn't long before his mind started to wander. First to what the purpose of this exercise might be, and then to ways to stop the white lich. He looked up and saw that Era was gone. The winds were now gusting, as if enraged, blowing in every speck of dust from the rocky wasteland, stinging their faces and eyes. A servant arrived, his face masked with an almost translucent piece of fabric stretched over a small wicker frame. He indicated that they should follow him back to the Tower of Three, which Era commanded, or stewarded, or however it was that the voices considered themselves to govern. The tower door was solid iron, covered in symbols that resembled the runes of the rear lace. Dante had the immediate suspicion that there was a layer of iron within the walls as well, built to keep out or, more likely, at least slow down the lich. The foyer ceilings were fifteen feet high, the semicircular space filled with mats, low tables, 
and glasswork typical of most of the nicer residences and establishments elsewhere in the country. Era had been speaking with another servant. Seeing them, she motioned the servant to depart. Did any revelations come to you from out of the desert? That depends, Blaze said. Does two tons of dust count as a revelation? Gladick's lower eyelids were sagging with exhaustion. How long might it take us before we are able to command the power of the Odosane? You're asking me to guess when you, a person I'd never met before today, is going to be able to learn a skill you might not ever learn? If you are able, yes. I'm not. It takes as long as it takes. But will it be soon enough to stand against the Aiden Rane before it's too late? How should I know? She jerked her thumb at the staircase. If these are the best questions you've got, we're done here. Go get some dinner, some sleep, whatever it takes to make you worth teaching. After that rather demoralizing speech, they were led upstairs to simple stone chambers furnished with rugs and tapestries, where they were fed bread. Having not eaten anything since entering Erisosis, Dante hadn't realized how much he'd missed it. Stewed beans in a thick, salty sauce, and fruit tarts that tasted both sweet and sour. The staff removed their dishes as soon as they were finished. One remained to show them about their rooms, finishing at the doorway, where he indicated a chain hanging from a hole in the wall. The room should not be left. If assistance is required, pull this chain. Blaze gave an experimental tug of the small brass links. What's it do? A bell is rung. A servant is summoned. A fellow is thanked for the explanation. The servant gave him a blank look and left. Their beds were the typical wicker frames that could be secured against the wall by day. Dante rolled onto his thin mattress and was immediately so weary that he wasn't sure he could get up again. Blaze blew out the candle, which was neither tallow nor beeswax, and smelled like a variety of stout, shiny plant they'd seen here and there in the swamps and shuffled across the dark room to his bed. We're sure this isn't a prank of some kind. Blaze climbed onto his mattress. The other Odosain had to go through this as well. Why don't we ask them and find out? Dante said. Oh, wait, there aren't any left, which is exactly why we have to go through this in the first place. Dante typically woke up a few times during the night, but on that occasion he didn't stir until a servant swung open the door just before the sun broke from the horizon. Dante had slept for a good ten hours, but felt almost drunkenly groggy, and his legs and back were so sore from the long march the day before that he was obliged to soothe his aches with nether on his way to the privy. Breakfast was flat bread stuffed with potatoes and beans. There were few spices to speak of, just a bit of salt and herbs. 
It was immensely different from the heavily spiced fish, root mash, bananas, and rice they ate in the swamps. Did the people of the spires cling so fiercely to the idea of Tenarian culture because they understood that they weren't truly a part of it? After eating, Era arrived to lead them back to the boundary between the forests of the spires and the bleakness of the hell-painted hills, where she instructed them to think about the lost forest once more. Within an hour, everyone but Gladick was fidgeting. A little after that, Blaze began to snore. Era cursed and rolled her eyes. She gave Blaze a shove. Wake up, you idiot! If you want to sleep the day away, you can do that back in the swamps. Blaze rubbed his eyes. I wasn't doing a very good job imagining the old place by myself. I thought dreaming about it might help. Are you being serious? That depends. Will believing in what I said get me out of trouble? She got up and walked back to the Seven Towers. Well done, Dante said. Next time, try killing yourself. You can tell her that you thought you could imagine the forest better from within the mists. Blaze got up, planting his palms on the small of his back and stretching backwards. If I have to spend one more minute imagining a bunch of stupid trees that died a thousand years ago, I will kill myself. What are we even doing? How is this going to teach us to nullify sorcery? I don't know. But given that Era is one of only seven people authorized to teach the Odosein, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume she knows what she's doing. I'd rather enjoy the training at Pocket Cove again. Didn't they try to drown you, make you die of exposure? Exactly. Era didn't come back until they'd been brought their lunch, another meal of stuffed flatbread. She directed them to continue envisioning the forest. They obeyed dutifully. I imagine you're growing so bored you're thinking about killing yourself, she said after another hour. First of all, that would be stupid. The smart play would be to kill me. Second, since repeated failure is toxic to the will to go on, and you don't seem to be able to do anything but fail, let's try a new course. Take up your foul magics. Dante reached out to the nether. Blaze made a clumsy swipe at it while Gladig summoned a perfect pattern of light. Without so much as a twitch, Era locked the two talents in place. Dante gave a peremptory tug at the shadows. Era lifted her hand, palm up. See that? The part where you made three extremely dangerous people look like sad children, Dante said. Yes, I might have noticed. But did you watch it? I didn't know that it was coming. Do you take that same mindset to a sword fight, or when you're dueling one of the other warlocks? Of course not. That's a fight for my life. Era laughed mockingly. 
You're working to combat the Aiden Rani, and you don't think it's a fight for your survival? Your life is on the line every second of your training. And so is mine. And so is the life of everyone in this country. When you're with me, you watch and you listen. Always. Do you understand? Dante nodded, keeping any bristle out of his voice. What was I supposed to see? Watch again and tell me. She ordered them to draw on their abilities again. Just as before, she slammed down on them, sealing the ether and the nether as firmly as the world's own skin. Dante glanced at Gladick and Blaze. They shrugged and shook their heads. Era repeated the process a third time, then a fourth, and a fifth. She scratched her armpit. See anything yet? You're locking it down, Dante said. If there's more to be seen, I'm missing it. Then maybe you should look harder. Or would you rather go back to imagining the forest? Please, no. Blaze covered his heart with one hand, extending the other for mercy. At least have us imagine a hot springs, somewhere people might like to bathe. I guarantee you I'll be able to describe it to you in perfect detail. Era snorted, but seemed at least half amused. We'll try a few more. But like I said, too much failure in too little time turns bold men into timid children. Yet Dante got nothing out of the next few attempts, either. Era had them contemplate the hills some more while she thought, or pretended that she was thinking while she was actually punishing them for their stupidity, then snapped her fingers. I'm stopping you from accessing your unholy magics, she said. But there are ways for you to slip past me. You're going to try. Dante bit his lip. If Blaze had similar thoughts of discretion, he promptly ignored them. I suppose it's too much to ask how we might do that. Era didn't bother to respond. She motioned for them to summon their powers. They complied, and she once more froze the light and shadows in place. Dante bull-rushed toward the nether, meaning to batter right through whatever she was doing. But it was like running full tilt into a wall. Sensing that was a dead end, he retreated, whispering to the nether with all the subtlety he could summon. He thought he sensed a quiver. But as soon as he turned toward it, it went as still as the rest of it. No amount of wheedling could get it to twitch again. Era gave no sign she'd seen anything move at all. Blaze begged off five minutes later, his powers exhausted. Gladick and Dante persisted for a good while longer, getting to a whole lot of nowhere. With the day running short, Era stopped their practice, told them to imagine the forest and walked away. When dusk fell, the servant arrived to bring them to dinner. Blaze clapped his hands 
At last, something I'm good at. Dante barely tasted his food, lost in contemplation of what Era had attempted to show them so far. Was the business about imagining the lost forest merely a thought exercise to push them into the correct mindset to be able to see whatever it was that Era was attempting to show them? Or was it an important exercise in its own right? Furthermore, if she was serious that there was still a way to reach the Nether when the Odosain was opposing you, then wasn't it possible that, even if they learned the skill themselves, the White Lich would still be able to muster his sorcery against them? He didn't say anything of this latter doubt. Yet he would have bet everything he owned that Gladick had already arrived at the same question. The third day followed the same schedule as the second. Dante shouldered on as best he could. Volo couldn't access either the Nether or Ether, and spent nearly the entire day gazing out into the fiery wastes. Blaze imagined the occasional joke or jocular complaint. While Gladic smirked more and more as the day wore on, Dante thought it had little to do with Blaze's efforts and more to do with the old man's growing conviction that they were doomed to fail, squandering their final days on nonsensical lessons while the white lich continued his inexorable advance from the depths of the swamps. It was both cruel and merciful that every day had to end eventually. That day was no exception. As they parted ways, Era didn't even bother to insult them. She just shook her head and headed to her tower. If anyone said a word at dinner, Dante didn't hear it. They retired to their quarters. Blaze tossed a mat against the wall and sat on it with a heavy thump. Here's an unpleasant question. How long do we stick around here getting nowhere until we cut our losses and move on? Dante unfolded his bed from its ties. To what? Admitting we were wrong and asking the lich for jobs in his new empire? I told you it was going to be unpleasant. I wonder if we aren't meant to learn a thing. Gladick said. Perhaps the Odosain are toying with us, teaching us nonsense until we grow so frustrated we leave of our own accord. Dante flicked a beetle from his sheet. Why would they do that? To prevent us from reaching the inconvenient conclusion that we can never learn their skill in time, and that the only way to confront our foe is to bend the Odosain to our will by force, and make them come with us after all. I think you're mistaking this for the sort of thing that you would do. But now that Gladick had planted the thought in him, Dante couldn't evict it from his mind. It was a long time after the candles were out before he fell asleep. Their fourth day, at the silent spires, opened to an unbroken sheet of wind-hustled clouds. 
It was drizzling, and the grass was wet, but Era took them out to the boundary anyway. The forest is still out there, she declared. Find it, and you'll be on your way. Dante sighed in a way that could have been mistaken for meditative breathing, and closed his eyes. He smelled the rain on the leaves. Somehow, it hadn't occurred to him before, but there were still some trees in the hell-painted hills, weren't there? Right there in the silent spires. He opened his eyes and swiveled his head to gaze at them. Once he'd committed them to memory, he closed his eyes again and used them as his model for how he imagined the old forest must have looked. Whenever his attention wandered, he nudged it back to the exercise. Half an hour into it, as he was imagining himself walking through the barren hills, with the woods sprouting up around him as he went, he opened his eyes. They didn't have to learn the Odosein themselves, did they? Not if they could find a way for the voices to be able to leave the sanctuary of the spires without dropping dead. Aero walked up behind him. What is it? What do you see? Dante snapped his eyes shut. Tall trees. Like these ones here. That's it. There are animals, too. Squirrels. Things of that nature. Right, she said. Keep looking. He did, but was beyond relieved when she finally called a halt to their activity, if you could call it that. Blaze stood, walking in small circles. I don't think I could spend more time thinking about forests if I was one. Gladick stretched out his spindly legs, rubbing his right hip with his left hand. Bell era, I can no longer hold my tongue. I see no sign that we're making progress toward our goal. Am I wrong? Probably not, she said. Then why not offer us specific guidance? Why not teach us what we're looking for and how we might find it? Did you not listen the first time I told you? Is that why you're having such trouble with this? If we wanted to smother you, we'd use our hands, not our dogma. Find your own way or give up trying. Dante got to his feet. It's hard to find your way when you don't even know what your destination is. At least give us some direction. Era's face radiated scorn. What do you think these exercises are? A joke? A merciful way to let you spend your last days dreaming about peaceful woods before the Aiden Rane comes to stomp the life from your body? I'm giving you what you need to learn. If you're not getting it, blame yourself. Why let us wander in circles when you know a threat like that is on its way? You want me to act as an institution? To hand down my precious knowledge from on high? To hell with that. 
institutions only stray further and further from the truth they once held, lost in the swamps of their dogma, drawn astray by charlatans and profiteers. The only way to remain pure is to get every new student to reconfirm the truth for themselves. That's not always true. I run one of the largest institutions in the North. It's been around for centuries, and we're still dedicated to the pursuit of what's true. Are you priest of the Eleven and One Gods? Dante folded his arms. Why do you keep calling me that? Because I think it's hilarious that you Northerners need an entire army of gods just to explain to you that some things are right and others are wrong. Tell me, defender of dogma, have you never found anything in your endless scriptures that rang false? That didn't mesh with what your own eyes were showing you? Sometimes, yes, but shut your mouth. You know I'm right, but will defend your institution to the death because that's what they do to you. They enslave you, blind you, twist you from supporting truth to supporting them. We make you find knowledge for yourself. Does that make it tougher for you? Too fucking bad. Because in doing so, you're constantly bringing us new wisdom and exposing the falsehoods within our beliefs. Don't move too quickly now. Blaze held out a warding hand to Dante. I'm afraid she's just disemboweled you. Error switched to the second exercise, flipping on and off the influence of the Odosain while the others watched. When she decided she'd punished them with this for long enough, she moved on to clamping down on their powers while they attempted to sneak, wriggle, or rest themselves free. Volo swung her mat to face the fiery hills. Dante felt bad for her. She couldn't participate in anything involving sorcery, meaning she likely wasn't going to have much at all to do once they got into the swing of things. She couldn't make it back through the hills without them, either. Even if she tried, she had nowhere to go. She'd broken away from the rebellion she'd been a part of, a move that must have cost her most of her friends. As far as he knew, she had no family, although he felt mildly guilty for not being sure. A pebble struck him in the face. He flinched much too late. Era bounced another pebble in her right hand. He gave a nod of apology. She told them to reach for their sorcery, and he did so. A servant was making his way from the towers to bring them their midday meal. Before he got to them, Volo shot to her feet. She scrabbled away from the border so hard that she fell on her rear in the grass. Face contorted with panic, she continued to kick herself away from the hills. Era swept herself to her feet, seeming to close on the girl in a single stride. What did you see? Bolo tipped her head toward Era, 
staring up at her with spooked eyes. It. I saw it. Speak like we're not privy to every one of your thoughts. The forest, the people, they were right there. And they were there, and it was like I wasn't me anymore, and- Era slapped her across the face. Do you think it's useful to babble like you've been kicked in the head? Slow down, and calm down, and think through what you just saw. Quickly now, before you lose it. Anger flashed across Volo's face, but it was gone as fast as it had appeared. Absently, she rubbed her cheek, gazing into the wasteland. I was sitting here, and I was thinking about how it must have looked back then, and how it would look if it came back. And then it was like... She rolled her hand through the air. I saw these flashes out on the rocks, bits of gold, and then everything lurched and I was still looking out at the hills, except they were covered in trees. People were there, too, singing to each other as they took water from a stream. Only I didn't recognize any of the words. The people didn't look right, either. They looked hurry. What else did you imagine? That's just it, Bell Era. I don't think I was imagining anything. It was like I was there. Then what? One of the men at the stream looked at me. He looked so surprised, I know that he could see me. That's when the vision popped, just like a soap bubble, and I was sitting on my mat again. It was like falling asleep in one place and waking up in another. That's why I yelled out. You sound sheepish. Don't be. It's always startling to be given a glimpse. Dante rubbed the back of his neck. A glimpse of what? That depends, Era said. In this case, I'd say it was the past. The past? As in the actual past? Ask better questions or don't ask them at all. How could she have seen the past? It's gone. It's past. That's what it does. Wind gusted from the hills. Era stepped beneath the cover of a tree, casting her face into shadow. You're a warlock. By waving your hand, you kill people from across a field. With a nod of your head, you heal lethal wounds. You crossed the hell-painted hills, which no one who wasn't Odosain has ever done. And even the Aiden Rane can't yet do. And you find this so unbelievable? Yes. Then you're welcome to keep going along as you have been. Or you could find out what the girl did that you couldn't. Let us accept that this is real, Gladick said. What, then, is a glimpse? Era smiled, 
Why, it's a function of the Odyssean, old man. You say she saw into the past. How? Was she granted a vision? Does memory exist independent of the body, and she caught a passing scrap of it? And what does this have to do with the ability to neutralize sorcery? Good questions. Going forward, you'll want to try to answer them. Blaze motioned to Volo. This was the first time you've seen anything like this, right? You've been at this for days. Were you doing anything different this time? Volo tucked her chin, thinking. Before, I was just thinking about trees and things, as if I was sitting there watching the leaves blow in the wind. But this morning, I started thinking about how I've never been in a forest like this, have I? I'm a swamp rat. That's all I've seen. So, first, I had to think about what it would look like for everything that dies to fall on the ground and just stay there and not get swept away like it does in the swamp. And that got me thinking. Things can just run around on the forest floor, can't they? They aren't confined to some little island or roots through the tree branches. Then I started to wonder what it must be like to not be a swamp rat, but to be a ground rat. So that's what I imagined myself as. Just a little rat, running through the grass, trying to find seeds, or hiding when I saw an owl or a takaito. And how the ground must be dense with fallen leaves, and what that must smell like, and what lives in the leaves. And then I got sad, because it had all died when the lich came. All those trees, all those birds, even the rats. But I don't like being sad, so I started imagining something else, how someday the poison will be gone from this place, the dirt will build up in the valleys, seeds will blow in from the fringes and take root in the new soil, flowers will grow, and bees and flies will come to them, and then lizards will come to eat the bugs, and birds will come to eat the bugs and the lizards, and all of this stuff will be crapping and dying and making more dirt, until one day there's enough dirt for a tree to grow and become tall and drop its seeds and form a grove who drop their seeds and become a forest. And then I, the little rat, come back to the woods that I thought were gone forever. Vola felt silent, blushing like she'd accidentally flipped the hem of her jabat over her head. That's when this glimpse came. Blaze gestured in a circle. While you were out ratting it up? I felt weird a few times before that, but I didn't know what it was. It was like it wanted to show up, but it wasn't quite ready yet. Dante raised an eyebrow at Era. She's taken a step forward, hasn't she? Maybe a big one. Yet why do I have the impression that you're not going to tell us anything about what this means? 
Era shrugged. Because you're finally starting to learn. All right. But what in the world does seeing a moment from the past have to do with locking the nether in place? Nothing. There's no direct connection. At least not one that we've ever thought of. I'll tell you that much to spare you from getting lost in an eel warren pursuing answers that aren't there. Now get back to work. She resumed holding the shadows down while the three of them attempted to break free, but Dante could barely focus. As impossible as it would have been for him to believe a few minutes earlier, he was ragingly impatient to kneel down on his mat and think very hard about old forests. For reasons that were probably sadistic, Era kept them at their current practice for another half an hour before sending them back to their mats. At last! Dante closed his eyes. What had Vola been doing that he hadn't? Was it the specificity of her vision? That she'd placed herself as an active participant in the scene, rather than a passive observer? Or was it the highly dynamic passing of time she'd employed? The simplest test would be to try to mimic exactly what she'd done, and see if he got the same results. Dante pictured himself as a humble rat, not much different than the countless rodents he'd slain to use as scouts. He went about his ratly duties, foraging for fruits and seeds, hiding from things with bigger teeth and claws, building a cozy nest. Initially, he got so lost in the vision that he forgot what he was doing it for. With this realization, he got excited. It seemed like the sort of thing that would trigger a revelation. But nothing seemed out of the ordinary. He certainly hadn't been struck with a glimpse. He moved on to visualizing the destruction of the forest, the current state of the hills, and the gradual return of plants and life to the wasteland. Nothing came of his efforts except annoyance at Volo for being the first to achieve a breakthrough, while the three trained nether-wielders were still sitting around like morons. They finished the day without any further excitement. At dinner, Dante drilled Volo over everything that had led up to her glimpse. But her story was the same as before. He woke in the morning with the sense that he'd been dreaming. An idea shook loose from the tattered and fading hints of the dream. Trying to duplicate Volo's work was foolish. Time and again, Era had stressed the vitalness of self-discovery, blazing your own trail. That morning, as they kneeled on their mats to face the emptiness of the hell-painted hills, Dante let his mind rest empty. Once he felt ready, he called up the same basic forest he'd been imagining for the last several days, a blend of the growth you could see down in the swamps mixed with the more temperate forests of Malin. Previously, he drifted through these woods like a speck of matter, with no defined features of his own.
He hadn't understood that, as Volo had done, it was fine to take a more active role in the forest. This time, he imagined himself there. He found a game trail and followed it to a shallow stream with a pebbly bottom. He was poking around the banks for fish and aquatic insects when he heard a woman scream. He blinked, receding from the vision. No one else had noticed, meaning the scream had to have been in his imagination, there in the lost forest. He'd never thought about people being there before, but of course they'd existed, the Usain and whatever other groups whose names had been lost to time. Before he could start thinking too hard, he imagined himself racing toward the scream. Fighting past branches and thorns, he reached for the nether. He scrambled up a short incline. Ahead, men with spears and axes held a ragged line against a rush of grub-white attackers. The blighted outnumbered the humans five times over. Behind the line of spearmen, women and children huddled together, the women bearing sticks or bone knives. The blighted crashed into the line of humans, impaling themselves on the bronze spears. Despite their wounds, the undead continued to push onwards, raking at the men and bowing the middle of the line to the point of collapse. Dante spread his hands wide, sending a storm of nether over the heads of the humans and crashing into the blighted. They fell with looks of angry betrayal. The survivors charged into the gap opened by the deaths, only to be hammered down by a second wave of shadows. The humans now stood alone. Several stared at Dante in shock. A beam of sunlight broke through the branches, golden and dazzling, half-blinding him. The people fell to their knees, in worship. He felt as though he was tipping forward, into something unknown and not entirely safe. He pulled back, yanked out of the vision which had felt half dreamlike, unfolding on its own, and half artificial, a story he'd been telling himself. He felt as though he'd been very close to something. Maybe not a glimpse, but something. But as much as he tried to slip back into that liminal space, he could no more do that than he could wake from a dream, get up for a glass of water, then lie back down and resume the dream where he'd left off. He closed his eyes and started a new vision. The forest was there, and so was he. And that's more than enough. Era slapped her hand against her thigh. It's a good thing you can't see how stupid you look while you're dreaming away, or else I'd have to take away your swords to stop you from blinding yourselves. Blaze got to his feet, bending down to stretch his hamstrings. If I carved on myself every time I was made to look foolish, you'd currently be talking to a three-foot stack of roast beef. 
Do you people really eat those things? What? Stacks? Cows? Lumbering piles of festering meat? You think eating cows is gross? Then I won't even tell you about pigs. Era switched them over to the practice Dante had come to think of as the freeze. Before, he hadn't been certain whether imagining the forest, a process he'd mentally labeled with great creativity as forest, was no more than a mind preparation technique. Yet, after Volo's glimpse, he was now certain that it was actually a skill-honing exercise. Further yet, that it was clearly related, if indirectly, to what Era was trying to teach them with the other techniques. What, then, were the central lessons of Forrest? To be detailed and reasoned, and to pair this with the perhaps contradictory ability to be unbound, to let your thoughts run free and take you where they may. This seemed to have almost no relevance to freeze, which involved watching passively as Era took the nether and the ether and locked it in place. Either it was a comically poor exercise, or he was a comically poor student, because he still couldn't see how Era was stopping the magics. Only that she was. So far, he'd worked out what he thought were three reasonably good theories about the underlying premise. The most obvious was that Era was freezing the light and shadows in place, such that they couldn't be moved no matter how hard you tried. Alternately, that she was somehow tricking the two powers into thinking they weren't being summoned at all, deafening them to the sorcerer's calls. And lastly, that the Odosain had discovered a way to satisfy the Nether and Ether such that they didn't need to answer the call. Across from him, Era locked the powers in place. The Nether was still stirring, but it was heavily subdued. If it were a creature, he'd have thought it was falling asleep. She left it in this state for a minute, then withdrew. The nether awoke, stirring like grass in the wind. Drawing on the lesson of the forest, Dante untethered his thoughts, letting them float wherever they wanted to go. Era let another minute pass, then froze the shadows again, it made no sense. If she was manipulating the nether, or setting the two forces in opposition to each other, such that neither would budge, he should be able to see the work she was doing with the shadows to produce this result. She unlocked them once more, letting them pulsate and sway. Acting on impulse, Dante threw himself into the nether, drinking it down, breathing it in, just as he'd let himself get lost in the half-dream of the forest. Era came for the nether again. Dante popped from the shadows like a seed shooting from a squeezed lemon. A layer of buttery light flashed between himself and the nether. Seated on his mat, he looked up. Era was gazing at him not with her usual impatience and irritation, but thoughtfully. 
Each time she released her hold on the nether, Dante immersed himself in it anew. He didn't act further. Not yet. Before he'd learned anything further, Aera called a halt to freeze and turned them to the third practice of trying to wield the light and shadows despite her efforts, which Dante had named the struggle. Earlier, he'd focused his efforts on holding tight to the nether as she pulled it from them. This time, he plunged into it. During the freeze, he'd learned to feel her presence as she approached. As Era arrived, claiming the nether, Dante braced himself, tangling the shadows within himself with those around him. Rather than being squeezed out with a sudden pop, he was slowly pulled from it, like a man drawing a sledge full of firewood up a snowy slope. The next time, he not only entwined himself in the nether, but he sent it whirling about himself like hailstones caught in a storm. A handful of motes of light chased after the madly weaving shadows. The wits of nether dropped like dead bees to the ground, stricken from his control. But the effort took Era twice as long as it ever had before. She dropped her hold over the dark and the light. Normally Dante had taken this time to reflect on what he'd just tried and why it might have failed. But he found himself in a space where his ideas were assembling themselves without conscious work on his part. As Era loomed forward to quash the nether, Dante drew on his own trace extending it into the many tendrils which he enmeshed with the nether around him. He sprayed this mixed nether out into a whirlwind of shadows. Era's power fell on them like the boom of a closing door, if the nether, tied to Dante's trace, which even the Odosseine couldn't lock down, stood full against her assault, its motes dropping by twos and threes, rather than in whole flocks. Across from him, Era narrowed her eyes. Her skill swelled larger yet, battering against the maelstrom of Nether. Pinpricks of light flickered from within the storm cloud. Rather than the stark silver white of starlight, their color was the warm yellow glow of a fire. Dante's command of the surviving fragments quivered, then shook, then, at last, fell apart. The nether tumbled to the ground and lay there as if resting. Era pulled back her power. Dante's heart was beating like it might never slow down, but his mind was clear. He bit his lip until he tasted blood. Shadows rose around him like strangers gathering just before the light of a campfire. He took up his trace again. Part of it had been temporarily spent, but enough remained. He threaded it into the exterior nether once more. As Era mustered the Odosseine, Dante reached into the nether within her body. He expected to see it arranging itself against him, but it seemed utterly uninterested in events around it. 
He whipped some of his shadows into an erratic frenzy, while splitting others into small pieces and burrowing them into the earth like black worms. Error rumbled toward them. Next to him, Blaze's nether crumbled like he wasn't even trying. Galadix wavered, but he was already starting to collapse on the edges. Dante's black worms held fast to their tunnels, while his storming blots swerved and dodged. Beneath Era's assault, the first of them dropped to the ground, dispersing into the soil. A thought sprung fully formed to Dante's mind. He delved back into the nether in Era's blood, withdrawing some and leaving the rest, spinning a connection between himself and her that might be comparable to a very crude loon, or an excessively weak version of the link he formed between himself and a reanimated rat. Completely uncertain what it would do, or even whether it would do anything at all, he opened the connection. The air around him blazed with tiny golden fires, so many and so bright that Dante threw his hands up over his head, rocking back. The blots of fire whirled around him like little gobs of liquid sunlight. A few dozen harried Gladic, with a handful of stragglers remaining around Blaze, but the majority were looping around him, a swarm of miniature golden bees. He dropped the connection between himself and Era. The gold motes blinked away, all except for the occasional minute wink that might have been no more than a passing reflection of sunlight. More and more of Dante's shadows withered and dissolved under Era's onslaught. He tried to draw the nether out from her again, but the weight of the Odosain was far too heavy for him to push back. He watched as his shadows were dispersed, and he smiled. When all was still, Era turned to him, dark eyebrows lifted at the outer corners. What exactly are you trying to do? I didn't try. I did. Dante found that he was shaking. He took a long breath, but it did nothing to help. There was nothing to do but plow on. You aren't turning the nether against us to wield the Odosain. You aren't using the ether, either. Speaking the words made him feel as though the world had fallen away from beneath his feet. You're using a third power. Something none of us has ever seen before. Nine. They all stared at each other. Era lifted the weight of the Odosain from their shoulders. Dante plucked a thread of nether from her and bound it to himself. A few of the golden flecks spangled the air, but nearly all of them had already vanished. Gladic beetled his brows. 
What do you mean that she wields a third power? Dante motioned to the air, although he doubted that any of them could see the specks there. I mean that there's the nether, there's the ether, and there's whatever the hell the Odosein use. That's impossible. That's heresy. People in your country would be hanged unto death for heresy like this. Yet heresy was not the word on my mind. Then what? I'm not certain, as I was having a difficult time locating one that matched the depth of my contempt for your intelligence. Era laughed, brushing a strand of hair from her eyes. By rights, I should let you two argue amongst yourselves to reach a conclusion on your own. But, given the exceptional times we live in, I'm going to relax our rules. Dante is right. The Odyssean doesn't come from ether or nether. It's a third power. Galadic scowled at her. That cannot be possible. You must be wielding the abilities of the sorcerers the Odosein professes to hate, while disguising them under a different name in order to make it palatable to yourselves. You've gone senile, old man. If the truth scares you, you're free to leave. I have studied the ways of sorcery for longer than most people live. I have traveled as widely as a sea captain and read more volumes than a monastery, and I have never heard of any suggestion of a third power. We like words here, as you can tell. We spend them like they're worthless, but sometimes words aren't enough. Era gazed into nothing. A point of light winked in the air, no more significant than a speck of dust caught in a beam of light. Then again, there were no beams of sunlight there in the shade of the trees. She lifted her finger, tracing a cryptic symbol before her. The air lit up with a stream of golden light. It flowed more smoothly and cohesively than nether, but didn't shape itself into crisp lines and geometric patterns like ether was prone to do. No one could look away from it, the warm light shining from their faces. Gladick batted at the air. That proves nothing. I can make the ether any color I please. Era rolled her eyes. Then quit looking at its color and look at what it is. The old man took a hesitant step toward the river of gold, craning his head forward. He whispered under his breath, then fell silent. He stepped back, eyes darting back and forth. You know how to use both the nether and the ether, Dante said. So go ahead. Try to wield that. I already tried. Gladick's words caught in his throat. I could not. 
Era gave a small shrug, dismissing the golden band. Too bad. Would have made my job a hell of a lot easier. She tossed her head at Dante. Well done, incidentally. You're a quick learner. You think that was fast? We've been at this for days. Most trainees take months. I had one dollar who took a year and a half to see it. Someone sat here imagining forests for eighteen months, Blaze said. When they killed themselves, did you bury the body? Or were you so ashamed of what you'd done that you threw it down a ravine? Is it that hard to believe it would take so much effort? Era said. Most normal people aren't filthy, cheating warlocks. Blaze started to chuckle, then broke into full-on laughter, pressing his hands to his face. The two of you run entire religions dedicated to proving which power is superior, nether or ether, and neither of you had so much as a clue that there was a third power. Doesn't that make the last thousand years a little embarrassing? We are no different from any other priest, Gladick said. We are all liars, for none will admit to ourselves that we don't possess the full wisdom of the gods, or else we would have no authority to demand tribute from the peasants. Dante peered into the air, searching for hints of the golden light. What do you call this third substance? That's pretty obvious, Blaze said. It's gold, right? So we should call it Gether. We should absolutely not do that. You're right. Nethold is much better. We already have a word for it. Era seated herself on her mat smoothing her robes over her legs. But that word's for us. You hurry trash should come up with your own. I'm still voting for Getha, Blaze said. Hang on. Dante eyed Era. The voices were so concerned about the loss of Tenarian culture that you almost voted to kill us rather than see it diluted. We should use your word for it. She sucked her lower lip between her teeth. Odo Sein, the golden stream. Funny, Blaze stroked his chin. I once knew a fellow named that very thing, but his title referred to his liking to get prostitutes to stand over him and- Dante punched him in the arm. The golden stream it is. That's- its formal name, Era said. Among ourselves, we usually just refer to it as the stream. All right, the stream. And what exactly can it be used for? Much less than ether or nether. But it has its uses. You'll learn them in time. Or not, because you are stupid. Do you insult people so often that you don't even know you're doing it? If so, I'd love to bring you to the Gaskin court sometime. And maybe I would go, 
if I could. Or if I knew or cared what Gask was. Era grew serious. You shouldn't be worried about what you can do with the stream. You're a long ways from being able to wield it. You should be concerned with helping your friends to see it. You'll all progress much faster if you can argue about it together, rather than relying on your insight alone. A few days ago, I would have complained that as the teacher, you should be the one to take the lead on that, but I know you'll just tell me to think it through. All right, then. At first, I tried to copy what Volo imagined. This got me precisely nowhere. But when I got lost in a world that was just as deep as hers, but was uniquely my own, that's when I first saw the gold in the air, although I didn't know it at the time. Then, when Era was wielding the Odoshain, I kept seeing little flashes of it, but I wasn't sure what I was seeing until I used the nether to see what she was seeing. Gladic tipped back his head. How did you accomplish that? By drawing on the shadows within her and connecting myself to them. The priest grunted. Ingenious. From what I saw, the stream comes from inspiration. Maybe it is inspiration. Am I right? Era crossed her arms. How would I know? Because you're the only one of us that knew about it until ten minutes ago, because you do know. I know what I think is true, she said calmly. But I might be wrong. If it is inspiration, the following of your own path to sudden knowledge, then won't following your own path to understanding only make you a stronger wielder of it? That is an annoyingly tight logical loop. Dante seated himself across from her. The grass smelled good, especially after so long spent in the half-stagnant waters of the swamps. Assuming the stream is real and not a misunderstanding, or a bizarre stunt on your part, why doesn't anyone else know about it? If it comes from inspiration or thinking or what have you, why aren't other people seeing it all the time? Who says they aren't? Who says you haven't seen it before? How has it appeared to you so far? The first was in my vision. It was like a sunbeam, only more buttery and glittery than normal. After that, it showed up as flecks of golden light. Which might have been sunlight, or the little spots you see on your eyes all the time. What does the nether look like? Shadows? More or less. And if nobody knew what the nether was, and someone caught a glimpse of it, just a little shadow, would they instantly jump to the conclusion that it was magic? Probably not. Not probably not. Absolutely not. Because you'd be crazy to think that. 
The same reason applies to the stream. Error motion to the grove and the bleakness beyond. Besides, this place makes it easier to perceive. There's more than one reason we founded the spires here. Dante leaned forward, frowning. This might sound like a silly question, but if knowledge of the stream is so obscure, how do you people even know about it? Because we invented it. You can't invent sorcery. That's like claiming you invented air. Well, we did. Where do you think your own powers arose from? The gods. So it was invented. By your gods. Who, by the way, are not the same gods they have on the other side of the world, but who also certainly know about your ether and nether, despite their lack of faith in the one true way. Her point was outrageous, but Era looked pretty satisfied with it. You get these beliefs from your holy books, don't you? Books so big and thick they could choke a swamp dragon. And what are they filled with? Old, dead ideas. That's why we're not so fond of books. But you agreed that you wanted— Oh, shut up! Our hand has been forced into needing to use them for now. But if we battle off the White Lich and outlast the monsoon, maybe we'll destroy them all again. My point is that books stop you from thinking the deeper questions. You should be asking yourself this. How long has this world been here? How long have we been in it? Over a thousand years at the very least, Dante said. I've read histories that run back nearly two thousand years. The cycle of our own is vague on the matter, but two thousand years or so fits with its teachings as well. Well, that feels like a very long time, doesn't it? Two thousand years. But what if it's much longer? What if we've lost the eight thousand or eight hundred thousand years of history that came before the tiny sliver we can still remember? In so much time, how many other figures as powerful as the White Lich might have arisen? to eventually be cast down in wars so great their memory echoes down in time, even as the details are lost. Would they all have been evil? How many of them were neutral or even benevolent figures? And rather than ravaging humanity as the Lich would, they helped it grow until their eventual ascension into other realms? What if the echoes of these titans rang down through history until they become the names of your gods? Dante was stunned. Gladick looked like he didn't know whether to laugh or strike her. Blaze whistled. Now that's heresy. With that much time to work with, Eris said, 
It's not hard to imagine that there was once a mortal individual who was the first to discover the nether, just like we did with the stream. Dante swore. At least I finally have proof that the gods are merciful, since they're allowing you to go on speaking rather than converting you into a pile of ash in a smoking crater. This line of talk obviously isn't going to go anywhere pleasant, so answer me this. If you invented the Golden Stream, how'd you do it? What's the story of the Odosain? Era shook her head. Can't say. Oh, come on. You're not about to tell me just to think it through. That might work on a logical problem, but it's not possible to reason your way through history. I'll take a whack at it, Blay said. Once upon a time, the Odosain got exceedingly pissed off at a group of not Odosain, and so great was their anger that they were inspired to invent a totally new way of beating the shit out of their foes. Am I close? Era's cheek twitched, but there was no holding back her smile. And Dante thought there was no way to think your way through history. I can't tell you how the stream was invented, because that would taint your minds with our understanding of what it is. You need to explore it on your own. If and when you reach the point where you can wield it, I'll tell you what we think we know. She shot upright. So why don't you get back to work? Right. Dante turned to the others. Well, I've told you what I did to see the stream, so just do that. Blaze scrunched up his eyes. Get good ideas, then look out for flashy little gold bits. That's what worked for me. That's what you say worked for you, Era said. Careful there. You wouldn't want to infect us with the actual facts. Dante found a more comfortable position on his mat. This time, when you imagine the forest, get lost in it. Let your ideas flow as they will, and carry you along with them. Question, Lay said. Do we have to think about a bunch of trees, or can we think about whatever we please? Aero shrugged one shoulder. Do you think you need my permission? Even if I did, I suppose that's never stopped me before. They bent to their tasks. Dante built his inner world of the lost forest, layer by layer. Trees, grass, birds, and so forth. With each piece he added, he spied subtle sparkles of gold. If he hadn't known what they were, he likely would have mistaken them for tricks of his mind. He couldn't be sure. But he didn't think he'd ever seen them at other points in his life, when he'd been daydreaming or brainstorming. Not five minutes into it, Volo jumped to her feet. I see them! They were glimmering in the raindrops! Dante laughed. You were imagining weather? We've got weather in the present, don't we? 
Why wouldn't they have it in the past? The idea was so obvious it hadn't even occurred to him. Or alternately, he still hadn't been thinking flexibly enough, defaulting to visions of pleasant sunshine. When he closed his eyes again, he imagined himself struggling through a snowstorm, fighting for every mile he could get before sundown. Within the barrage of snowflakes, one in a thousand glittered gold. The day's end was nearly at hand when Gladick inhaled a loud breath through his nostrils and opened his eyes. I have seen the stream. Dante clenched his fist in triumph. How? What technique did you use? I wasn't imagining the forest of days gone past. Rather, I envisioned Tanaratain as it stands now. Its boisterous cities and its hard-working villages. Then I envisioned the white lich falling upon them and ravaging them. The way the blighted would fall upon the citizens like a pack of rabid wolves. How they would bite for the vulnerable softness of a woman's throat, and peel away the still-throbbing muscle from a man's calf. The villages were small enough to be slaughtered wholesale. After, the blood hung in the still waters like the stink of death. In the cities, some were able to flee into the wild swamp to fall victim to Ziki Oko, or venomous snakes. Others wasted from disease or starved down to their bones. I watched as one man paddled his family away from the blighted as they gave chase. Hour after hour he paddled with all his strength, yet the blighted were tireless. As their boats closed on the man's canoe, he pushed himself to his absolute limit. His arms spasmed. He lost hold of his paddle, dropping it into the water. His canoe drifted to a stop. The blighted flung themselves inside and the man, who was too weak to even lift his own arms, barely had the strength to close his eyes as they ripped apart his wife and children. At last, I saw a mother attempting to flee the blighted, tugging her three young children along behind her. As the savagery unfolded on all sides, and the monsters closed in with their mad eyes blazing, she lost all reason to her terror. She raced away from her children, leaving them behind to be devoured. When they screamed in pain and terror, she hoped their cries would drive her mad. Yet she was still sane when the blighted leaped from the water and began to eat her alive. And in her clarity of mind, she spent her last moments understanding that when her children had died, the last thing they saw was their mother's back as she ran away from them. I'm sorry, Blay said. Does anyone have a spare noose? I seem to have misplaced mine. 
Mock me as you wish. Gladick stared out into the jagged landscape of punished stone. When I saw the horror contort the mother's face, as potent as burning acid, that's when I saw the gold shining from the depths of her eyes. Dante was too excited to have another of them able to see the stream, to care about the gruesome process Gladick had taken to get there. He felt as though it was only a matter of time until Blaze would call out that he too had witnessed the new power. But when the sun sank into the dust-filled sky, reddening it like spilled blood, Blaze still hadn't found his way to the stream. That evening's dinner tasted especially good. Cauliflower in nut oil, along with black bean mash and slices of tart green apples, which the servant said were from the year's first crop. This is about as good as you can make a plate of stuff that's too dumb to run away from you. Blaze spoke through a mouthful of food, jabbing a fork at the air for emphasis. Well, don't you guys ever eat meat? The servant smiled wryly. Something in the hills makes the animal's flesh taste unwholesome. It's not such a bad thing, though. We don't have space for livestock. We must use all the plants that we grow to feed ourselves. He retreated to the kitchens. Dante nodded to Blaze. Be sure to eat your fill. You've got a long day of holding us back tomorrow. Blaze laughed and lifted a heaping spoonful of herbed beans. Really, only one of us needs to learn the Odosain, right? If the three of you have that covered, it's probably best for me to get out of your way. Preferably in a hammock somewhere. What have you tried imagining? Right now, I'm imagining that you're not being a condescending jack-off. But it's not a very realistic vision. Well, keep trying. Error seems intent on making us muddle through this on our own. The more of us we have working on it, the faster we'll go. The next morning was a warm one, with unusually low winds. Era met them at the boundary and sent them straight into the forest exercise. It took him several minutes of focused effort, but Dante could now see the stream almost every time he tried. Forty minutes in, he stood from his mat and motioned Era a short ways into the trees. She looked inclined to ignore him, then sighed and joined him. Did I say you could take a break? It's all right. I imagined asking you. You said yes. What do you want? To remind me that you haven't bathed in days? Dante fought down the flush in his cheeks. They were standing close together, and she smelled like honey. While everyone has the nether within them, very few of them will ever be able to do anything with it, no matter how long they spend in training. Is the same true of the stream? 
You're worried that your friend might be an idiot. I reached my conclusions on that front almost fifteen years ago. I'm just worried he might also be an idiot with the Odosein. All of you have the potential to reach the stream. The potential to do so within a month? Or only after a lifetime of study? Era shrugged. She'd worn a lighter robe to deal with the day's heat, and her shoulders were bare. I can't know the answer to that. Like so much else, you'll have to figure it out for yourselves. That's not good enough this time. The White Lich doesn't give a big white shit about our inner quest for personal understanding of the Golden Stream. We spooked him enough to make him conservative in his advances, but sooner or later he's going to realize we're not running around the swamps anymore. He'll start claiming people again. Bigger and bigger settlements. Within a matter of weeks, he'll become too powerful for us to resist. You want to learn our secrets in weeks? If you're crossing a desert many days from water, and your friend breaks his leg, what do you do to make it onward? Carry him. Era raised an eyebrow. Or? Dante thought for a moment. You leave him behind. Dante returned to his mat. This time, rather than envisioning the woods, he thought. Blaze had as much theory about the stream as the rest of them, but he still wasn't breaking through to where he could see it. Tapping himself into error had let Dante see through her sight and witness the stream. What if he could tap himself into Blaze and figure out why Blaze wasn't seeing it? He waited for Era to call out for them to take a break, then stood next to Blaze. Still being terrible. Blaze lobbed a pebble across the border into the naked hills. If I'd seen the stream, do you think I'd not have demanded Era bring me nine bottles of celebratory wine? Let me try something. Dante moved his mind into the shadows within Blaze's blood, withdrawing some and binding them to those within himself. On a lark, he tried to access Blaze's sight and hearing, the same way he might in an undead rat, but it was like bouncing against a blank wall. This made a certain amount of sense. When he reanimated a rat, a dragonfly, or even a person, he had total command over it. By contrast, his connection to Blaze was extremely tenuous. It was the difference between clasping hands with Blaze and actually being Blaze. In fact, uh... Blaze pointed into the air around Dante. There, two small bits of gold spun about each other in expanding orbits. You're talking about those little guys. The ones that look like extremely expensive gnats. You see them. 
Unless I'm hallucinating after I drank so much of that celebratory wine that I'd forgot I'd had any. How am I doing this? I was trying to see through your sight, but I think I made you see through mine. So you did all the tough work, then magically passed your hard-earned knowledge over to me? Can we make this standard practice? Dante met eyes with error. We figured out that the Golden Stream exists. We've all learned how to see it. Now, how do we learn how to wield it?